Tyrion. Through the door came the soft sound of the high harp, mingled with a trilling of pipes. The singer's voice was muffled by the thick walls, yet Tyrion knew the verse. I loved a maid as fair as summer, he remembered, with sunlight in her hair. Sir Merrin Trant guarded the Queen's door this night. His muttered, My lord, struck Tyrion as a tad grudging, but he opened the door nonetheless. The song broke off abruptly as he strode into his sister's bedchamber. Cersei was reclining on a pile of cushions. Her feet were bare, her golden hair artfully tousled, her robe a green and gold samite that caught the light of the candles and shimmered as she looked up. "'Sweet sister,' Tyrion said, "'how beautiful you look tonight.' He turned to the singer. "'And you as well, cousin. I had no notion you had such a lovely voice.' The compliment made Sir Lancel sulky. Perhaps he thought he was being mocked. It seemed to Tyrion that the lad had grown three inches since being knighted. Lancel had thick, sandy hair, green Lannister eyes, and a line of soft blonde fuzz on his upper lip. At sixteen, he was cursed with all the certainty of youth, unleavened by any trace of humour or self-doubt, and wed to the arrogance that came so naturally to those born blonde and strong and handsome. His recent elevation had only made him worse. "'Did her grace send for you?' the boy demanded. "'Not that I recall,' Tyrion admitted. "'It grieves me to disturb your revels, Lancel, "'but as it happens I have matters of import to discuss with my sister.' Cersei regarded him suspiciously. "'If you are here about those begging brothers, Tyrion, "'spare me your approaches. "'I won't have them spreading their filthy treasons in the street.' They can preach to each other in the dungeons, and count themselves lucky that they have such a gentle queen, added Lancel. I would have had their tongues out. One even dared to say that the guards were punishing us because Jamie murdered the rightful king, Cersei declared. It will not be borne, Tyrion. I gave you ample opportunity to deal with these vice, but you and your Sir Jaslyn did nothing, so I commanded Valar to attend to the matter. And so he did. Tyrion had been annoyed when the Red Cloaks had dragged a half-dozen of the scabrous prophets down to the dungeons without consulting him, but they were not important enough to battle over. No doubt we will all be better off for a little quiet in the streets. That is not why I came. I have tidings I know you will be anxious to hear, sweet sister, but uh, they are best spoken of privily. Very well. The harpist and the piper bowed and hurried out, while Cersei kissed her cousin chastely on the cheek. "'Leave us, Lancel. My brother's harmless when he's alone. If he'd brought his pets, we'd smell them.' The young knight gave his cousin a baleful glance and pulled the door shut forcefully behind him. "'I'll have you know I make Shaga bathe once a fortnight,' Tyrion said when he was gone. "'You're very pleased with yourself, aren't you? Why?' Why not? Tyrion said. Every day, every night, hammers rang along the street of steel, and the great chain grew longer. He hopped onto the great canopied bed. Is this the bed where Robert died? I am surprised you kept it. It gives me sweet dreams, she said. Now spit out your business and waddle away, imp. Tyrion smiled. 
Lord Astanus has sailed from Dragonstone. Cersei bolted to her feet. And yet you sit there, grinning, like a harvest-day pumpkin? Has Bywater called out the city watch? We must send a bird to Harrenhal at once. He was laughing by then. She seized him by the shoulders and shook him. Stop it! Are you mad or drunk? Stop it! It was all he could do to get out the words. I can't, he gasped. It's too... <laughs> God's too funny, Stannis. What? He hasn't sailed against us, Tyrion managed. He's laid siege to Storm's End. Renly is riding to meet him. His sister's nails dug painfully into his arms. For a moment, she stared incredulous, as if he'd begun to gibber in an unknown tongue. Stannis and Renly are fighting each other? When he nodded, Cersei began to chuckle. Gods be good, she gasped. I'm starting to believe that Robert was the clever one. Tyrion threw back his head and roared. They laughed together. Cersei pulled him off the bed and whirled him around and even hugged him, for a moment as giddy as a girl. By the time she let go of him, Tyrion was breathless and dizzy. He staggered to her sideboard and put out a hand to steady himself. Do you think it will truly come to battle between them? If they should come to some accord, they won't, Tyrion said. They are too different, and yet too much alike, and neither could ever stomach the other. And Stannis has always felt he was cheated of Storm's End, Cersei said thoughtfully. The ancestral seat of House Baratheon, his by rights. If you knew how many times he came to Robert, singing that same dull song in that gloomy, aggrieved tone he has. When Robert gave the place to Renly, Stannis clenched his jaw so tight I thought his teeth would shatter. He took it as a slight... It was meant as a slight, Cersei said. Shall we raise a cup to brotherly love? Yes, she answered breathless. Oh, gods, yes. His back was to her as he filled two cups with sweet arbor red. It was the easiest thing in the world to sprinkle a pinch of fine powder into hers. To Stannis, he said as he handed her the wine. Harmless when I'm alone? Am I? To Renly, she replied, laughing. May they battle long and hard, and the others take them both. Is this the Cersei that Jamie sees? When she smiled, you saw how beautiful she was, truly. I loved a maid as fair a summer with sunlight in her hair. He almost felt sorry for poisoning her. It was the next morning, as he broke his fast, that her messenger arrived. The queen was indisposed and would not be able to leave her chambers. Not able to leave her privy, more like. Tyrion made the proper sympathetic noises and sent word to Cersei to rest easy. He would treat with Sir Cleos as they planned. The iron throne of Aegon the Conqueror was a tangle of nasty barbs and jagged metal teeth, waiting for any fool who tried to sit too comfortably, and the steps made his stunted legs cramp as he climbed up to it, all too aware of what an absurd spectacle he must be. Yet there was one thing to be said for it. It was high. 
Lannister guardsmen stood silent in their crimson cloaks and lion-crested half-helms. Sir Jaslyn's gold cloaks faced them across the hall. The steps to the throne were flanked by Bronn and Sir Preston of the King's Guard. Courtiers filled the gallery, while supplicants clustered near the towering oak and bronze doors. Sansa Stark looked especially lovely this morning, though her face was as pale as milk. Lord Giles stood coughing, while poor cousin Tyrek wore his bridegroom's mantle of miniver and velvet. Since his marriage to little Lady Elmesand three days past, the other squires had taken to calling him Wet Nurse, and asking him what sort of swaddling clothes his bride wore on their wedding night. Tyrion looked down on them all, and found he liked it. "'Call forth Sir Cleos Frey!' His voice rang off the stone walls and down the length of the hall. He liked that, too. "'A pity she could not be here to see this.' he reflected. She'd asked to come, but it was impossible. Cleas made the long walk between the gold cloaks and the crimson, looking neither right nor left. As he knelt, Tyrion observed that his cousin was losing his hair. Sir Cleos, Littlefinger said from the council table, you have our thanks for bringing us this peace offer from Lord Stark. Grand Maester Pycelle cleared his throat. <clears throat> the Queen Regent, the King's Hand, and the small council have considered the terms offered by this self-styled King in the North. Sad to say, they will not do. And you must tell these Northmen, sir, sir. Here are our terms, said Tyrion. Rob Stark must lay down his sword— "'Swear fealty and return to Winterfell. "'He must free my brother unarmed "'and place his host under Jamie's command "'to march against the rebels Renly and Stannis Baratheon. "'Each of Stark's bannermen must send us a son as hostage. "'A daughter will suffice where there is no son. "'They shall be treated gently and given high places here at court.' so long as their fathers commit no new treasons. Cleos Frey looked ill. My Lord Hand, he said, Lord Stark will never consent to these terms. We never expected he would, Cleos. Tell him that we have raised another great host at Casterly Rock, that soon it will march on him from the west while my Lord Father advances from the east. Tell him that he stands alone, without hope of allies. Stannis and Renly Baratheon war against each other, and the Prince of Dawn has consented to wed his son Tristane to the Princess Marcella. Murmurs of delight and consternation alike arose from the gallery and the back of the hall. As to this of my cousins, Tyrion went on, we offer Harry and Carstark and Sir Willis Manderley for Willem Lannister, and Lord Sirwin and Sir Donald Locke for your brother Tion. Tell Stark that two Lannisters are worth four Northmen in any season. He waited for the laughter to die. His father's bones he shall have as a gesture of Joffrey's good faith. Lord Stark asked for his sisters, and his father sworn as well, Sir Cleos reminded him. Sir Ilian Payne stood mute the hilt of Eddard's great sword rising over one shoulder. Ice, 
said Tyrion. He'll have that when he makes his peace with us, not before. A as you say. And his sisters? Tyrion glanced towards Sansa and felt a stab of pity as he said, Until such time as he frees my brother Jamie, unharmed, they shall remain here as ostages. How well they are treated depends on him. And if the gods are good, Bywater will find Arya alive before Rob learns she's gone missing. I shall bring him your message, my lord. Tyrion plucked at one of the twisted blades that sprang from the arm of the throne. And now, the thrust. Valar, he called. My lord. The men Stark sent are sufficient to protect Lord Eddard's bones, but a Lannister should have a Lannister escort, Tyrion declared. Sir Cleos is the Queen's cousin and mine. We shall sleep more easily if you would see him safely back to River Run. As you command, how many men shall I take? Why, all of them. The last stood like a man made of stone. It was Grand Maester Pycelle who rose, gasping. My Lord Hand, that cannot. Your father, Lord Tywin himself, he sent these good men to our city to protect Queen Cersei and her children. The King's Guard and the City Watch protect them well enough. The guards speed you on your way, Villar. At the council table, Varys smiled knowingly. Littlefinger sat feigning boredom, and Pycelle gaped like a fish, pale and confused. A herald stepped forward. If any man has any other matters to set before the king's hand, let him speak now, or go forth and hold his silence. I will be heard. A slender man, all in black, pushed his way between the red wine twins. Sir Halliser, Tyrion exclaimed. Why, I had no notion that you'd come to court. You should have sent me word. I have, as well you know. Thorn was as prickly as his name, a spare, sharp-featured man of fifty, hard-eyed and hard-handed, his black hair streaked with grey. I have been shunned, ignored, and left to wait like some base-born servant. Truly, Bran, this was not well done. Sir Alisar and I are old friends. We walk the wall together. Sweet Sir Alisar, murmured Varys, you must not think too harshly of us. So many seek our Joffrey's grace in these troubled and tumultuous times. More trouble than you know, eunuch. To his face, we call him Lord Eunuch, quipped Littlefinger. How may we be of help to you, good brother? Grand Maester Pycelle asked in soothing tones. The Lord Commander sent me to his grace the king, Thorn answered. The matter is too grave to be left to servants. The king is playing with his new crossbow, Tyrion said. Ridding himself of Joffrey had required only an ungainly Moorish crossbow that threw three quarrels at a time, and nothing would do but that he try it at once. You can speak to his servants or hold your silence, as you will. Sir Alistair said, displeasure in every word. I am set to tell you that we've found two rangers long missing. They were dead. 
Yet when we brought their corpses back to the wall, they rose again in the night. One slew Sir Jeremy Riker, while the second tried to murder the Lord Commander. Distantly, Tyrion heard someone snigger. Does he mean to muck me with his folly? He shifted uneasily and glanced down at Varys, Littlefinger, and Pycelle, wondering if one of them had a role in this. A dwarf enjoyed, at best, a tenuous hold on dignity. Once the court and kingdom started to laugh at him, he was doomed. And yet, and yet... Tyrion remembered a cold night under the stars, when he stood beside the boy Jon Snow and a great white wolf atop the wall at the end of the world, gazing out at the trackless dark beyond. He had felt... what? Something, to be sure. A dread that had cut like that frigid northern wind. A wolf had howled off in the night, and the sound had sent a shiver through him. Don't be a fool, he told himself. A wolf, a wind, a dark forest, it meant nothing. And yet, he had come to have a liking for old Geo Mormont during his time at Castle Black. I trust that the old bear survived this attack. He did. And that your brothers killed these, uh, dead men? We did. You're certain that they are dead this time? Tyrion asked mildly. When Bronn choked on a snort of laughter, he knew how he must proceed. Truly? Truly dead? They were dead the first time, Sir Alistair snapped. Pale and cold, with black hands and feet. I brought Jared's hand, torn from his corpse by that bastard's wolf. Littlefinger stirred. And where is this charming token? Sir Alistair frowned uncomfortably. It uh, rotted to pieces while I waited, unheard. There's naught left to show but bones. Titters echoed through the hall. Lord Baelish, Tyrion called down to Littlefinger, buy our brave Sir Alistair a hundred spades to take back to the wall with him. Spades? Sir Alistair narrowed his eyes suspiciously. If you bury your dead, they won't come walking, Tyrion told him, and the court laughed openly. Spades will end your troubles with some strong backs to wield them. Sir Jaslyn, see that the good brother has his pick of the city dungeons. Sir Jaslyn Bywater said, As you will, my lord, but the cells are near empty. Joran took all the likely men. Arrest some more, then, Tyrion told him. Or spread the word that there's bread and turnips on the wall, and they'll go of their own accord. The city had too many mouths to feed, and the night's watch a perpetual need of men. At Tyrion's signal, the herald cried an end, and the hall began to empty. Sir Alistair Thorne was not so easily dismissed. He was waiting at the foot of the Iron Throne when Tyrion descended. Do you think I sail all the way from Eastwatch by the sea to be mucked by the likes of you? He fumed, blocking the way. This is no jape. I saw it with my own eyes. I tell you, the dead walk. You should try to kill them more thoroughly, Tyrion pushed past. Sir Alistair, 
May to grab his sleeve, but Preston Greenfield thrust him back. No closer, sir. Thorne knew better than to challenge a knight of the King's Guard. You are a fool, imp, he shouted at Tyrion's back. The dwarf turned to face him. Me? Truly? Then why were they laughing at you, I wonder? He smiled wanly. You came for men, did you not? The cold winds are rising. The wall must be held. And to hold it you need men, which I've given you. As you might have noted, if your years heard anything but insults, take them, thank me, and be gone, before I'm forced to take a crab fork to you again. Give my warm regards to Lord Mormont, and to Jon Snow as well. Bronn seized Sir Alistair by the elbow and marched him forcefully from the hall. Grand Maester Pycelle had already scuttled off, but Varys and Littlefinger had watched it all, start to finish. "'I grow even more admiring of you, my lord,' confessed the eunuch. "'You appease the Stark boy with his father's bones "'and strip your sister of her protectors in one swift stroke. "'You give that black brother the men he seeks, "'rid the city of some hungry mouths, "'yet make it all seem mockery.' So none may say that the dwarf fears snarks and grumpkins. Oh, deftly done. Littlefinger stroked his beard. Do you truly mean to send away all your guards, Lannister? No, I mean to send away all my sister's guards. The queen will never allow that. Oh, I think she may. I am her brother. "'And when you have known me longer, you'll learn that I mean everything I say. "'Even the lies, especially the lies, Lord Petar. "'I sense that you are unhappy with me. "'I love you as much as I ever have, my lord, "'though I do not relish being played for a fool. "'If Marcella weds Tristane Martell, "'she can scarcely wed Robert Aaron, can she?' Not without causing a great scandal, he admitted. I regret my little ruse, Lord Petar, but when we spoke, I could not know the Dornish men would accept my offer. Littlefinger was not appeased. I do not like being lied to, my lord. Leave me out of your next deception. Only if you'll do the same for me, Tyrion thought, glancing at the dagger sheathed at Littlefinger's hip. If I have given any offence, I am deeply sorry. All men know how much we love you, my lord, and how much we need you. Try and remember that. With that, Littlefinger left them. Walk with me, Varys, said Tyrion. They left through the king's door behind the throne, the eunuch slippers whisking lightly over the stone. Lord Baelish has the truth of it, you know. The Queen will never permit you to send away her guard. She will. You'll see to that. A smile flickered across Vari's plump lips. Will I? Oh, for a certainty. You tell her it is part of my scheme to free Jamie. Vari stroked a powdered cheek. 
This would doubtless involve the four men your man Bran searched for so diligently in all the low places of King's Landing. A thief, a poisoner, a mummer, and a murderer. Put them in crimson cloaks and lion helms that look no different from any other guardsman. I searched for some time for a ruse that might get them into River Run before I thought to hide them in plain sight. They'll ride in by the main gate, flying Lannister banners and escorting Lord Eddard's bones. He smiled crookedly. Four men alone would be watched vigilantly. Four among hundred can lose themselves. So I must send the true guardsmen as well as the false, as you'll tell my sister. And for the sake of her beloved brother, she will consent, despite her misgivings. They made their way down a deserted colonnade. Still, the loss of her red cloaks will surely make her uneasy. I like her uneasy, said Tyrion. Sir Cleos Frey left that very afternoon, escorted by Valar and a hundred red-cloaked Lannister guardsmen. The man Robstark had sent joined them at the King's Gate for the long ride west. Tyrion found Timot dicing with his burned men in the barracks. Come to my solar at midnight. Timot gave him a hard one-eyed stare, a curt nod. He was not one for long speeches. That night he feasted with the Stone Crows and Moon Brothers in the small hall, though he shunned the wine for once. He wanted all his wits about him. Shagger, what moon is this? Shagger's frown was a fierce thing. Black, I think. In the West, they call that a traitor's moon. Try not to get too drunk tonight, and see that your axe is sharp. A stone crow's axe is always sharp, and Sagger's axes are sharpest of all. Once I cut off a man's head, but he did not know it until he tried to brush his hair. Then it fell off. Is that why you never brush yours? The stone crows roared and stamped their feet. Shagger hooted loudest of all. By night, the castle was silent and dark. Doubtless a few gold cloaks on the walls spied them leaving the tower of the hand, but no one raised a voice. He was the hand of the king, and where he went was his own affair. The thin wooden door split with a thunderous crack beneath the heel of Shagger's boot. Pieces went flying inward, and Tyrion heard a woman's gasp of fear. Shagger hacked the door apart with three great blows of his axe and kicked his way through the ruins. Timot followed, and then Tyrion, stepping gingerly over the splinters. The fire had burned down to a few glowing embers, and shadows lay thick across the bedchamber. When Timot ripped the heavy curtains off the bed, the naked serving girl stared up with wide, white eyes. "'Please, my lords,' she pleaded, "'don't hurt me!' She cringed away from Shagger, flushed and fearful, trying to cover her charms with her hands and coming up a hand short. "'Go!' 
Tyrion told her. It's not you we want. Shagger wants this woman. Shagger wants every oar in this city of oars, complained Timot, son of Timot. Yes, Shagger said on a bash. Shagger will give her a strong child. If she wants a strong child, she'll know whom to seek, Tyrion said. Timot, see her out, gently if you would. The burned man pulled the girl from the bed and half-marched, half-dragged her across the chamber. Shagger watched them go, mournful as a puppy. The girl stumbled over the shattered door and out into the hall, helped along by a firm shove from Timot. Above their heads, the ravens were screeching. Tyrion dragged the soft blanket off the bed, uncovering Grand Maester Pycelle beneath. "'Tell me, does the Citadel approve of your bedding the serving wenches, maester?' The old man was as naked as the girl, though he made a markedly less attractive sight. For once his heavy-lidded eyes were open wide. What, what, is, what is the meaning of this? I am an old man, your loyal servant. Tyrion hoisted himself onto the bed. So loyal that you sent only one of my letters to Dorin Martell. The other you gave to my sister. No, squealed Pycelle. No, of a, a falsehood. I, I swear it. it. It was not me. Varys. It, it was Varys, the spider. I, I warned you, but... Do all maesters lie so poorly? I told Varys that I was giving Prince Doran my nephew Tommen to foster. I told Littlefinger that I planned to wed Marcella to Lord Robert of the Airy. I told no one that I had offered Marcella to the Dornish. That truth was only in the letter I entrusted to you. Pycelle clutched for a corner of the blanket. Birds are lost, messages stolen or sold. It was Varys. There are things I might tell you of that eunuch that would chill your blood. My lady prefers my blood hut. Make no mistake, for every secret the eunuch whispers in your ear, he holds seven back. And little finger, oh, that one. I know all about Lord Pattaya. He's almost as untrustworthy as you. Shagger, cut off his manhood and feed it to the goats. Shagger hefted the huge double-bladed axe. There are no goats, half-man. Make do. Roaring, Shagger leapt forward. Pycelle shrieked and wet the bed, urine spraying in all directions as he tried to scramble back out of reach. The wildling caught him by the end of his billowy white beard and hacked off three-quarters of it with a single slash of the axe. Timet, do you suppose our friend will be more forthcoming without those whiskers to hide behind? Tyrion used a bit of the sheet to wipe the piss off his boots. He will tell the truth soon. Darkness pooled in the empty pit of Timet's burned eye. I can smell the stink of his fear. Shagger tossed a handful of hair down to the rushes and seized what beard was left. Hold still, mister, urged Tyrion. When Shagger gets angry, his hands shake. Shagger's hands never shake. The huge man 
said indignantly, pressing the great crescent blade under Pycelle's quivering chin and sewing through another tangle of beard. "'How long have you been spying for my sister?' Tyrion asked. Pycelle's breathing was rapid and shallow. "'All I, I did, I, I did for House Lannister!' A sheen of sweat covered the broad dome of the old man's brow, and whisks of white hair clung to his wrinkled skin. "'Always for years! Your Lord Father, ask him! I was ever his true servant! "'Twas I who bid Ares open his gates!' That took Tyrion by surprise. He had been no more than an ugly boy at Castle Rock when the city fell. "'So the sack of King's Landing was your work as well?' "'For the realm! Once Rhaegar died, the war was done!' Ares was mad, Viserys too young, Prince Aegon a babe at the breast, but the realm needed a king. I prayed it should be your good father, but Robert was too strong, and Lord Stark moved too swiftly. How many have you betrayed, I wonder? Ares, Eddard, Stark, me, King Robert as well, Lord Aaron, Prince Rhaegar, where does it begin, Pycelle? He knew where it ended. The axe scratched at the apple of Pycelle's throat and stroked the soft, wobbly skin under his jaw, scraping away the last hairs. You were not here, he gasped when the blade moved upward to his cheeks. Robert, his wounds, if you had seen them, smelled them, you would have no doubt— Oh, I know the boar did your work for you, but if he'd left the job half-done, doubtless you would have finished it. He was a wretched king, vain, drunken, lecherous. He would have set your sister aside, his own queen. Please, Renly was plotting to bring the high garden maid to court, to entice his brother. It is the guard's own truth. And what was Lord Aaron plotting? He knew, Pycelle said, about, about— I know what he knew about, snapped Tyrion, who was not anxious for Shagger and Timot to know as well. He was sending his wife back to the Eyrie, and his son to be fostered on Dragonstone. He meant to act. So you poisoned him first. No, Pycelle struggled feebly. Shagger growled and grabbed his head. The clansman's hand was so big he could have crushed the maester's skull like an eggshell had he squeezed. Tyrion tisked at him. I saw the tears of lice among your potions, and you sent away Lord Aaron's own maester and tended him yourself, so you could make certain that he died. A falsehood. Shave him closer, Tyrion suggested. The throat again. The axe swept back down, rasping over the skin. A thin film of spit bobbled on Pycelle's lips as his mouth trembled. I tried to save Lord Aaron. I vow. Careful now, Shagger. You've cut him. Shagger growled. Dolph fathered warriors, not barbers. When he felt the blood trickling down his neck and onto his chest, the old man shuddered and the last strength went out of him. He looked shrunken, 
both smaller and frailer than he had been when they burst in on him. Yes, he whimpered. Yes, Coleman was purging, so I sent him away. The Queen needed Lord Aaron dead, but she did not say so, could not. Varys was listening, always listening, but when I looked at her I knew. It was not me who gave him the poison, though, I swear it. The old man wept. Varys will tell you. It was a boy, his squire, Hugh, he was called. He must surely have done it. Ask your sister, ask her. Tyrion was disgusted. Bind him and take him away, he commanded. Throw him down in one of the black cells. They dragged him out of the splintered door. Lannister, he moaned, all I've done has been for Lannister. When he was gone, Tyrion made a leisurely search of the quarters and collected a few more small jars from his shelves. The ravens muttered above his head as he worked, a strangely peaceful noise. He would need to find someone to tend the birds until the citadel sent a man to replace Pycelle. He was the one I hoped to trust. Varys and Littlefinger were no more loyal, he suspected, only more subtle, and thus more dangerous. Perhaps his father's way would have been best. Summon Ilian Payne, mount three heads above the gates, and have done. And wouldn't that be a pretty sight, he thought. Aria. Fear cuts deeper than swords, Arya would tell herself, but that did not make the fear go away. It was as much a part of her days as stale bread and the blisters on her toes after a long day of walking the hard, rutted road. She had thought she had known what it meant to be afraid, but she learned better in that storehouse beside the guard's eye. Eight days she had lingered there, before the mountain gave the command to march, and every day she had seen someone die. The mountain would come into the storehouse after he had broken his fast and pick one of the prisoners for questioning. The village folk would never look at him. Maybe they thought that if they did not notice him, he would not notice them. But he saw them anyway, and picked whom he liked. There was no place to hide, no tricks to play, no way to be safe. One girl shared a soldier's bed three nights running. The mountain picked her on the fourth day, and the soldier said nothing. A smiley old man mended their clothing and babbled about his son off-serving in the gold cloaks at King's Landing. A king's man he is, he would say. A good king's man like me, all for Joffrey. He said it so often the other captives began to call him all for Joffrey, whenever the guards weren't listening. All for Joffrey was picked on the fifth day. A young mother, with a puck-scarred face, offered to freely tell them all she knew if they promised not to hurt her daughter. The mountain heard her out. The next morning he picked her daughter to be certain she'd held nothing back. The ones chosen were questioned in full view of the other captives, so they could see the fate of rebels and traitors. A man the others called the Tickler asked the questions. His face was so ordinary 
in his garb so plain that Arya might have thought him one of the villagers before she had seen him at work. Tickler makes them howl so hard they piss themselves, old stoop-shouldered Chiswick told them. He was a man she'd tried to bite, who called her a fierce little thing and smashed her head with a male fist. Sometimes he helped the tickler, sometimes others did that. Sir Gregor Clegane himself would stand motionless, watching and listening, until the victim died. The questions were always the same. Was there gold hidden in the village? Silver? Gems? Was there more food? Where was Lord Beric Dondarrion? Which of the village folk had aided him? When he rode off, where did he go? How many men were with them? How many knights? How many bowmen? How many men-at-arms? How were they armed? How many were horsed? How many were wounded? What other enemy had they seen? How many? When? What banners did they fly? Where did they go? Was there gold hidden in the village? Silver? Gems? Where was Lord Beric Dundarian? How many men were with him? By the third day, Arya could have asked the questions herself. They found a little gold, a little silver, a great sack of copper pennies, and a dented goblet set with garnets that two soldiers almost came to blows over. They learned that Lord Berwick had ten starvelings with him, or else a hundred mounted knights, that he had ridden west, or north, or south, that he had crossed the lake in a boat, that he was strung as an oryx, or weak from the bloody flocks. No one ever survived the tickler's questioning. No man, no woman, no child. The strongest lasted past evenfall. Their bodies were hung beyond the fires for the walls. By the time they marched, Arya knew she was no water dancer. Sirio Pharrell would never have let them knock him down and take his sword away, nor stood by when they killed Lummy Greenhands. Sirio would never have sat silent in that storehouse, nor shuffled along meekly among the other captives. The direwolf was a sigil of the Starks, but Arya felt more a lamb, surrounded by a herd of other sheep. She hated the villagers for their sheepishness almost as much as she hated herself. The Lannisters had taken everything—father, friends, home, hope, courage. One had taken needle, while another had broken her wooden stick-sword over his knee. They had even taken her stupid secret. The storehouse had been big enough for her to creep off and make her water in some corner when there was no one looking, but it was different on the road. She held it as long as she could, but finally she had to squat by a bush and skin down her breeches in front of all of them. It was that, or wet herself. Hot Pie gaped at her with big moon eyes, but no one else even troubled to look. Girl sheep or boy sheep, Sir Gregor and his men did not seem to care. Their captors permitted no chatter. A broken lip taught Arya to hold her tongue. Others never learned at all. One boy of three would not stop calling for his father, so they smashed his face in with a spiked mace. Then the boy's mother started screaming, and Raph the sweetling killed her as well. Arya watched them die and did nothing. What good did it do you to be brave? One of the women 
picked for questioning, had tried to be brave, but she had died screaming like all the rest. There were no brave people on that march, only scared and hungry ones. Most were women and children. The few men were very old or very young. The rest had been chained to that gibbet and left for the wolves and the crows. Gendry was only spared because he admitted to forging the horned helm himself. Smiths, even apprentice smiths, were too valuable to kill. They were being taken to serve Lord Tywin Lannister at Harrenhal, the mountain told them. You're traitors and rebels, so thank your gods that Lord Tywin's given you this chance. It's more than you'd get from the outlaws. Obey, serve, and live. It's not just, it's not, she heard one wizened old woman complain to another when they had bedded down for the night. We never did no treason. The others come in and took what they wanted, same as this bunch. Lord Berwick did us no hurt, though, her friend whispered, and that red priest with him, he paid for all they took. Paid? <laughs> he took two of my chickens and gave me a piece of paper with a mark on it. Can I eat a bit of raggy old paper, I ask you? Will it give me eggs? She looked about to see that no guards were near and spat three times. There's for the Tullys, and there's for the Lannisters, and there's for the Starks. It's a sin and a shame, an old man hissed. When the old king was still alive, he'd not have stood for this. King Robert? Arya asked, forgetting herself. King Ares, God's grace him, the old man said, too loudly. A guard came sauntering over to shut them up. The old man lost both his teeth, and there was no more talk that night. Besides his captives, Sir Gregor was bringing back a dozen pigs, a cage of chickens, a scrawny milk cow, and nine wagons of salt fish. The mountain and his men had horses, but their captives were all afoot and those too weak to keep up were killed out of hand along with anyone foolish enough to flee. The guards took women off into the bushes at night, and most seemed to expect it, and went along meekly enough. One girl, prettier than the others, was made to go with four or five different men every night, until finally she hit one with a rock. Sir Gregor made everyone watch while he took off her head with a sweep of his massive two-handed greatsword. Leave the body for the wolves, he commanded when the deed was done, handing the sword to his squire to be cleaned. Arya glanced sidelong at Needle, sheathed at the hip of a black-bearded, balding man-at-arms called Polliver. It's good that they took it away, she thought. Otherwise she would have tried to stab Sir Gregor, and he would have cut her right in half, and the wolves would eat her too. Polliver was not so bad as some of the others even though he'd stolen Needle. The night she was caught, the Lannister men had been nameless strangers, with faces as alike as their nasal helms. But she had come to know them all. You had to know who was lazy and who was cruel, who was smart and who was stupid. You had to learn that even though the one they call Shitmouth had the foulest tongue she'd ever heard, he'd give you an extra piece of bread if you asked while jolly old Chiswick and soft-spoken Raph would just give you the back of their hand. Arya watched and listened, and polished her hates the way Gendry had once polished his horned helm.
Dunson wore those bull's horns now, and she hated him for it. She hated Polliver for Needle, and she hated old Chiswick, who thought he was funny. And Raff the Sweetling, who'd driven his spear through Lummy's throat, she hated even more. She hated Sir Amory Lorch for Yorin, and she hated Sir Meron Trant for Sirio. The hound for killing the butcher's boy, Micah. And Sir Ilian and Prince Joffrey, and the Queen, for the sake of her father, and Fat Tom, and Desmond and the rest. And even for Lady, Sansa's wolf. The tickler was almost too scary to hate. At times she could almost forget he was still with them. When he was not asking questions, he was just another soldier, quieter than most, with a face like a thousand other men. Every night Arya would say their names. Sir Gregor, she'd whisper to a stone pillow. Dunson, Poliver, Chiswick, Ref the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Amory, Sir Ilian, Sir Merrin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. Back in Winterfell, Arya had prayed with her mother in the Sept, and with her father in the Godswood. But there were no guards on the road to Harrenhal, and her names were the only prayer she cared to remember. Every day they marched, and every night she said her names, until finally the trees thinned and gave way to a patchwork landscape of rolling hills, meandering streams, and sunlit fields, where the husks of burnt holefasts thrust up black as rotten teeth. It was another long day's march before they glimpsed the towers of Harrenhal in the distance, hard beside the blue waters of the lake. It would be better once they got to Harrenhal, the captives told each other, but Arya was not so certain. She remembered old Nan's stories of the castle built on fear. Harren the Black had mixed human blood in the mortar, Nan used to say, dropping her voice so the children would need to lean close to hear. But Aegon's dragons had roasted Harren and all his sons within their great walls of stone. Arya chewed her lip as she walked along on her feet, grown hard with callous. It would not be much longer, she told herself. Those towers could not be more than a few miles off. Yet they walked all that day and most of the next, before at last they reached the fringes of Lord Tywin's army, encamped west of the castle amidst the scorched remains of a town. Harrenhal was deceptive from afar because it was so huge. Its colossal curtain walls rose beside the lake, sheer and sudden as mountain cliffs, while atop their battlements the rows of wood and iron scorpions looked as small as the bugs for which they were named. The stink of the Lannister host reached Arya well before she could make out the devices on the banners that sprouted along the lake shore atop the pavilions of the Westermen. From the smell, Arya could tell that Lord Tywin had been here for some time. The latrines that ringed the encampment were overflowing and swarming with flies, and she saw a faint greenish fuzz on many of the sharpened stakes that protected the perimeters. Harrenhal's gatehouse, itself as large as Winterfell's great keep, was as scarred as it was massive, its stones fissured and discolored. From outside, only the tops of five immense towers could be seen beyond the walls, 
the shortest of them, was half again as tall as the highest tower in Winterfell. But they did not soar the way a proper tower did. Arya thought they looked like some old man's gnarled, knuckly fingers groping after a passing cloud. She remembered Nan telling how the stone had melted and flowed like candle wax down the steps and into the windows, glowing a sullen, searing red as they sought out Harren where he hid. Arya could believe every word. Each tower was more grotesque and misshapen than the last, lumpy and runnelled and cracked. I don't want to go there, Hot Pie squeaked as Harrenhal opened its gates to them. There's ghosts in there. Chiswick heard him, but for once he only smiled. Baker boy is your choice. Come join the ghosts or be one. Hot Pie went in with the rest of them. In the echoing stone and timber bathhouse, the captives were stripped and made to scrub and scrape themselves raw in tubs of scalding hot water. Two fierce old women supervised the process, discussing them as bluntly as if they were newly acquired donkeys. When Arya's turn came round, goodwife Amabel clucked in dismay at the sight of her feet, while goodwife Hara felt the callus on her fingers that long hours of practice with needle had earned her. "'Got those churning butter, I'll wager,' she said. "'Some farmer's whelp, are you?' "'Well, never you mind, girl. You'll have a chance to win a higher place in this world if you work hard. If you won't work hard, you'll be beaten. And what do they call you?' Arya dare not say her true name. But Arya was no good either. It was a boy's name, and they could see she was no boy. Weasel, she said, naming the first girl she could think of. Lommy, call me Weasel. <coughs> I can see why, sniffed goodwife Amabel. That air is a fright, and a nest for lice as well. We'll have it off, and then you're for the kitchens. I'd soon attend the horses. Arya liked horses, and maybe if she was in the stable, she'd be able to steal one and escape. Goodwife Hara slapped her so hard that her swollen lip broke open all over again. And keep that tongue to yourself, or you'll get worse. No one asked your views. The blood in her mouth had a salty metal tang to it. Arya dropped her gaze and said nothing. If I still had needle, she wouldn't dare hit me she thought sullenly. Lord Tywin and his knights have grooms and squires to tend their horses. They don't need the likes of you. Goodwife Amabel said, the kitchens are snug and clean, and there's always a warm fire to sleep by and plenty to eat. You might have done well there, but I can see you're not a clever girl. However, I believe we should give this one to Wheeze. If you think so, Amabel... They gave her a shift of grey rough-spun wool and a pair of ill-fitting shoes and sent her off. Wheeze was understeward for the Wailing Tower. A squat man with a fleshy carbuncle of a nose and a nest of angry red boils near one corner of his plump lips. Arya was one of six sent to him. He looked them all over with a gimlet eye. The Lannisters are generous to those who serve them well, an honour none of your sort deserve. But in war, a man makes do with what's to hand. Work hard, 
and mind your place, and might be one day you'll rise as high as me. If you think to presume on his lordship's kindness, though, you'll find me waiting after my lord has gone, you see. He strutted up and down before them, telling them how they must never look the highborn in the eye, nor speak until spoken to, nor get in his lordship's way. My nose never lies, he boasted. I can smell defiance. I can smell pride. I can smell disobedience. I catch a whiff of any such stinks. You'll answer for it. When I sniff you, all I want to smell is fear. Daenerys On the wars of Karth, men beat gongs to herald her coming, while others blew curious horns that encircled their bodies like great bronze snakes. A column of camelry emerged from the city as her honor guards. The riders wore scaled copper armor and snouted helms with copper tusks and long black silk plumes and sat high on the saddles inlaid with rubies and garnets. Their camels were dressed in blankets of a hundred different hues. Quarth is the greatest city that ever was or ever will be, Pyat Pri had told her back amongst the bones of Vase Taloro. It is the center of the world, the gate between north and south, the bridge between east and west. Ancient beyond memory of man, and so magnificent that Sethas the wise put out his eyes after gazing upon Quarth for the first time, because he knew that all he saw thereafter should look squalid and ugly by comparison. Danny took the warlock's words well salted, but the magnificence of the great city was not to be denied. Three thick walls encircled Karth, elaborately carved. The outer was red sandstone, thirty feet high, and decorated with animals. Snakes slithering, kites flying, fish swimming, intermingled with wolves of the red waste, and striped saucers, and monstrous elephants. The middle wall, forty feet high, was grey granite, alive with scenes of war. The clash of sword and shield and spear arrows in flight, heroes at battle and babes being butchered, pyres of the dead. The innermost wall was fifty feet of black marble with carvings that made Danny blush until she told herself that she was being a fool. She was no maid. If she could look on the grey wall scenes of slaughter, why should she avert her eyes from the sight of men and women giving pleasure to one another? The outer gates were banded with copper, the middle with iron, the innermost was studded with golden eyes. All opened at Danny's approach. As she rode her silver into the city, small children rushed out to scatter flowers in her path. They wore golden sandals and bright paint, no more. All the colors that had been missing from Vase Toloro had found their way to Karth. Buildings crowded about her, fantastical as a fever dream in shades of rose, violet, and umber. She passed under a bronze arch fashioned in the likeness of two snakes mating, 
their scales delicate flakes of jade, obsidian, and lapis lazuli. Slim towers stood taller than any Danny had ever seen, and elaborate fountains filled every square, wrought in the shape of griffins and dragons and manacores. The Carcine lined the streets and watched from delicate balconies that looked too frail to support their weight. They were tall, pale folk in linen and samite and tiger fur, every one a lord or lady to her eyes. The women wore gowns that left one breast bare, while the men favoured beaded silk skirts. Danny felt shabby and barbaric as she rode past them in her lion-skin robe with black drogon on one shoulder. Her Dothraki called the Carthine milkmen for their paleness, and Karl Drogo had dreamed of the day when he might sack the great cities of the East. She glanced at her blood riders, their dark, almond-shaped eyes, giving no hint of their thoughts. Is it only the plunder they see? she wondered. How savage we must seem to these Carthine. Pyat Pri conducted her little calisar down the centre of a great arcade, where the city's ancient heroes stood thrice life-size on columns of white and green marble. They passed through a bazaar in a cavernous building whose lattice-work ceiling was home to a thousand gaily-coloured birds. Trees and flowers bloomed on the terrace walls above the stalls, while below it seemed as if everything the gods had put into the world was for sale. Her silver shied as the merchant prince Zara Zoendaxus rode up to her. The horses could not abide the close presence of camels she had found. If you see here anything you would desire, O most beautiful of women, you have only to speak, and it is yours. Zaro called down from his ornate horn saddle. Carth itself is hers. She has no need of baubles. Blue-lipped Pietri sang out from her other side. It shall be as I promised, Khaleesi. Come with me to the house of the undying, and you shall drink of truth and wisdom. Why should she need your palace of dust, when I can give her sunlight and sweet water and silks to sleep in? Zaro said to the warlock. The thirteen shall set a crown of black jade and fire opals upon her lovely head. The only palace I desire is the red castle at King's Landing, my lord Pyatt. Danny was wary of the warlock. The Meiji, Miramazdur, had soured her on those who played at sorcery. And if the great at Karth would give me gifts, Zaro, let them give me ships and swords to win back what is rightfully mine. Pyatt's blue lips curled upward in a gracious smile. It shall be as you command, Calissi. He moved away, swaying with his camel's motion, his long-beaded robes trailing behind. The young queen is wise beyond her years. Zaro Zoendaxus murmured down at her from his high saddle. There is a saying in Karth. A warlock's house is built of bones and lies. Then why do men lower their voices when they speak of the warlocks of Karth? All across the east, their power and wisdom are revered. Once they were mighty, Zaro agreed, 
but now they are as ludicrous as those feeble old soldiers who boast of their prowess long after strength and skill have left them. They read their crumbling scrolls, drink shade of the evening until their lips turn blue and hint of dread powers, but they are hollow husks compared to those who went before. Piet Pri's gifts will turn to dust in your hands, I warn you. He gave his camel a lick of his whip and sped away. The crow calls a raven black, muttered Sir Jorah in the common tongue of Westeros. The exile knight rode at her right hand as ever. For the entrance into Carth he had put away his Dothraki garb and donned again the plate and mail and wool of the seven kingdoms half a world away. You would do well to avoid both those men, Your Grace. Those men will help me to my crown, she said. Zara has vast wealth, and Piat Pri pretends to power, the knight said brusquely. On his dark green surcoat, the bear of House Mormont stood on its hind legs, black and fierce. Jara looked no less ferocious as he scowled at the crowd that filled the bazaar. I would not linger here long, my queen. I mislike the very smell of this place. Danny smiled. Perhaps it's the camels you're smelling. The Carthine themselves seem sweet enough to my nose. Sweet smells are sometimes used to cover foul ones. My great bear, Danny thought, I am his queen, but I will always be his cub as well, and he will always guard me. It made her feel safe but sad as well. She wished she could love him better than she did. Zarozo and Daxus had offered Danny the hospitality of his home while she was in the city. She had expected something grand. She had not expected a palace larger than many a market town. It makes Magister Illyria's manse in Pentos look like a swineherd's hovel, she thought. Zaro swore that his home could comfortably house all her people and their horses besides. Indeed, it swallowed them. An entire wing was given over to her. She would have her own gardens, a marble bathing pool, a scrying tower, and warlock's maze. Slaves would tend her every need. In her private chambers, the floors were green marble, the walls draped with colorful silk hangings that shimmered with every breath of air. You are too generous, she told Zarozo and Daxus. For the mother of dragons, no gift is too great. Zaro was a languid, elegant man with a bald head and a great beak of a nose, crusted with rubies, opals, and flakes of jade. On the morrow you shall feast upon peacock and lark's tongue and hear music worthy of the most beautiful of women. The Thirteen will come to do you homage, and all the great of Carth. All the great of Carth will come to see my dragons, Danny thought. Yet she thanked Zaro for his kindness before she sent him on his way. Piat Pri took his leave as well, vowing to petition the Undying Ones for an audience. An honor rare as summer snows. Before he left... He kissed her bare feet with his pale blue lips and pressed on her a gift, a jar of ointment that he swore would let her see the spirits of the air. Last of the three seekers to depart was Quaith, the shadowbinder. 
From her, Danny received only a warning. Beware, the woman in the red lacquer mask said. Of whom? Of all. They shall come day and night to see the wonder that has been born again into the world, and when they see, they shall lust, for dragons are fire made flesh, and fire is power. When Quaith too was gone, Sir Jorah said, She speaks truly, my queen, though I like her no more than the others. I do not understand her. Pyat and Zaro had showered Danny with promises from the moment they first glimpsed her dragons, declaring themselves her loyal servants in all things. But from Quaith she had gotten only the rare, cryptic word, and it disturbed her that she had never seen the woman's face. Remember Midomar's door, she told herself. Remember treachery. She turned to her blood riders. We will keep our own watch so long as we are here. See that no one enters this wing of the palace without my leave, and take care that the dragons are always well guarded. It shall be done, Khaleesi, Ego said. We have seen only the parts of Karth that Pyat Prees wished us to see, she went on. Rakaro, go forth and look on the rest, and tell me what you find. Take good men with you, and women, to go places where men are forbidden. As you say, I do, blood of my blood, said Rakaro. Sir Jorah, find the docks, and see what manner of ships lay at anchor. It's been half a year since I heard tidings from the Seven Kingdoms. Perhaps the gods will have blown some good captain here from Westeros with a ship to carry us home. The knight frowned. That would be no kindness. The usurper will kill you, sure as sunrise. Mormon hooked his thumbs through his sword belt. My place is here, at your side. Jogo can guard me as well. You have more languages than my blood riders, and the Dothraki must trust the sea and those who sail her. Only you can serve me in this. Go among the ships and speak to the crews. Learn where they are from and where they are bound and what manner of men command them. Reluctantly, the exile nodded. As you say, my queen. When all the men had gone, her handmaids stripped off the travel-stained silk she wore, and Danny padded out to where the marble pool sat in the shade of a portico. The water was deliciously cool, and the pool was stocked with tiny golden fish that nibbled curiously at her skin and made her giggle. It felt good to close her eyes and float, knowing she could rest as long as she liked. She wondered whether Aegon's Red Keep had a pool like this, and fragrant gardens full of lavender and mint. It must, surely. Viserys always said that the Seven Kingdoms were more beautiful than any other place in the world. The thought of home disquieted her. If her sun and stars had lived, he would have led his calisar across the poison water and swept away her enemies. But his strength had left the world. Her blood riders remained, sworn to her for life and skilled in slaughter, but only in the ways of horse lords. The Dothraki sacked cities and plundered kingdoms. They did not rule them. Danny had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts. She had supped enough on tears. I want to make my kingdom 
beautiful, to fill it with fat men and pretty maids and laughing children. I want my people to smile when they see me ride by, the way Viserys said they smile for my father. But before she could do that, she must conquer. The usurper will kill you, sure as sunrise, Mormont had said. Robert had slain her gallant brother Rhaegar, and one of his creatures had crossed the Dothraki Sea to poison her and her unborn son. They said Robert Baratheon was strong as a bull and fearless in battle, a man who loved nothing better than war. And with him stood the great lords her brother had named the Usurper's Dogs, cold-eyed Eddard Stark with his frozen heart, and the Golden Lannisters, father and son, so rich, so powerful, so treacherous. How could she hope to overthrow such men? When Karl Drogo had lived, men trembled and made him gifts to stay his wrath. If they did not, he took their cities, wealth and wives, and all. But his calisar had been vast, while hers was meagre. Her people had followed her across the red waste as she chased her comet, and would follow her across the poison water too, but they would not be enough. Even her dragons might not be enough. Viserys had believed that the realm would rise for its rightful king. But Viserys had been a fool, and fools believe in foolish things. Her doubts made her shiver. Suddenly the water felt cold to her, and the little fish prickling at her skin annoying. Danny stood and climbed from the pool. Irie, she called. Jiqui. As the handmaids toweled her dry and wrapped her in a sand-silk robe, Danny's thoughts went to the three who had sought her out in the City of Bones. The bleeding star has led me to Karth for a purpose. Here I will find what I need, if I have the strength to take what is offered, and the wisdom to avoid the traps and snares. If the gods mean for me to conquer, they will provide, they will send me a sign, and if not, if not... It was near evenfall, and Danny was feeding her dragons when Iria stepped through the silken curtains to tell her that Sir Jorah had returned from the docks, and not alone. "'Send him in, with whomever he has brought,' she said, curious. When they entered, she was seated on a mound of cushions, her dragons all about her. The man he brought with him wore a cloak of green and yellow feathers, and had skin as black as polished jet.' "'Your Grace,' the knight said, "'I bring you Kahuro Mo, a captain of the Cinnamon Wind, out of Tall Trees Town.' The black man knelt. "'I am a greatly honoured, my queen,' he said, not in the tongue of the Summer Isles, which Danny did not know, but in the liquid valerian of the Nine Free Cities. "'The honour's mine, Kahuro Mo,' said Danny in the same language. "'Have you come from the Summer Isles?' That is a so, your grace, but before not half a year passed, we call it Old Town. From there I bring you a wondrous gift. A gift? A gift of news. Dragon Mother Stormborn. I tell you true, Robert Baratheon is dead. Outside her walls, dusk was settling over Carth, but a sun had risen in Danny's heart. Dead? she repeated. In her lap, Black Drogon hissed. 
and pale smoke rose before her face like a veil. You are certain the usurper is dead? So it is said in Old Town, and Dorn, and Lice, and all the other ports where we have called. He sent me poison wine, yet I live, and he is gone. What was the manner of his death? On her shoulder, pale Viserion flapped wings the colour of cream, stirring the air. Torn by a monstrous boar whilst hunting in his kingswood, or so I hear in Old Town. Others say his queen betrayed him, or his brother, or Lord Stark, who was his hand. Yet all the tales agree in this. King Robert is a dead, and in his grave. Danny had never looked upon the usurper's face, yet seldom a day had passed when she had not thought of him. His great shadow had lain across her since the hour of her birth, when she came forth amidst blood and storm into a world where she no longer had a place. And now this ebony stranger had lifted that shadow. "'The boy sits the iron throne now,' Sir Jorah said. "'King Joffrey reigns,' Cahoromo agreed. "'But the Lannisters rule, eh? "'Robert's brothers have fled King's Landing. "'The talk is they mean to claim the crown. "'And the hand has fallen. "'Lord Stark, who was King Robert's friend, "'he has been seized for treason. "'Ned Stark, a traitor!' <laughs> Sir Jorah snorted. Not bloody likely. The long summer will come again before that one would besmirch his precious honour. What honour could he have, Danny said? He was a traitor to his true king, as were these Lannisters. It pleased her to hear that the usurper's dogs were fighting amongst themselves, though she was unsurprised. The same thing happened when her Drogo died, and his great Kalasar tore itself to pieces. My brother is dead as well, Viserys, who was the true king, she told the summer islander. Carl Drogo, my lord husband, killed him with a crown of molten gold. Would her brother have been any wiser had he known that the vengeance he had prayed for was so close at hand? Then I agree for you, dragon mother, and for bleeding Westeros, bereft of its rightful king. Beneath Danny's gentle fingers, Green Rhaegal stared at the stranger with eyes of molten gold. When his mouth opened, his teeth gleamed like black needles. When does your ship return to Westeros, Captain? Not for a year or more, I fear. From here, the cinnamon wind sails east to make the trader circle round the Jade Sea. I see, said Danny, disappointed. I wish you fair winds and good trading them. You have brought me a precious gift. I have been amply repaid, the great queen. She puzzled at that. How so? His eyes gleamed. I have seen dragons. Danny laughed. And we'll see more of them one day, I hope. Come to me in King's Landing when I am on my father's throne, and you shall have a great reward. The summer islander promised he would do so, and kissed her lightly on the fingers as he took his leave. Jiqui showed him out, while Sir Jorah Mormont remained. Khaleesi, the knight said, when they were alone, I should not speak so freely of your plans, if I were you. 
This man will spread the tale wherever he goes now. Let him, she said. Let the whole world know my purpose. The usurper is dead. What does it matter? Not every sailor's tale is true, Sir Jorah cautioned. And even if Robert be truly dead, his son rules in his place. This changes nothing, truly. This changes everything. Danny rose abruptly. Screeching, her dragons uncoiled and spread their wings. Drogon flapped and clawed up to the lintel above the archway. The others skittered across the floor, wingtips scrabbling on the marble. Before, the Seven Kingdoms were like my Drogo's Kalasar, a hundred thousand made as one by his strength. Now they fly to pieces, even as the Kalasar did, after my Karl lay dead. The High Lords have always fought. Tell me who's won, and I'll tell you what it means. Khaleesi, the Seven Kingdoms are not going to fall into your hands like so many ripe peaches. You will need a fleet, gold, armies, alliances. All this I know. She took his hands in hers and looked up into his dark, suspicious eyes. Sometimes he thinks of me as a child he must protect. Sometimes as a woman he would like to bed. But does he ever truly see me as his queen? I am not the frightened girl you met in Pentos. I have counted only fifteen name days true. But I am as old as the crones in the Dosh Colleen and as young as my dragons, Jorah. I have borne a child, burned a carl, and crossed the Red Waste and the Dothraki Sea. Mine is the blood of the dragon. As was your brother's, he said stubbornly. I am not Viserys. No, he admitted. There is more of Rhaegar in you, I think. But even Rhaegar could be slain. Robert proved that on the Trident, with no more than a warhammer. Even dragons can die. Dragons die. She stood on her toes to kiss him lightly on an unshaven cheek. But so do dragon slayers. Bran Mira moved in a wary circle, her net dangling loose in her left hand, the slender three-pronged frog-spear poised in her right. Summer followed her with his golden eyes, turning, his tail held stiff and tall, watching, watching. Yahish! the girl shouted, the spear darting out. The wolf slid to his left and leapt before she could draw back the spear. Mira cast her net, the tangles unfolding in the air before her. Summer's leap carried him into it. He dragged it with him as he slammed into her chest and knocked her over backward. Her spear went spinning away. The damp grass cushioned her fall, but the breath went out of her with a whoosh. The wolf crouched atop her. Bran hooted. You lose. She wins, her brother Jojen said. Summer snared. He was right, Bransor. Thrashing and growling at the net, trying to rip free, Summer was only ensnaring himself worse. Nor could he bite through. Let him out. Laughing, the reed girl threw her arms around the tangled wolf and rolled them both. Summer gave a piteous whine, his legs kicking against the cords that bound them. 
Mira knelt, undid a twist, pulled at a corner, tugged deftly here and there, and suddenly the direwolf was bounding free. Summer, to me! Bran spread his arms. Watch, he said, an instant before the wolf bowled into him. He clung with all his strength as the wolf dragged him bumping through the grass. They wrestled and rolled and clung to each other, one snarling and yapping, the other laughing. In the end it was Bran, sprawled on top, the mud-spattered direwolf under him. "'Good wolf!' he panted. Summer licked him across the ear. Mira shook her head. "'Does he never grow angry?' "'Not with me.' Bran grabbed the wolf by his ears, and Summer snapped at him fiercely. But it was all in play. "'Sometimes he tears my garb, but he's never drawn blood.' "'Your blood, you mean. If he'd gotten past my net—' He wouldn't have hurt you. He knows I like you. All of the other lords and knights had departed within a day or two of the harvest feast, but the reeds had stayed on to become Bran's constant companions. Jojen were so solemn that old Nan called him Little Grandfather, but Mira reminded Bran of his sister, Arya. She wasn't scared to get dirty, and she could run and fight and throw as good as a boy. She was older than Arya, though, almost sixteen, a woman grown. They were both older than Bran, even though his ninth name day had finally come and gone, but they never treated him like a child. "'I wish you were our wards instead of the Walders,' he began to struggle towards the nearest tree. His dragging and wriggling was unseemly to watch, but when Mira moved to lift him, he said, "'No, don't help me.' He rolled clumsily, and pushed and squirmed backwards, using the strength of his arms, until he was sitting with his back to the trunk of a tall ash. See, I told you. Summer lay down, with his head in Bran's lap. I never knew anyone who fought with a net before, he told Mira, while he scratched the dire wolf between the ears. Did your master-at-arms teach you net-fighting? My father taught me. We have no knights at Greywater, no master-at-arms, and no maester. Who keeps your ravens? She smiled. Ravens can't find Greywater watch no more than our enemies can. Why not? Because it moves, she told him. Brennan never heard of a moving castle before. He looked at her uncertainly, but he couldn't tell whether she was teasing him or not. I wish I could see it. Do you think your Lord Father would let me come visit when the war is over? You would be most welcome, my prince, then or now. Now? Bran had spent his whole life at Winterfell. He yearned to see far places. I could ask Sir Roderick when he returns. The old knight was off east, trying to set to rights the trouble there. Roose Bolton's bastard had started it by seizing Lady Hornwood as she returned from the harvest feast, marrying her that very night, even though he was young enough to be her son. Then Lord Manley had taken her castle, to protect the Hornwood holdings from the Boltons, he had written. But Sir Roderick had been almost as angry with him as with the bastard. Sir Roderick might let me go. Maester Lewin never would. Sitting cross-legged under the weir tree, Jojen Reed regarded him solemnly. It would be good if you left Winterfell, Bran. It would? Yes, and sooner rather than later. My brother has the green sight, said Mira. 
He dreams things that haven't happened, but sometimes they do. There is no sometimes, Mira. A look passed between them. Him sad, her defiant. Tell me what's going to happen, Bran said. I will, said Jojen, if you tell me about your dreams. The guard's word grew quiet. Bran could hear leaves rustling and Hodor's distant splashing from the hot pools. He thought of the golden man and the three-eyed crow, remembered the crunch of bones between his jaws and the cuppery taste of blood. I don't have dreams. Maester Lewin gives me sleeping draughts. Do they help? Sometimes. Mira said, All of Winterfell knows you wake at night, shouting and sweating, Bran. The women talk of it at the well, and the guards in their hall. Tell us what frightened you so much, said Jojen. I don't want to. Anyway, it's only dreams. Maester Lewin says dreams might mean anything or nothing. My brother dreams as other boys do, and those dreams might mean anything, Mira said. But the green dreams are different. Jojen's eyes were the color of moss, and sometimes when he looked at you, he seemed to be seeing something else, like now. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth with grey stone chains, he said. It was a green dream, so I know it was true. A crow was trying to peck through the chains, but the stone was too hard, and his beak could only chip at them. Did the crow have three eyes? Jojen nodded. Summer raised his head from Bran's lap and gazed at the mudman with his dark golden eyes. When I was little, I almost died of grey water fever. That was when the crow came to me. He came to me after I fell, Bran blurted. I was asleep for a long time. He said I had to fly or die, and I woke up, only I was broken, and I couldn't fly after all. You can if you want to. Picking up her net, Mira shook out the last tangles and began arranging it in loose folds. You are the winged wolf, Bran, said Jojen. I wasn't sure when we first came, but now I am. The crow sent us here to break your chains. Is the crow at Greywater? No, the crow is in the north. At the wall? Brandon always wanted to see the wall. His bastard brother John was there now, a man of the night's watch. Beyond the wall, Mira Reed hung the net from her belt. When Jojen told our Lord Father what he dreamed, he sent us to Winterfell. How would I break the chains, Jojen? Bran asked. Open your eye. They are open. Can't you see? Two are open, Jojen pointed. One, two. I only have two. You have three. The crow gave you the third. But you will not open it. He had a slow, soft way of speaking. With two eyes, you see my face. With three... You could see my heart. With two, you can see that oak tree there. With three, you could see the acorn the oak grew from, and the stump that it will one day become. With two, you can see no further than your walls. With three, you would gaze south to the summer sea and north beyond the wall. 
Summer got to his feet. I don't need to see so far. Bren made a nervous smile. I I'm tired of talking about crows. Let's talk about wolves. Or lizard lions. Have you ever hunted one, Mira? We don't have them here. Mira plucked her frog spear out of the bushes. They live in the water, in slow streams and deep swamps. Her brother interrupted. Did you dream of a lizard lion? No, said Bran. I, I told you, I don't want... Did you dream of a wolf? He was making Bran angry. I don't have to tell you my dreams. I'm the prince. I'm the Stark in Winterfell. Was it summer? You be quiet. The night of the harvest feast. You dreamed you were summer in the God's Wood, didn't you? Stop it, Bran shouted. Summer slid toward the weirwood, his white teeth bared. Jojen Reed took no mind. When I touched Summer, I felt you in him, just as you are in him now. You couldn't have. I was in bed. I was sleeping. You were in the guard's wood, all in grey. It was only a bad dream. Jojen stood. I felt you. I felt you fall. Is that what scares you, the falling? The falling, Bran thought, and the golden man, the queen's brother. He scares me too, but mostly the falling. He did not say it, though. How could he? He had not been able to tell Sir Roderick or Maester Lewin, and he could not tell the reeds either. If he didn't talk about it, maybe he would forget. He had never wanted to remember. It might not even be a true remembering. Do you fall every night, Bran? Jojen asked quietly. A low, rumbling growl rose from Summer's throat, and there was no play in it. He stalked forward, all teeth and hot eyes. Mira stepped between the wolf and her brother, spear in hand. Keep him back, Bran. Jojen is making him angry. Mira shook out her net. It's your anger, Bran, her brother said. Your fear. It isn't. I'm not a wolf. Yet he'd howled with them in the night and tasted blood in his wolf dreams. Part of you is summer, and part of summer is you. You know that, Bran. Summer rushed forward, but Mira blocked him, jabbing with a three-pronged spear. The wolf twisted aside, circling, stalking. Mira turned to face him. Call him back, Bran. Summer? Bran shouted, To me, Summer! He slapped an open palm down on the meat of his thigh. His hand tingled, though his dead leg felt nothing. The dire wolf lunged again, and again Mira's spear darted out. Summer dodged, circling back. The bushes rustled, and a lean black shape came padding from behind the weirwood, teeth bared. The scent was strong. His brother had smelled his rage. Bran felt hairs rise on the back of his neck. Mira stood beside her brother, with wolves to either side. Bran, call them off. I can't. Jojen, up the tree. There's no need. Today is not the day I die. Do it, she screamed, and her brother scrambled up the trunk of the weirwood, using the face for his handholds. The dire wolves closed. 
Mira abandoned Spear and Net jumped up and grabbed the branch above her head. Shaggy's jaw snapped shut beneath her ankle as she swung up and over the limb. Summer sat back on his haunches and howled, while Shaggy Dog worried the net, shaking it in his teeth. Only then did Bran remember that they were not alone. He cupped his hands around his mouth. Hodor, he shouted. Hodor! Hodor! He was badly frightened and somehow ashamed. They won't hurt Hodor, he assured his treed friends. A few moments passed before they heard a tuneless humming. Hodor arrived, half-dressed and mud-spattered from his visit to the hot pools. But Bran had never been so glad to see him. Hodor, help me. Chase off the wolves. Chase them off. Hodor went to it gleefully, waving his arms and stamping his huge feet, shouting, Hodor! Hodor! running first at one wolf and then the other. Shaggy Dog was the first to flee, slinking back into the foliage with a final snarl. When Summer had enough, he came back to Bran and lay down beside him. No sooner did Mira touch ground than she snatched up her spear and net again. Jojen never took his eyes off Summer. "'We will talk again,' he promised Bran. "'It was the wolves. It wasn't me.' He did not understand why they'd gotten so wild. Maybe Maester Lewin was right to lock them in the guard's wood. Hodor, he said, bring me to Maester Lewin. The Maester's turret below the rookery was one of Bran's favorite places. Lewin was hopelessly untidy, but his clutter of books and scrolls and bottles was as familiar and comforting to Bran as his bald spot and the flapping sleeves of his loose grey robes. He liked the ravens, too. He found Lewin perched on a high stool, writing. With Sir Roderick gone, all the governance of the castle had fallen on his shoulders. "'My prince,' he said when Hodor entered, "'you're early for lessons today.' The maester spent several hours every afternoon tutoring Bran, Rickon, and the Walder Freys. Hodor, stand still. Bran grasped a wall sconce with both hands and used it to pull himself up and out of the basket. He hung for a moment by his arms until Hodor carried him to a chair. Mira says her brother has the green sight. Maester Lewin scratched at the side of his nose with his writing quill. Does she now? He nodded. You told me that the children of the forest had the green sight, I remember. Some came to have that power. Their wise men were called green seers. Was it magic? We'll call it that, for want of a better word, if you must. At heart, it was only a different sort of knowledge. What was it? Lewin set down his quill. No one truly knows, Bren. The children are gone from the world, and their wisdom with them. It had to do with the faces in the trees, we think. The first men believed that the green seers could see through the eyes of the weirwoods. That was why they cut down the trees whenever they warred upon the children. Supposedly, the green seers also had power over the beasts of the wood and the birds in the trees.
even fish. Does the reed boy claim such powers? No, I don't think, but he has dreams that come true sometimes, Mira says. Well, all of us have dreams that come true sometimes. You dreamed of your Lord Father in the crypts before we knew he was dead, remember? Rickon did, too. We dream the same dream. Call it green sight, if you wish. But remember as well all those tens of thousands of dreams that you and Rickon have dreamed that did not come true. Do you perchance recall what I taught you about the chain collar that every maester wears? Brand thought for a moment, trying to remember. A maester forges his chain in the citadel of Old Town. It's a chain because you swear to serve, and it's made of different metals because you serve the realm, and the realm has different sorts of people. Every time you learn something, you get another link. Black iron is for ravenry, silver for healing, gold for sums and numbers. Um, I don't remember them all. Lewin slid a finger up under his collar and began to turn it inch by inch. He had a thick neck for a small man, and the chain was tight, but a few pulls had it all the way round. This is valerian steel, he said, when the link of dark grey metal lay against the apple of his throat. Only one maester in a hundred wears such a link. This signifies that I have studied what the Citadel calls the higher mysteries. Magic, for want of a better word. A fascinating pursuit, but of small use, which is why so few maesters trouble themselves with it. All those who study the higher mysteries try their own hand at spells, soon or late. I yielded to the temptation, too, I must confess it, when I was a boy. And what boy does not secretly wish to find hidden powers in himself? I got no more for my efforts than a thousand boys before me, and a thousand since. Sad to say, magic does not work. Sometimes it does, Bran protested. I had that dream, and Rickon did too, and there are mages and warlocks in the East. There are men who call themselves mages and warlocks, Maester Lewin said. I heard a friend at the Citadel who could pull a rose out of your ear, but he was no more magical than I was. Oh, to be sure, there is much we do not understand. The years pass in their hundreds and their thousands. And what does any man see of life but a few summers, a few winters? We look at mountains and call them eternal, and so they seem. But in the course of time, mountains rise and fall, Rivers change their courses, stars fall from the sky, and great cities sink beneath the sea. Even guards die, we think. Everything changes. Perhaps magic was once a mighty force in the world, but no longer. What little remains is no more than the wisp of smoke that lingers in the air after a great fire has burned out. And even that is fading. Valeria was the last ember, and Valeria is gone. The dragons are no more, the giants are dead, 
the children of the forest forgotten, with all their lore. No, my prince, Jojen Reed may have had a dream or two that he believes came true, but he does not have the green sight. No living man has that power. Bran said as much to Mira Reed when she came to him at dusk, as he sat in his window seat, watching the lights flicker to life. I'm sorry for what happened with the wolves. Summer shouldn't have tried to hurt Jojen, but Jojen shouldn't have said all that about my dreams. The crow lied when he said I could fly, and your brother lied too. Or perhaps your maester is wrong. Oh, he isn't. Even my father relied on his counsel. Your father listened, I have no doubt, but in the end he decided for himself. Bran, will you let me tell you about a dream Jojen dreamed of you and your fustling brothers? The Walders aren't my brothers. She paid that no heed. You were sitting at supper, but instead of a servant, Maester Lewin brought you your food. He served you the king's cut off the roast, the meat rare and bloody, but with a savoury smell that made everyone's mouth water. The meat he served, the phrase, was old and grey and dead, yet they liked their supper better than you like yours. I don't understand. You will, my brother says. When you do, we'll talk again. Bran was almost afraid to sit to supper that night, but when he did, it was pigeon pie they set before him. Everyone else was served the same, and he couldn't see that anything was wrong with the food they served the Walders. Maester Lewin has the truth of it, he told himself. Nothing bad was coming to Winterfell, no matter what Jojen said. Bran was relieved, but disappointed too. So long as there was magic, anything could happen. Ghosts could walk, trees could talk, and broken boys could grow up to be knights. But there isn't, he said aloud, in the darkness of his bed. There's no magic, and the stories are just stories. And he would never walk, nor fly, nor be a knight. Tyrion. The rushes were scratchy under the soles of his bare feet. My cousin chooses a queer hour to come visiting, Tyrion told a sleep-befuddled Podrick Payne, who doubtless expected to be well roasted for waking him. See him to my solar, and tell him I'll be down shortly. It was well past midnight, he judged, from the black outside the window. Does Lancel think to find me drowsy and slow of wit at this hour? he wondered. No, Lancel scarce thinks at all. This is Cersei's doing. His sister would be disappointed. Even abed, he worked well into the morning, reading by the flickering light of a candle, scrutinizing the reports of Vari's whisperers, and poring over Littlefinger's books of accounts until the columns blurred and his eyes ached. He splashed some tepid water on his face from the basin beside his bed and took his time squatting in the guardrobe, the night air cold on his bare skin. Sir Lancel was sixteen and not known for his patience. Let him wait, 
and grow more anxious in the waiting. When his bowels were empty, Tyrion slipped on a bedrobe and roughed his thin flaxen hair with his fingers, all the more to look as if he had been awakened from sleep. Lancel was pacing before the ashes of the hearth, garbed in slashed red velvet with black silk undersleeves, a jeweled dagger and gilded scabbard hanging from his sword belt. Cousin, Tyrion greeted him. Your visits are too few. To what do I owe this undeserved pleasure? Her Grace the Queen Regent has sent me to command you to release Grand Maester Pycelle. Sir Lancel showed Tyrion a crimson ribbon bearing Cersei's lion seal impressed in golden wax. Here is her warrant. So it is. Tyrion waved it away. I hope my sister is not overtaxing her strength so soon after her illness. It would be a great pity if she were to suffer a relapse. Her grace is quite recovered, Sir Lancel said curtly. Music to my ears, though not a tune I fond of. I should have given her a larger dose. Tyrion had hoped for a few more days without Cersei's interference, but he was not too terribly surprised by her return to health. She was Jamie's twin, after all. He made himself smile pleasantly. Pod, build us a fire. The air is too chilly for my taste. Will you take a cup with me, Lancel? I find that mulled wine helps me sleep. I need no help sleeping, Sir Lancel said. I am come at Her Grace's behest, not to drink with you, imp. Knighthood had made the boy bolder, Tyrion reflected, that and the sorry part he had played in murdering King Robert. Wine does have its dangers, he smiled as he poured. As to Grand Maester Pycelle, if my sweet sister is so concerned for him, I would have thought she'd come herself. Instead, she sends you. What am I to make of that? Make of it what you will, so long as you release your prisoner. The Grand Maester is a staunch friend to the Queen Regent, and under her personal protection. A hint of a sneer played about the lad's lips. He was enjoying this. He takes his lessons from Cersei. Her Grace will never consent to this outrage. She reminds you that she is Joffrey's regent, as I am Joffrey's hand. The hand serves, the young knight informed him airily. The regent rules until the king is of age. Perhaps you ought to write that down so I'll remember it better. The fire was crackling merrily. You may leave us, Pud, Tyrion told his squire. Only when the boy was gone did he turn back to Lancel. There is more. Yes, Her Grace bids me inform you that Sir Jaslyn Bywater defied a command issued in the King's own name. Which means that Cersei has already ordered Bywater to release Pycelle and has been rebuffed. I see. She insists that the man be removed from his office and placed under arrest for treason. I warn you. He set aside his wine cup. I'll hear no warnings from you, boy. Sir, Lancel said stiffly. He touched his sword, perhaps to remind Tyrion that he wore one. Have a care how you speak to me, imp. 
Doubtless he meant to sound threatening, but that absurd wisp of a moustache ruined the effect. Oh, unhand your sword. One cry for me, and Shagger will burst in and kill you. With an axe, not a wineskin. Lancel reddened. Was he such a fool as to believe his part in Robert's death had gone unnoted? I am a knight. So I've noted. Tell me, did Cersei have you knighted before or after she took you into her bed? The flicker in Lancel's green eyes was all the admission Tyrion needed. So Varys told it true. Well, no one can ever claim that my sister does not love her family. What? Nothing to say? No more warnings for me, sir? You will withdraw these filthy accusations, or— Please, have you given any thought to what Joffrey will do when I tell him you murdered his father to bed his mother? It was not like that, Lancel protested, horrified. No? What was it like, pray? The Queen gave me the strong wine. Your own father, Lord Tywin, when I was named the King's Squire, he told me to obey her in everything. Did he tell you to fuck her too? Look at him. Not quite so tall, his features not so fine, and his hair is sand instead of spun gold. Yet still, even a poor copy of Jamie is sweeter than an empty bed, I suppose. No, I thought not. I never meant. I only did as I was bid. I hated every second of it. Is that what you would have me believe? A high place at court, knighthood, my sister's legs opening for you at night? Oh, yes, it must have been terrible for you. Tyrion pushed himself to his feet. Wait here. His grace will want to hear of this. The defiance went from Lancel all at once. The young knight fell to his knees, a frightened boy. Mercy, my lord, I beg you. Save it for Joffrey. He likes a good bag. My lord, it was your sister's bidding, the queen, as you said. But his grace, he'd never understand. Would you have me keep the truce from the king? For my father's sake, I'll, I'll leave the city. It will be as if it never happened. I, I swear, I, I will end it. It was hard not to laugh. I think not. Now the lad looked lost. My, my lord, you heard me. My father told you to obey my sister very well. Obey her. Stay close to her side. Keep her trust. Pleasure her as often as she requires it. No one need ever know, so long as you keep faith with me. I want to know what Cersei is doing. Where she goes, who she sees, what they talk of, what plan she is hatching, all. And you will be the one to tell me, won't you? Yes, my lord, Lancel spoke without a moment's hesitation. Tyrion liked that. I will, I, I swear it, as you command. Rise. Tyrion filled the second cup and pressed it on him. Drink to our understanding. I promise there are no boars in the castle that I know of. Lancel lifted the cup and drank, albeit stiffly. Smile, cousin. My sister's a beautiful woman. 
and it's all for the good of the realm. You could do well out of this. Knighthood is nothing. If you're clever, you'll have a lordship from me before you're done. Tyrion swirled the wine in his cup. We want Cersei to have every faith in you. Go back and tell her. I beg her forgiveness. Tell her that you frightened me, that I want no conflict between us, that henceforth I shall do nothing without her consent. But her demands. Oh, I'll give her Pycelle. You will? Lancel seemed astonished. Tyrion smiled. I'll release him on the morrow. I could swear that I hadn't armed a hair on his head, but it wouldn't be strictly true. In any case, he's well enough, though I won't vouch for his vigour. The black cells are not a healthy place for a man his age. Cersei can keep him as a pet, or send him to the wall, I don't care which. But I won't have him on the council. And Sir Jasmine, tell my sister you believe you can win him away from me, given time. That ought to content her for a while. As you say, Lancel finished his wine. One last thing. With King Robert dead, it would be most embarrassing should his grieving widow suddenly grow great with child. My lord, I... We... The queen has commanded me not to... Uh... His ears had turned Lannister crimson. I spill my seed on her belly, my lord. Oh, a lovely belly, I have no doubt. Moisten it as often as you wish. But see that your dew falls nowhere else. I want no more nephews. Is that clear? Sir Lancel made a stiff brow and took his leave. Tyrion allowed himself a moment to feel sorry for the boy. Another fool, and a weakling as well. But he does not deserve what Cersei and I are doing to him. It was a kindness that his uncle Kevin had two other sons. This one was unlikely to live out the year. Cersei would have him killed out of hand if she learned he was betraying her, and if by some grace of the gods she did not, Lancel would never survive the day Jamie Lannister returned to King's Landing. The only question would be whether Jamie cut him down in jealous rage, or Cersei murdered him first to keep Jamie from finding out. Tyrion Silver was on Cersei. A restlessness was on him, and Tyrion felt full well he would not get back to sleep tonight. Not here, in any case. He found Podrick Payne asleep in a chair outside the door of his solar, and shook him by the shoulder. Summon Brun, and then run down to the stable and have two horses saddled. The squire's eyes were cloudy with sleep. Horses? Those big brown animals that love apples— I'm sure you've seen them. Four legs and a tail. But Brun first. The sellsword was not long in appearing. Who pissed in your soup? He demanded. Cersei as ever. You'd think I'd be used to the taste by now, but never mind. My gentle sister seems to have mistaken me for Ned Stark. I hear he was taller. Not after Joff took off his head. You ought to have dressed more warmly. The night is chill. Are we going somewhere? Are all sellswords as clever as you? The city streets were dangerous. 
but with Bronn beside him, Tyrion felt safe enough. The guards let him out of a postern gate in the north wall, and they rode down a shadow-black lane to the foot of Aegon's high hill, and thence to Pig Run Alley, past rows of shuttered windows and tall timber and stone buildings whose upper stories leaned out so far over the street they almost kissed. The moon seemed to follow them as they went, playing peak and sneak among the chimneys. They encountered no one but a lone old crone carrying a dead cat by the tail. She gave them a fearful look, as if she were afraid they might try to steal her dinner, and slunk off into the shadows without a word. Tyrion reflected on the men who had been hanged before him, who had proved no match for his sister's wiles. How could they be, men like that, too honest to live, too noble to shit? Cersei devours such fools every morning when she breaks her fast. The only way to defeat my sister is to play her own game, and that was something the Lord Stark and Aaron would never do. Small wonder that both of them were dead, while Tyrion had never felt more alive. His stunted legs might make him a comic grotesque at a harvest ball, but this dance he knew. Despite the hour, the brothel was crowded. Chatea greeted them pleasantly and escorted them to the common room. Bronn went upstairs with a dark-eyed girl from dawn, but Alayaya was busy entertaining. She will be so pleased to know you've come, said Chatea. I will see that the turret room is made ready for you. Will my lord take a cup of wine while he waits? I will, he said. The wine was poor stuff compared to the vintages from the arbor the house normally served. You must forgive us, my lord, Chatea said. I cannot find good wine at any price of late. You are not alone in that, I fear. Chatea commiserated with him a moment, then excused herself and glided off. A handsome woman, Tyrion reflected, as he watched her go. He had seldom seen such elegance and dignity in a hall. Though to be sure, she saw herself more as a kind of priestess. Perhaps that is the secret. It is not what we do so much as why we do it. Somehow that thought comforted him. A few of the other patrons were giving him sideways looks. The last time he ventured out, a man had spit on him. Well, had tried to. Instead, he spit on Bronn, and in future would do his spitting without teeth. Is my lord feeling unloved? Dancy slipped into his lap and nibbled at his ear. I have a cure for that. Smiling, Tyrion shook his head. You are too beautiful for words, sweetling, but I've grown fond of Alayaya's remedy. You've never tried mine. My lord never chooses anyone but Yaya. She's good, but I'm better. Don't you want to see? Next time, perhaps. Tyrion had no doubt that Dancy would be a lively handful. She was pug-nosed and bouncy, with freckles and a mane of thick red hair that tumbled down past her waist. But he had Shay waiting for him at the manse. Giggling, she put her hand between his thighs and squeezed him through his breeches. "'I don't think he wants to wait till next time,' she announced. "'He wants to come out.' and count all my freckles, I think. 
"'Dancy?' Alayaya stood in the doorway, dark and cool, in gauzy green silk. "'His lordship has come to visit me.' Tyrion gently disentangled himself from the other girl and stood. Dancy did not seem to mind. "'Next time,' she reminded him. She put a finger to her mouth and sucked it. As the black-skinned girl led him up the stairs, she said, "'Poor Dancy.' She has a fortnight to get my lord to choose her. Elsewise, she loses her black pearls to Marai. Marai was a cool, pale, delicate girl Tyrion had noticed once or twice. Green eyes and porcelain skin, long, straight, silvery hair, very lovely, but too solemn by half. I did try if the poor child lose her pearls on account of me. Then take her upstairs next time. Maybe I will. She smiled. I think not, my lord. She's right, Tidium thought. I won't. She may only be a whore, but I am faithful to her, after my fashion. In the turret room, as he opened the door of the wardrobe, he looked at Alayaya curiously. What do you do while I'm gone? She raised her arms and stretched like some sleek black cat. Sleep? I'm much better rested since you began to visit us, my lord, and Marai is teaching us to read. Perhaps soon I'll be able to pass the time with a book. The sleep is good, he said, and books are better. He gave her a quick kiss on the cheek. Then it was down the shaft and through the tunnel. As he left the stable on his piebald gelding, Tyrion heard the sound of music drifting over the rooftops. It was pleasant to think that men still sang, even in the midst of butchery and famine. Remembered notes filled his head, and for a moment he could almost hear Tysha as she sung to him half a lifetime ago. He reined up to listen. The tune was wrong, the words too faint to hear. A different song then, and why not? His sweet, innocent Tysha had been a lie start to finish, only a whore his brother Jamie had hired to make him a man. I'm free of Tysha now, he thought. She's haunted me half my life, but I don't need her any more, no more than I need Alayaya or Dancy or Marai or the hundreds like them I've bedded over the years. I have Shay now. Shay. The gates of the manse were closed and barred. Tyrion pounded until the ornate bronze eye clacked open. It's me. The man who admitted him was one of Vari's prettier finds, a bravassi dagger man with a hair lip and a lazy eye. Tyrion had wanted no handsome young guardsman loitering about shade day after day. Find me old, ugly, scarred men, preferably impotent, he had told the eunuch. Men who prefer boys, or men who prefer sheep, for that matter. Varys had not managed to come up with any sheep lovers, but he did find a eunuch strangler and a pair of foul-smelling Ebonese who were as fond of axes as they were of each other. The others were as choice a lot of mercenaries as ever graced a dungeon, each uglier than the last. When Varys had paraded them before him, Tyrion had been afraid he'd gone too far, but Shay had never uttered a word of complaint. And why would she? She has never complained of me, and I'm more idiot 
than all her guards together. Perhaps she does not even see ugliness. Even so, Tyrion would sooner have used some of his mountain clansmen to guard the manse. Chella's black ears, perhaps, or the Moon Brothers. He had more faith in their iron loyalties and sense of honor than in the greed of sellswords. The risk was too great, however. All King's Landing knew the wildings were his. If he sent the black ears here, it would be only a matter of time until the whole city knew the King's hand was keeping a concubine. One of the Ibanese took his horse. Have you awoken her? Tyrion asked him. No, my lord. Good. The fire in the bedchamber had burned down to embers, but the room was still warm. Shay had kicked off her blankets and sheets as she slept. She lay nude atop the feather bed. The soft curves of her young body limbed in the faint glow from the hearth. Tyrion stood in the door and drank in the sight of her. Younger than Marai, sweeter than Dancy, more beautiful than Alayaya, she is all I need, and more. How could a whore look so clean and sweet and innocent, he wondered. He had not intended to disturb her, but the sight of her was enough to make him hard. He let his garments fall to the floor, then crawled onto the bed and gently pushed her legs apart and kissed her between the thighs. Shay murmured in her sleep. He kissed her again and licked at her secret sweetness, on and on, until his beard and her cunt were both soaked. When she gave a soft moan and shuddered, he climbed up and thrust himself inside her and exploded almost at once. Her eyes were open. She smiled and stroked his head and whispered, I just had the sweetest dream, my lord. Tyrion nipped at a small hard nipple and nestled his head on her shoulder. He did not pull out of her. Would that he never had to pull out of her. This is no dream, he promised her. It is real, all of it, he thought. The wars, the intrigues, the great bloody game, and me in the center of it. Me, the dwarf, the monster, the one they scorned and laughed at. But now I hold it all. The power, the city, the girl. This was what I was made for. And gods forgive me, but I do love it. And her. And her. Arya. Whatever names Hare and the Black had meant to give his towers were long forgotten. They were called the Tower of Dread, the Widow's Tower, the Wailing Tower, the Tower of Ghosts, and King's Pyre Tower. Arya slept in a shallow niche in the cavernous vaults beneath the Wailing Tower on a bed of straw. She had water to wash in, whenever she liked, a chunk of soap. The work was hard, but no harder than walking miles every day. Weasel did not need to find worms and bugs to eat, as Arry had. There was bread every day, and barley stews with bits of carrot and turnip, and once a fortnight, even a bite of meat. Hot Pie ate even better. He was where he belonged, in the kitchens, a round stone building with a domed roof, 
that was a world unto itself. Arya took her meals at a trestle table in the undercroft with Wheeze and his other charges. But sometimes she would be chosen to help fetch their food, and she and Hot Pie could steal a moment to talk. He could never remember that she was now Weasel, and kept calling her Arry, even though he knew she was a girl. Once he tried to slip her a hot apple tart, but he made such a clumsy job of it that two of the cooks saw. They took the tart away and beat him with a big wooden spoon. Gendry had been sent to the forge. Arya seldom saw him. As for those she served with, she did not even want to know their names. That only made it hurt worse when they died. Most of them were older than she was, and content to let her alone. Harrenhal was vast, much of it far gone in decay. Lady Went had held the castle as bannerman to House Tully, but she'd used only the lower thirds of two of the five towers, and let the rest go to ruin. Now she was fled, and the small household she'd left could not begin to tend the needs of all the knights, lords, and high-born prisoners Lord Tywin had brought, so the Lannisters must forage for servants as well as for plunder and provender. The talk was that Lord Tywin planned to restore Harrenhal to glory and make it his new seat once the war was done. Wees used Arya to run messages, draw water, and fetch food, and sometimes to serve a table in the barracks hall above the armory, where the men-at-arms took their meals. But most of her work was cleaning. The ground floor of the Wailing Tower was given over to storerooms and granaries, and two floors above housed part of the garrison, but the upper stories had not been occupied for eighty years. Now Lord Tywin had commanded that they be made fit for habitation again. There were floors to be scrubbed, grime to be washed off windows, broken chairs and rutted beds to be carried off. The topmost story was infested with nests of the huge black bats that House Went had used for its sigil, and there were rats in the cellars as well, and ghosts, some said, the spirits of Harren the Black and his sons. Arya thought that was stupid. Harren and his sons had died in King's Pyre Tower. That was why it had its name. So why should they cross the yard to haunt her? The Wailing Tower only wailed when the wind blew from the north, and that was just the sound the air made blowing through the cracks in the stones where they had fissured from the heat. If there were ghosts in Harrenhal, they never troubled her. It was a living man she feared, Wheeze, Sir Gregor Clegane, and Lord Tywin Lannister himself, who kept his apartments in Kingspire Tower, still the tallest and mightiest of all, though lopsided beneath the weight of the slag stone that made it look like some giant half-melted black candle. She wondered what Lord Tywin would do if she marched up to him and confessed to being Arya Stark but she knew she'd never get near enough to talk to him, and anyhow, he'd never believe her if she did, and afterwards Wheeze would beat her bloody. In his own small strutting way, Wheeze was nearly as scary as Sir Gregor. The mountains swatted men like flies, but most of the time he did not even seem to know the fly was there. Wheeze always knew you were there, and what you were doing, 
and sometimes what you were thinking. He would hit at the slightest provocation, and he had a dog who was near as bad as he was, an ugly, spotted bitch that smelled worse than any dog Aria had ever known. Once she saw him set the dog on a latrine boy who denoyed him. She tore a big chunk out of the boy's calf, while Wheeze laughed. It took him only three days to earn the place of honour in her nightly prayers. Wheeze, she would whisper, first of all, Dunson, Chiswick, Poliver, Raff the Sweetling, the Tickler, and the Hound Sir Gregor, Sir Amory, Sir Illan, Sir Merrin, King Joffrey, Queen Circe. If she let herself forget even one of them, how would she ever find him again to kill him? On the road Arya had felt like a sheep, but Harrenhal turned her into a mouse. She was grey as a mouse, in her scratchy wool shift, and like a mouse she kept to the crannies and crevices and dark holes of the castle, scurrying out of the way of the mighty. Sometimes she thought they were all mice within those thick walls, even the knights and the great lords. The size of the castle made even Gregor Clegane seem small. Harrenhal covered thrice as much ground as Winterfell, and its buildings were so much larger they could scarcely be compared. Its stables housed a thousand horses, its guards would cover twenty acres, its kitchens were as large as Winterfell's great hall, and its own great hall, grandly named the Hall of a Hundred Hearths, even though it only had thirty and some. Arya had tried to count them twice, but she came up with thirty-three once and thirty-five the other time, was so cavernous that Lord Tywin could have feasted his entire host, though he never did. Walls, doors, halls, steps, everything was built to an inhuman scale that made Arya remember the stories old Nan used to tell of the giants who lived beyond the wall. And as lords and ladies never noticed the little grey mice under their feet, Arya heard all sorts of secrets just by keeping her ears open as she went about her duties. Pretty Pyre from the buttery was a slut who was working her way through every night in the castle. The wife of the jailer was with child, but the real father was either Sir Alan Staxpeer or a singer named White Smile Watt. Lord Lefford made mock of ghosts at table, but always kept a candle burning by his bed. Sir Donovan's choir, judge, could not hold his water when he slept. The cooks despised Sir Harry Swift and spit in all his food. Once she even overheard Maester Tuthmuir's serving girl confiding to her brother about some message that said Joffrey was a bastard and not the rightful king at all. Lord Tywin told him to burn the letter and never speak such filth again, the girl whispered. King Robert's brothers, Stannis and Renly, had joined the fighting, she heard. And both of them kings now, we said. Realms got more kings than the castles got rats. Even Lannister men questioned how long Joffrey would hold the Iron Throne. The lad's got no army but them gold cloaks, and he's ruled by a eunuch, a dwarf, and a woman, she heard a lordling mutter in his cups. What good will the likes of them be if it comes to battle? And there was always talk of Beric Dondarrion. 
A fat archer once said, The bloody mummers had slain him, but the others only laughed. Lorch killed the man at Rushing Falls, and the mountain slain him twice. Got me a silver stag, says he don't stay dead this time neither. Arya did not know who bloody mummers were until a fortnight later, when the queerest company of men she'd ever seen arrived at Harrenhal. Beneath the standard of a black goat with bloody horns rode copper men with bells in their braids, lancers astride striped black and white horses, bowmen with powdered cheeks, squat hairy men with shaggy shields, brown-skinned men in feathered cloaks, a wispy fool in green and pink motley, swordsmen with fantastic forked beards dyed green and purple and silver, spearmen with coloured scars that covered their cheeks, a slender man in septon's robes, a fatherly one in maester's grey, and a sickly one whose leather cloak was fringed with long blonde hair. At their head was a man stick-thin and very tall, with a drawn, emaciated face, made even longer by the ropey black beard that grew from his pointed chin nearly to his waist. The helm that hung from his saddle-horn was black steel, fastened in the shape of a goat's head. About his neck he wore a chain made of linked coins of many different sizes, shapes, and metals, and his horse was one of the strange black-and-white ones. "'You don't want to know that lot, Weasel,' we said when he saw her looking at the goat-helm man. Two of his drinking friends were with him, men-at-arms in service to Lord Lefford. "'Who are they?' she asked. One of the soldiers laughed. "'The footman girl, toes of the goat, Lord Tywin's bloody mummers.' "'Peace for which you get afraid.' "'You can scrub the bloody steps,' said Wheeze. "'They're self-swords, Weasel Girl. "'Call themselves the Brave Companions. "'Don't use them other names when they can hear or they'll hurt you bad. "'The Goat Helm's their captain, Lord Vargo Holt.' "'He's no fucking lord,' said the second soldier. "'I heard Sir Amory say so.' He's just some sellsword with a mouth full of slubber and a high opinion of himself. I said Weasel, but she'd better call him Lord if she wants to keep all her parts. Arya looked at Vargo Hote again. How many monsters does Lord Tywin have? The brave companions were housed in the widow's tower, so Arya need not serve them. She was glad of that. On the very night they arrived, fighting broke out between the sellswords and some Lannister men. Sir Harry Swift's squire was stabbed to death, and two of the bloody mummers were wounded. The next morning Lord Tywin hanged them both from the gatehouse walls, along with one of Lord Lytton's archers. We said the archer had started all the trouble by taunting the sellswords over Beric Dundarian. After the hangmen had stopped kicking, Vargo Hote and Sir Harris embraced and kissed and swore to love each other always as Lord Tywin looked on. Arya thought it was funny the way Vargo Hote lisped and slubbered, but she knew better than to laugh.
The bloody mummers did not linger long at Harrenhal, but before they rode out again, Arya heard one of them saying how a northern army under Roos Bolton had occupied the ruby ford of the Trident. If he crosses, Lord Tywin will smash him again like he did on the Green Fork, a Lannister bowman said, but his fellows jeered him down. Bolton'll never cross, not until young wolf marches from River Run with his wild Northmen and all them wolves. Arya had not known her brother was so near. River Run was much closer than Winterfell, though she was not certain where it lay in relation to Harrenhal. I could find out somehow. I know I could, if only I could get away. When she thought of seeing Rob's face again, Arya had to bite her lip. And I want to see John too, and Bran, and Rickon, and Mother, even Sansa. I'll kiss her and beg her pardons like a proper lady. She'll like that. From the courtyard talk she'd learned that the upper chambers of the Tower of Dread housed three dozen captives taken during some battle on the Green Fork of the Trident. Most had been given freedom of the castle in return for their pledge not to attempt escape. They vowed not to escape, Arya told herself, but they never swore not to help me escape. The captives ate at their own table in the Hall of a Hundred Hearths, and could often be seen about the grounds. Four brothers took their exercise together every day, fighting with staves and wooden shields in the flowstone yard. Three of them were Freys of the Crossing, the fourth their bastard brother. They were only there a short time, though. One morning, two other brothers arrived under a peace banner with a chest of gold, and ransomed them from the knights who'd captured them. The six Freys all left together. No one ransomed the Northmen, though. One fat lordling haunted the kitchens, Hot Pie told her, always looking for a morsel. His moustache was so bushy that it covered his mouth, and the clasp that held his cloak was a silver and sapphire trident. He belonged to Lord Tywin, but the fierce-bearded young man who liked to walk the battlements alone in a black cloak patterned with white suns had been taken by some hedge knight who meant to get rich off him. Sansa would have known who he was, and the fat one too, but Arya had never taken much interest in titles and sigils. Whenever Septor Mordain had gone on about the history of this house and that house, she was inclined to drift and dream, and wonder when the lesson would be done. She did remember Lord Serwin, though. His lands had been close to Winterfell, so he and his son Clay had often visited. Yet, as fate would have it, he was the only captive who was never seen. He was abed in a tower cell, recovering from a wound. For days and days Arya tried to work out how she might steal past the door guards to see him. If he knew her, he would be on a bound to help her. A lord would have gold for a certainty. They all did. Perhaps he would pay some of Lord Tywin's own swords to take her to River Run. Father always said that most swords would betray anyone for enough gold. Then one morning she spied three women in the carled grey robes of the Silent Sisters loading a corpse into their wagon. The body was sewn into a cloak of the finest silk, decorated with a battle-axe sigil. When Arya asked who it was, one of the guards told her that Lord Serwin had died. 
The words felt like a kick in her belly. He could never have helped you anyway, she thought, as the sisters drove the wagon through the gate. He couldn't even help himself. You stupid mouse. After that it was back to scrubbing and scurrying and listening at doors. Lord Tywin would soon march on River Run, she heard, or he would drive south to High Garden. No one would ever expect that. No, he must defend King's Landing. Stannis was the greatest threat. He'd sent Gregor Clegane and Vargo Hote to destroy Roos Bolton and remove the dagger from his back. He'd sent ravens to the airy. He meant to wed Lady Lysa Aaron and win the Vale. He'd bought a ton of silver to forge magic swords that would slay the Stark wargs. He was writing Lady Stark to make a peace. The Kingslayer would soon be freed. Though ravens came and went every day, Lord Tywin himself spent most of his days behind closed doors with his war council. Arya caught glimpses of him, but always from afar. Once walking the walls in the company of three maesters and the fat captive with a bushy moustache. Once riding out with his lord's bannermen to visit encampments, but most often standing in an arch of the covered gallery watching men at practice in the yard below. He stood with his hands locked together on the gold pommel of his longsword. They said Lord Tywin loved gold most of all, even shit gold, she heard one squire jest. The Lannister lord was strong-looking for an old man with stiff golden whiskers and a bald head. There was something in his face that reminded Arya of her own father, even though they looked nothing alike. He has a lord's face, that's all, she told herself. She remembered hearing her lady mother tell father to put on his lord's face and go deal with some matter. Father had laughed at that. She could not imagine Lord Tywin ever laughing at anything. One afternoon, while she was waiting her turn to draw a pail of water from the well, she heard the hinges of the east gate groaning. A party of men rode onto the portcullis at a walk. When she espied the manticore crawling across the shield of their leader, a stab of hate shot through her. In the light of day, Sir Amory Lorch looked less frightening than he had by torchlight, but he still had the pig's eyes, she recalled. One of the women said that his men had ridden all the way around the lake, chasing Beric Dondarrion and slaying rebels. We weren't rebels, Arya thought. We were the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch takes no side. Sir Amory had fewer men than she remembered, though, and many wounded. I hope their wounds fester. I hope they all die. Then she saw the three near the end of the column. Rorg had donned a black half-helm with a broad iron nasal that made it hard to see that he did not have a nose. Biter rode ponderously beside him, on a destrier that looked ready to collapse under his weight. Half-heeled burns covered his body, making him even more hideous than before. But Jakin Hagar still smiled. His garb was still ragged and filthy, but he had found time to wash and brush his hair. It streamed down across his shoulders, red and white and shiny, and Arya heard the girls giggling to each other in admiration. I should have let the fire have them, 
Gentry said to, or should have listened. If she hadn't thrown them that axe, they'd all be dead. For a moment she was afraid, but they rode past her without a flicker of interest. Only Jake and Hagar so much as glanced in her direction, and his eyes passed right over her. He does not know me, she thought. Harry was a fierce little boy with a sword, and I'm just a grey mouse girl with a pail. She spent the rest of that day scrubbing steps inside the wailing tower. By evenfall her hands were raw and bleeding, and her arms so sore they trembled when she lugged the pail back to the cellar. Too tired even for food, Aria begged Weezer's pardons and crawled into a straw to sleep. Weez, she yawned, Dunson, Chiswick, Poliver, Raff the Sweetling, Tickler, and the Hounds of Gregor, Sir Amory, Sir Ellen, Sir Marin, King Joffrey, Queen Circe. She thought she might add three more names to her prayer, but she was too tired to decide tonight. Arya was dreaming of wolves running wild through the wood, when a strong hand clamped down over her mouth like a smooth, warm stone, solid and unyielding. She woke at once, squirming and struggling. A girl says nothing, a voice whispered close behind her ear. A girl keeps her lips closed. No one hears, and friends may talk in secret. Yes? Heart-pounding, Arya managed the tiniest of nods. Jake and Hagar took his hand away. The cellar was black as pitch, and she could not see his face even inches away. She could smell him, though. His skin smelled clean and soapy, and he had scented his hair. A boy becomes a girl, he murmured. I was always a girl. I didn't think you saw me. A man sees. A man knows. She remembered that she hated him. You scared me. You're one of them now. I should have let you burn. What are you doing here? Go away, or I'll yell for wheeze. A man pays his debts. A man owes three. Three? The Red God has his due, sweet girl, and only death may pay for life. This girl took three that were his. This girl must give three in their places. Speak the names, and a man will do the rest. He wants to help me, Arya realized with a rush of hope that made her dizzy. Take me to River Run. It's not far. If we stole some horses, we could— He laid a finger on her lips. Three lives you shall have of me. No more, no less three, and we are done. So, a girl must ponder. He kissed her hair softly. But not too long. By the time Arya lit the stub of a candle, only a faint smell remained of him, a whiff of ginger and cloves lingering in the air. The woman in the next niche rolled over on her straw and complained of the light, so Arya blew it out. When she closed her eyes, she saw faces swimming before her, Joffrey and his mother, Ilian Payne and Merrin Trant and Sandor Clegane. 
but they were in King's Landing, hundreds of miles away, and so Gregor had lingered only a few nights before departing again for more foraging, taking Ref and Chiswick and the Tickler with him. Sir Amory Lorch was here, though, and she hated him almost as much. Didn't she? She wasn't certain. And there was always wheeze. She thought of him again the next morning, when lack of sleep made her yawn. Wheeze, for, wheeze purred. Next time I see that mouth droop open, I'll pull out your tongue and feed it to my bitch. He twisted her ear between his fingers to make certain she'd heard and told her to get back to those steps. He wanted them clean down to the third landing by nightfall. As she worked, Arya thought about the people she wanted dead. She pretended she could see their faces on the steps and scrubbed harder to wipe them away. The Starks were at war with the Lannisters, and she was a Stark, so she should kill as many Lannisters as she could. That was what you did in wars. But she didn't think she could trust Jacob. I should kill them myself. Whenever her father had condemned a man to death, he did the deed himself, with ice, his greatsword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look him in the face and hear his last words. She'd heard him tell Rob and John once. The next day she avoided Jake and Hagar, and the day after that. It was not hard. She was very small, and Harren Hall was very large, full of places where a mouse could hide. And then Sir Gregor returned, earlier than expected driving a herd of goats this time in place of a herd of prisoners. She'd heard he'd lost four men in one of Lord Berwick's night raids, but those Arya hated returned unscathed and took up residence on the second floor of the Wailing Tower. Wheeze saw they were well supplied with drink. They always have a good thirst, that nut, he grumbled. Wheeze'll go up and ask if they've got any clothes. That need mending. I'll have the women see to it. Arya ran up her well-scrubbed steps. No one paid her any mind when she entered. Chiswick was seated by the fire with a horn of ale to hand, telling one of his funny stories. She dared not interrupt unless she wanted a bloody lip. After the Anne's tawny, it were, before the war come, Chiswick was saying, we were on our ways back west. Seven of us was Sir Gregor. Raff was with me, and young Just Stillwood, each squire for Sir in the lists. Well, we come on this pisswater river, running high on account of there been rains. No way to ford, but there's an alehouse near, so there we repair. Sir rouse the brewer and tells him to keep our horns full till the waters fall. And you should see the man's pig eyes shine at the sight of silver. So he's fetching us ale, him and his daughter, and poor thin stuff it is, no more'n brown piss, which don't make me any happier, nor sir neither. And all the time this brewer's saying how glad he is to have us, custom being slow on account of them rains. The fool won't shut his yap. Not him, though sir is saying not a word, just brooding on the night of pansies, 
and that bugger's trick he played. You can see how tight his mouth sits, so me and the other lads, we know better than to say a squeak to him, but this brewer, he's got to talk. He even asked how my lord fared in the jousting. Sir just gave him this look. Chiswick cackled, quaffed his ale, and wiped the foam away with the back of his hand. Meanwhile, this daughter of his has been fetching and pouring a fat little thing, eighteen or so. Thirteen, more like, Raph the sweetling drawled. Well, be that as it may, she's not much to look at, but Egan's been drinking and gets to touching her, and might be I did a little touching myself. And Raph's telling young Stillwood that he ought to drag the girl upstairs and make herself a man, giving the lad courage, as it were. Finally, Joss reaches up under her skirts, and she shrieks and drops her flagon and goes running off to the kitchen. Well, it would have ended right there, only what does the old fool do? But he goes to Sir and asks him to make us leave the girl alone, him being an anointed knight and all such. Sir Gregor, he wasn't paying no mind to none of our fun, but now he looks... You know how he does, and he commands that the girl be brought before him. Now the old man has to drag her out of the kitchen, and no one to blame but himself. Sir looks her over and says, So, this is the whore you're so concerned for. And this besotted old fool says, My laner's no whore, sir, right to Gregor's face. Sir, he never blinks, just says, She is now, tusses the old man another silver, rips her dress off the wench, and takes her right there on the table in front of her door, flapping and wiggling like a rabbit and making these noises. The look on the old man's face, I laughed so hard, ale was coming out of my nose. Then this boy hears the noise the son, I figure, and comes rushing up from the cellar. So Raph has to stick a dirt in his belly. By then, sir's done. So he goes back to his drinking, and we all have a turn. Tobbert, you know how he is, he flops her over and goes in the back way. The girl was done fighting by the time I had her. Maybe she decided she liked it after all. Though, to tell the truth, I wouldn't have minded a little wiggling. And now, here's the best bit. When it's all done, Sir tells the old man that he wants his change. The girl wasn't worth a silver, he says. And damned if that old man don't fetch a fistful of coppers, beg my lord's pardon, and thank him for the custom. The men all roared, none louder than Chiswick himself, who laughed so hard at his own story that snot dribbled from his nose down into his scraggy grey beard. Arya stood in the shadows of the stairwell and watched him. She crept back down to the cellars without saying a word. When Weiss found that she hadn't asked about the clothes, he yanked down her breeches and caned her 
until blood ran down her thighs. But Arya closed her eyes and thought of all the sayings Sirio had taught her, so she scarcely felt it. Two nights later, he sent her to Barracks Hall to serve at table. She was carrying a flagon of wine and pouring when she glimpsed Jake and Hagar at his trencher across the aisle. Chewing her lip, Arya glanced round warily to make certain wheeze was not in sight. Fear cuts deeper than swords, she told herself. She took a step and another, and with each she felt less a mouse. She worked her way down the bench, filling wine cups. Rorg sat to Jakin's right, deep drunk, but he took no notice of her. Arya leaned close and whispered, Chiswick, right in Jakin's ear. The Larathi gave no sign that he had heard. When her flagon was empty, Arya hurried down to the cellars to refill it from the cask and quickly returned to her pouring. No one had died of thirst while she was gone, nor even noted her brief absence. Nothing happened the next day, nor the day after. But on the third day, Arya went to the kitchens with Weiss to fetch their dinner. One of the mountain men fell off the wall walk last night and broke his full neck, she heard Weiss tell a cook. Drunk? the woman asked. No more than usual. Some are saying it was Helen's ghost flung him down. <laughs> he snorted to show what he thought of such notions. It wasn't Heron, Aria wanted to say. It was me. She had killed Chiswick with a whisper, and she would kill two more before she was through. I'm the ghost in Heron Howe she thought. And that night, there was one less name to hate. Catelyn The meeting place was a grassy sward dotted with pale grey mushrooms and the raw stumps of felled trees. We are the first, my lady, Hallis Mollen said, as they reined up amidst the stumps, alone between the armies. The Darwolf banner of House Stark flapped and fluttered atop the lance he bore. Catelyn could not see the sea from here, but she could feel how close it was. The smell of salt was heavy on the wind, gusting from the east. Stannis Baratheon's foragers had cut the trees down for the siege towers and catapults. Catelyn wondered how long the grove had stood, and whether Ned had rested here when he led his host south to lift the last siege of Storm's End. He'd won a great victory that day, all the greater for being bloodless. God grant that I shall do the same, Catelyn prayed. Her own liege men thought she was mad even to come. This is no fight of ours, my lady, Sir Wendell Mandley had said. I know the king would not wish his mother to put herself at risk. We are all at risk, she told him perhaps too sharply. Do you think I wish to be here, sir? I belong at River Run, with my dying father, at Winterfell, with my sons. Rob sent me south to speak for him, and speak for him I shall. 
It would be no easy thing to forge a peace between these brothers, Catelyn you, yet for the good of the realm it must be tried. Across rain sudden fields and stony ridges, she could see the great castle of Storm's End rearing up against the sky, its back to the unseen sea. Beneath that mass of pale grey stone, the encircling army of Lord Stannis Baratheon looked as small and insignificant as mice with banners. The song said the storm's end had been raised in ancient days by Durin, the first storm king, who had won the love of the fair Elenai, daughter of the sea god and the goddess of the wind. On the night of their wedding, Elenai had yielded her maidenhood to a mortal's love, and thus doomed herself to a mortal's death, and her grieving parents had unleashed their wrath and sent the winds and waters to batter down Durin's hold. His friends and brothers and wedding guests were crushed beneath collapsing walls or blown out to sea. But Elenai sheltered Durin within her arms, so he took no harm. And when the dawn came at last, he declared war upon the gods and vowed to rebuild. Five more castles he built, each larger and stronger than the last only to see them smashed asunder when the gale winds came howling up Shipbreaker Bay, driving great walls of water before them. His lords pleaded with him to build inland. His priests told him he must placate the gods by giving Elenai back to the sea. Even the small folk begged him to relent. Doran would have none of it. A seventh castle he raised, most massive of all. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claimed that a small boy told him what he must do, a boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder. No matter how the tale was told, the end was the same. Though the angry guards threw storm after storm against it, the seventh castle stood defiant, and Durin God's grief and fair Elenai dwelt there together until the end of their days. Gods do not forget, and still the gales came raging up the narrow sea. Yet storm's end endured. Through centuries and tens of centuries, a castle like no other. Its great curtain wall was a hundred feet high, unbroken by arrow slit or postern. Everywhere rounded, curving, smooth, its stones fit so cunningly together that nowhere was crevice nor angle nor gap by which the wind might enter. That wall was said to be forty feet thick at its narrowest, and nearly eighty on the seaward face, a double course of stones with an inner core of sand and rubble. Within that mighty bulwark, the kitchens and stables and yards sheltered safe from wind and wave. Of towers there was but one, a colossal drum tower, windowless where it faced the sea, so large that it was granary and barracks and feast hall and lord's dwelling all in one, crowned by massive battlements that made it look from afar like a spiked fist atop an upthrust arm. Uh, my lady, Hal Mullen called. Two riders had emerged from the tidy little camp beneath the castle, and were coming toward them at a slow walk. That will be King Stannis. 
No doubt. Catelyn watched them come. Stannis, it must be. Yet that is not the Baratheon banner. It was a bright yellow, not the rich gold of Renly's standards, and the device it bore was red, though she could not make out its shape. Renly would be last to arrive. He had told her as much when she set out. He did not propose to mount his horse until he saw his brother well on his way. The first to arrive must wait on the other, and Renly would do no waiting. It is a sort of game, king's play, she told herself. Well, she was no king, so she need not play it. Catelyn was practice at waiting. As he neared, she saw that Stannis wore a crown of red gold, with points fashioned in the shape of flames. His belt was studded with garnets and yellow topaz, and a great square-cut ruby was set in the hilt of the sword he wore. Otherwise his dress was plain, studded leather jerkin over quilted doublet, worn boots, breeches of brown rough-spun. The device on his sun-yellow banner showed a red heart surrounded by a blaze of orange fire. The crown stag was there, yes, shrunken and enclosed within the heart. Even more curious was his standard-bearer, a woman, garbed all in reds, face shadowed within the deep hood of her scarlet cloak. A red priestess, Catelyn thought, wondering. The sect was numerous and powerful in the free cities and the distant east, but there were few in the Seven Kingdoms. Lady Stark, Stannis Baratheon said, with a chill courtesy as he reined up, inclined his head, balder than she remembered. Lord Stannis, she returned. Beneath the tight-trimmed beard, his heavy jaw clenched hard. Yet he did not hector her about titles. For that she was duly grateful. I had not thought to find you at Storm's End. I had not thought to be here. His deep-set eyes regarded her uncomfortably. This was not a man for easy courtesies. I'm sorry for your lord's death, he said, though Eddard Stark was no friend to me. He was never your enemy, my lord. When the lords Tyrell and Redwine held you prisoner in that castle, starving, it was Eddard Stark who broke the siege. At my brother's command, not for love of me, Stannis answered, Lord Eddard did his duty. I will not deny it. Did I ever do less? I should have been Robert's hand. That was your brother's will. Ned never wanted it. Yet he took it. That which should have been mine. Still, I give you my word, you shall have justice for his murder. How they love to promise heads, these men, who would be king. Your brother promised me the same, but if truth be told, I would sooner have my daughters back and leave justice to the gods. Cersei still holds my Sansa, and of Arya there has been no word since the day of Robert's death. If your children are found, when I take the city, they shall be sent to you. Alive or dead, his tone implied. And when shall that be, Lord Stannis? King's Landing is close to your Dragonstone, but I find you here instead. You are frank, Lady Stark. Very well, I'll answer you frankly. To take the city, 
I need the power of these southern lords I see across the field. My brother has them. I must needs take them from him. Men give their allegiance where they will, my lord. These lords swore fealty to Robert and House Baratheon. If you and your brother were to put aside your quarrel, I have no quarrel with Renly. Should he prove dutiful? I am his elder, and his king. I want only what is mine by rights. Renly owes me loyalty and obedience. I mean to have it. From him and from these other lords. Stannis studied her face. And what cause brings you to this field, my lady? Has House Stark cast its lot with my brother? Is that the way of it? This one will never bend, she thought. Yet she must try nonetheless. Too much was at stake. My son reigns as king in the north, by the will of our lords and people. He bends the knee to no man, but holds out the hand of friendship to all. Kings have no friends, Stannis said bluntly. Only subjects and enemies. And brothers! A cheerful voice called out behind her. Catelyn glanced over her shoulder as Lord Renly's palfrey picked her way through the stumps. The younger Baratheon was splendid in his green velvet doublet and satin cloak trimmed in vair. The crown of golden roses girded his temples, jade stag's head rising over his forehead, long black hair spilling out beneath. Jagged chunks of black diamonds studded his sword belt, and a chain of gold and emeralds looped around his neck. Renly had chosen a woman to carry his banner as well, though Brian hid face and form behind plate armor that gave no hint of her sex. Atop her twelve-foot lance, the crown stag pranced black on gold as the wind off the sea rippled the cloth. His brother's greeting was curt. Lord Renly. King Renly, can that truly be you, Stannis? Stannis frowned. Who else should it be? Renly gave an easy shrug. When I saw that standard, I could not be certain. Whose banner do you bear? Mine own. The red-clad priestess spoke up. The king has taken for his sigil the fiery heart of the Lord of Light. Renly seemed amused by that. All for the good. If we both use the same banner, the battle will be terribly confused. Catelyn said, Let us hope there will be no battle. We three share a common foe who would destroy us all. Stannis studied her unsmiling. The Iron Throne is mine by rights. All those who deny that are my foes. The whole of the realm denies it, brother, said Renly. Old men deny it with their death rattle, and unborn children deny it in their mother's wounds. They deny it in dawn, and they deny it on the wall. No one wants you for their king. Sorry. Stannis clenched his jaw, his face taut. I swore I would never treat with you while you wore your traitor's crown. Would that I had kept to that vow. This is folly, Catelyn said sharply. Lord Tywin sits at Harrenhal with twenty thousand swords. The remnants of the Kingslayer's army have regrouped at the Golden Tooth. 
another Lannister host gathers beneath the shadow of Castley Rock, and Cersei and her son hold King's Landing and your precious Iron Throne. You each name yourself King, yet the kingdom bleeds, and no one lifts a sword to defend it but my son. Renly shrugged. Your son has won a few battles. I shall win the war. The Lannisters can wait my pleasure. If you have proposals to make, make them, Stannis said brusquely, or I will be gone. Very well, said Renly. I propose you dismount, bend your knee, and swear me your allegiance. Stannis choked back rage. That you shall never have. You said Robert. Why not me? Robert was my elder brother. You are the younger. Younger, bolder, and far more comely. And a thief, and a usurper besides. Renly shrugged. The Targaryens called Robert usurper. He seemed to be able to bear the shame. So shall I. This will not do. Listen to yourselves. If you were sons of mine, I would bang your heads together and lock you in a bedchamber until you remembered that you were brothers. Stannis frowned at her. You presume too much, Lady Stark. I am the rightful king, and your son no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. The naked threat fanned her fury. You are very free to name others traitor and usurper, my lord. Yet how are you any different? You say you alone are the rightful king, yet it seems to me that Robert had two sons. By all the laws of the Seven Kingdoms, Prince Joffrey is his rightful heir, and Tommen after him. And we are all traitors, however good our reasons. Renly laughed. You must forgive Lady Catelyn, Stannis. She's come all the way down from River Run, a long way a horse. I fear she never saw your little letter. Joffrey is not my brother's seed, Stannis said bluntly. Nor is Tommen. They are bastards. The girl as well. All three of them abominations born of incest. Would even Cersei be so mad? Catelyn was speechless. Isn't that a sweet story, my lady? Renly asked. I was camped at Hornhill when Lord Tarley received his letter and I must say it took my breath away. He smiled at his brother. I had never suspected you were so clever, Stannis. Were it only true, you would indeed be Robert's heir. Were it true? Do you name me a liar? Can you prove any word of this fable? Stannis ground his teeth. Robert could never have known, Catelyn thought, or Cersei would have lost her head in an instant. Lord Stannis, she asked. If you knew the Queen to be guilty of such monstrous crimes, why did you keep silent? I did not keep silent, Stannis declared. I brought my suspicions to John Aaron, rather than your own brother. My brother's regard for me was never more than dutiful, said Stannis. From me, such accusations would have seemed peevish and self-serving, a means of placing myself first in the line of succession. I believe Robert would have been more disposed to listen if the charges came from Lord Aaron, whom he loved. Ah, said Renly, so we have the word of a dead man. 
Do you think he'd die by happenstance, you purblind fool? Cersei had him poisoned, for fear he would reveal her. Lord John had been gathering certain proofs, which doubtless died with him. How inconvenient! Catelyn was remembering, fitting pieces together. My sister Lysa accused the Queen of killing her husband in a letter she sent me at Winterville, she admitted. Later, in the Eyrie, she laid the murder at the feet of the Queen's brother, Tyrion. Stannis snorted. If you step in a nest of snakes, does it matter which one bites you first? All this of snakes and incest is droll, but it changes nothing. You may well have the better claim, Stannis, but I still have the larger army. Renly's hand slid inside his cloak. Stannis saw and reached at once for the hilt of his sword, but before he could draw steel, his brother produced a peach. Would you like one, brother? Renly asked, smiling. From High Garden. You've never tasted anything so sweet, I promise you. He took a bite. Juice ran from the corner of his mouth. I did not come here to eat fruit, Stannis was fuming. My lords, Catelyn said, we ought to be hammering out the terms of an alliance, not trading taunts. A man should never refuse to taste a peach, Renly said, as he tossed the stone away. He may never get the chance again. Life is short, Stannis. Remember what the Starks say. Winter is coming. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. I did not come here to be threatened either. Nor were you, Renly snapped back. When I make threats, you'll know it. If truth be told, I've never liked you, Stannis. But you are my own blood, and I have no wish to slay you. So if it is Storm's End you want, take it as a brother's gift. As Robert once gave it to me, I give it to you. It's not yours to give. It's mine by rights. Sighing, Renly half-turned in the saddle. What am I to do with this brother of mine, Brian? He refuses my peach, he refuses my castle— he even shunned my wedding. We both know your wedding was a mama's farce. A year ago, you were scheming to make the girl one of Robert's whores. A year ago, I was scheming to make the girl Robert's queen, Renly said. But what does it matter? The boar got Robert, and I got Marjorie. You'll be pleased to know she came to me a maid. In your bed, she's like to die that way. Oh, I expect I'll get a son on her within the year. Pray, how many sons do you have, Stannis? Oh, yes, <laughs> none. Renly smiled innocently. As to your daughter, I understand. If my wife looked like yours, I'd send my fool to service her as well. Enough, Stannis roared. I will not be mocked to my face. Do you hear me? I will not. He yanked his longsword from its scabbard. The steel gleamed strangely bright in the one sunlight, now red, now yellow, now blazing white. The air around it seemed to shimmer, as if from heat. Catelyn's horse whinnied and backed away a step, but Brian moved between the brothers, her own blade in hand. "'Put up your steel!' she shouted at Stannis. 
Cersei Lannister is laughing herself breathless, Catelyn thought wearily. Stannis pointed his shining sword at his brother. I'm not without mercy, thundered he who was notoriously without mercy, nor do I wish to sully Lightbringer with a brother's blood. For the sake of the mother who bore us both, I will give you this night to rethink your folly, Renly. Strike your banners and come to me before dawn, and I will grant you Storm's End and your old seat on the council, and even name you my heir until the son is born to me. Otherwise, I shall destroy you. Renly laughed. Stannis, that's a very pretty sword, I'll grant you, but I, I think the glow of it has ruined your eyes. Look across the fields, brother. Can you see all those banners? Do you think a few bolts of cloth will make you king? Tyrell's swords will make me king. Rowan and Tarly and Caron will make me king with axe and mace and warhammers. Tarth arrows and Penrose lances. Fossaway, Kai, Mullendore, Estamont, Selmy, High Tower, Oakheart, Crane, Caswell, Black Bar, Morrigan, Beesbury, Shermer, Dunn, Footley, even House Florent, your own wife's brothers and uncles, they will make me king. All the chivalry of the South rides with me, and that is the least part of my power. My foot is coming behind. A hundred thousand swords and spears and pikes. And you will destroy me? With what, pray? That paltry rabble I see there, huddled under the castle walls. I'll call them five thousand, and be generous. Cudfish lords and onion knights and sail swords. Half of them are like to come over to me before the battle starts. You have fewer than four hundred horse, my scouts tell me. Free riders in boiled leather who will not stand an instant against armoured lances. I do not care how seasoned a warrior you think you are, Stannis. That host of yours won't survive the first charge of my vanguard. We shall see, brother. Some of the light seemed to go out of the world when Stannis slid his sword back into its scabbard. Come the dawn. We shall see. I hope your new gods are merciful one, brother. Stannis snorted and galloped away, disdainful. The Red Priestess lingered for a moment behind. Look to your own sins, Lord Renly, she said, as she wheeled a horse around. Catelyn and Lord Renly returned together to the camp where his thousands and her few waited their return. That was amusing, if not terribly profitable, he commented. I wonder where I can get a sword like that. Well, doubtless Loras will make me a gift of it after the battle. It grieves me that it must come to this. You have a cheerful way of grieving, said Catelyn, whose distress was not feigned. Do I? Renly shrugged. So be it. Stannis was never the most cherished of brothers, I confess. Do you suppose this tale of his is true? If Joffrey is the Kingslayer's git, your brother is the lawful heir while he lives, Renly admitted. Though it's a fool's law, wouldn't you agree? Why the older son, and not the best fitted? The crown will suit me, 
as it never suited Robert, and would not suit Stannis. I have it in me to be a great king, strong, yet generous, clever, just, diligent, loyal to my friends, and terrible to my enemies, yet capable of forgiveness, patient, humble, Catelyn supplied. Renly laughed. You must allow a king some flaws, my lady. Catelyn felt very tired. It had all been for nothing. The Baratheon brothers would drown each other in blood while her son faced the Lannisters alone, and nothing she could say or do would stop it. It's past time I went back to River Run to close my father's eyes, she thought. That much at least I can do. I may be a poor envoy, but I am a good mourner. God save me. Their camp was well sighted atop a low, stony ridge that ran from north to south. It was far more orderly than the sprawling encampment on the Manda, though only a quarter as large. When he'd learned of his brother's assault on Storm's End, Renly had split his forces, much as Rob had done at the Twins. His great mass of foot he had left behind at Bitterbridge, with his young queen, his wagons, carts, draught animals, and all his cumbersome siege machinery, while Renly himself led his knights and free riders in a swift dash east. How like his brother Robert he was, even in that. Only Robert had always had Eddard Stark to temper his boldness with caution. Ned would surely have prevailed upon Robert to bring up his whole force, to encircle Stannis and besiege the besiegers. That choice Renly had denied himself in his headlong rush to come to grips with his brother. He had outdistanced his supply lines, left food and forage days behind with all his wagons and mules and oxen. He must come to battle soon, or starve. Catelyn sent Hal Mullen to tend to their horses while she accompanied Renly back to the royal pavilion at the heart of the encampment. Inside the walls of green silk, his captains and lords' bannermen were waiting to hear word of the parley. "'My brother has not changed,' the young king told them, as Brian unfastened his cloak and lifted the golden jade crown from his brow. "'Castles and courtesies will not appease him. He must have blood. "'Well, I am of a mind to grant his wish.' "'Your Grace, I see no need for battle here,' Lord Mathis Rowan put in. "'The castle is strongly garrisoned and well provisioned. "'Sir Courtney Penrose is a seasoned commander, "'and the trebuchet has not been built that could breach the walls of Storm's End. "'Let Lord Stannis have his siege. "'He will find no joy in it, "'and whilst he sits cold and hungry and profitless, "'we will take King's Landing.' And have men say, I've feared to face Stannis? Only fools will say that, Lord Mathis argued. Renly looked to the others. What say you all? I say that Stannis is a danger to you, Lord Randall Tarley declared. Leave him unblooded, and he will only grow stronger, while your own power is diminished by battle. The Lannisters will not be beaten in a day. By the time you are done with them, Lord Stannis may be as strong as you, or stronger. 
Others chorused their agreement. The king looked pleased. We shall fight, then. I have failed Rob, as I failed Ned, Catelyn thought. My lord, she announced, if you are set on battle, my purpose here is done. I ask your leave to return to Riverrun. You do not have it. Renly seated himself on a camp chair. She stiffened. I had hoped to help you to make peace, my lord. I will not help you to make a war. Renly gave a shrug. I dare say we'll prevail without your five-and-twenty, my lady. I do not mean for you to take part in the battle, only to watch it. I was at the Whispering Wood, my lord. I've seen enough butchery. I came here an envoy. And an envoy you shall leave, Renly said, but wiser than you came. You shall see what befalls rebels with your own eyes, so your son can hear it from your own lips. We'll keep you safe, never fear. He turned away to make his dispositions. Lord Mathis, you shall lead the centre of my main battle. Bryce, you'll have the left. The right is mine. Lord Estamont, you shall command the reserve. I shall not fail you, your grace, Lord Estamont replied. Lord Mathis Rowan spoke up. Who shall have the van? Oh, your grace, said Sir John Fossaway. I beg the honour. Beg all you like, said Sir Guyard the Green. By rights, it should be one of the seven who strikes the first blow. It takes more than a pretty cloak to charge a shield war, Randall Tarley announced. I was leading Mace Tyrell's van when you were still sucking on your mother's tit, Gaillard. A clamour filled the pavilion as other men loudly set forth their claims. The Knights of Summer, Catelyn thought. Renly raised a hand. Enough, my lords. If I had a dozen vans, all of you should have one. But the greatest glory by rights belongs to the greatest knight. Sir Loris shall strike the first blow. With a glad heart, your grace, the knight of flowers knelt before the king. Grant me your blessing, and a knight to ride beside me with your banner. Let the stag and rose go to battle side by side. Renly glanced about him. Brian, your grace, she was still armoured in her blue steel, though she had taken off her helm. The crowded tent was hot, and sweat plastered limp yellow hair to her broad, homely face. My place is at your side. I am your sworn shield. One of seven, the king reminded her. Never fear. Four of your fellows will be with me in the fight. Brian dropped to her knees. If I must part from your grace, grant me the honour of arming you for battle. Catelyn heard someone snigger behind her. She loves him, poor thing, she thought, sadly. She'd play his squire just to touch him, and never care how great a fool they think her. Granted, Renly said, now leave me, all of you. Even kings must rest before a battle. My lord, Catelyn said, there was a small sept in the last village we passed, if you will not permit me to depart for Riveron, grant me leave to go there and pray. As you will. Sir Robar, give Lady Stark safe escort to this sept.
but see that she returns to us by dawn. You might do well to pray yourself, Catelyn added. For victory? For wisdom. Renly laughed. Loris, stay and help me pray. It's been so long I've quite forgotten how. As to the rest of you, I want every man in place by first light, armed, armoured, and horsed. We shall give Stannis a dawn he will not soon forget. Dusk was falling when Catelyn left the pavilion. Sir Robar Royce fell in beside her. She knew him slightly, one of Bronze Yon's sons, comely in a rough-hewn way, a tawny warrior of some renown. Renly had gifted him with a rainbow cloak and a suit of blood-red armour, and named him one of his seven. "'You are a long way from the Vale, sir,' she told him. "'And you, far from Winterfell, my lady. "'I know what brought me here, but why have you come? "'This is not your battle, no more than it is mine. "'I made it my battle when I made Renly my king. "'The Royces are bannermen to House Aaron. "'My lord father owes Lady Lyser fealty as does his heir. "'A second son must find glory where he can.' Sir Robar shrugged. A man grows weary of tourneys. He could not be older than one and twenty, Catelyn thought, of an age with his king. But her king, her Rob, had more wisdom at fifteen than this youth had ever learned. Or so she prayed. In Catelyn's small corner of the camp, Shad was slicing carrots into a kettle. Hal Mullen was dicing with three of his Winterfell men, and Lucas Blackwood sat sharpening his dagger. "'Lady Stark,' Lucas said when he saw her, "'Mullen says it is to be battle at dawn.' "'Pal has the truth of it,' she answered. "'And a loose tongue as well, it would seem. "'Do we fight or flee?' "'We pray, Lucas,' she answered him. "'We pray.' Sansa. The longer you keep him waiting, the worse it will go for you, Sandor Clegane warned her. Sansa tried to hurry, but her fingers fumbled at buttons and knots. The hound was always rough-tongued, but something in the way he had looked at her filled her with dread. Had Joffrey found out about her meetings with Sedantas? Please, no, she thought, as she brushed out her hair. Sedantus was her only hope. I have to look pretty. Juff likes me to look pretty. He's always liked me in this gown, this colour. She smoothed the cloth down. The fabric was tight across her chest. When she emerged, Sansa walked on the hound's left, away from the burn side of his face. Tell me what I've done. Not you, your kingly brother. Rob's a traitor. Sansa knew the words by rote. I had no part in whatever he did. Gods be good, don't let it be the Kingslayer. If Rob had harmed Jamie Lannister, it would mean her life. She thought of Sir Ilion, and those terrible pale eyes staring pitilessly out of that gaunt, pockmarked face. The hound snorted. Ha! I trained you well, little bird. He conducted her to the lower bailey, where a crowd had gathered around the archery butts. Men moved aside to let them through. She could hear Lord Giles coughing. 
Loitering stable hands eyed her insolently, but Sir Horace Redwine averted his gaze as she passed, and his brother Hubber pretended not to see her. A yellow cat was dying on the ground, mewling piteously. A crossbow quarrel through its ribs. Sansa stepped around it, feeling ill. Sodontus approached on his broomstick horse. Since he'd been too drunk to mount his destrier the tawny, the king had decreed that henceforth he must always go horsed. Be brave, he whispered, squeezing her arm. Joffrey stood in the centre of the throng, winding an ornate crossbow. Sir Boris and Sir Merrin were with him. The sight of them was enough to tie her insides in knots. Your grace, she fell to her knees. Kneeling won't save you now, the king said. Stand up. You are here to answer for your brother's latest treasons. Your grace, whatever my traitor brother has done, I had no part. You know that. I beg you, please, get her up. The hound pulled her to her feet, not ungently. Salonsel, Joff said. Tell her of this outrage. Sansa had always thought Lancel Lannister calmly and well-spoken, but there was neither pity nor kindness in the look he gave her. Using some vile sorcery, your brother fell upon Sir Stafford Lannister with an army of wargs, not three days' ride from Lannisport. Thousands of good men were butchered as they slept without the chance to lift sword. After the slaughter, the Northmen feasted on the flesh of the slain. Horror coiled cold hands around Sansa's throat. You have nothing to say? asked Joffrey. Your grace, the poor child, is shocked witless, murmured Sir Dantus. Silence, fool! Joffrey lifted his crossbow and pointed it at her face. You Starks are as unnatural as those wolves of yours. I've not forgotten how your monster savaged me. That was Arya's wolf, she said. Lady never hurt you, but you killed her anyway. No, your father did, Joff said. But I killed your father. I wish I'd done it myself. I killed a man last night who was bigger than your father. They came to the gates, shouting my name, and calling for bread, like I was some baker. But I taught them better. I shot the loudest of them, right through the throat. And he died. With the ugly head of the quarrel staring her in the face, it was hard to think what else to say. Of course he died. He had my quarrel in his throat. There was a woman throwing rocks. I got her as well, but only in the arm. Frowning, he lowered the crossbow. I'd shoot you too, but if I do, Mother says, they'd kill my Uncle Jamie. Instead, you'll just be punished, and we'll send word to your brother about what will happen to you if he doesn't yield. Dog, hit her. Let me beat her. Sir Dantus shoved forward, tin armor clattering. He was armed with a morning star whose head was a melon. My Florian. She could have kissed him, blotchy skin and broken veins and all. He trotted his broomstick around her, shouting, Traitor! Traitor! and whacking her over the head with a melon. Sansa covered herself with her hands, staggering every time the fruit pounded her 
a hair sticky by the second blow. People were laughing. The melon flew to pieces. Laugh, Joffrey, she prayed, as the juice ran down her face and the front of her blue silk gown. Laugh and be satisfied. Joffrey did not so much as snigger. Boris! Merrin! Sir Merrin Trant seized Dantis by the arm and flung him brusquely away. The red-faced fool went sprawling, broomstick, melon and all. Sir Boris seized Sansa. Leave her face, Joffrey commanded. I like her pretty. Boris slammed a fist into Sansa's belly, driving the air out of her. When she doubled over, the knight grabbed her hair and drew his sword, and for one hideous instant she was certain he meant to open her throat. As he lay the flat of the blade across her thighs, she thought her legs might break from the force of the blow. Sansa screamed. Tears welled in her eyes. It will be over soon. She soon lost count of the blows. Enough! She heard the hound rasp. No, it isn't, the king replied. Boris, make her naked. Boris shoved a meaty hand on the front of Sansa's bodice and gave a hard yank. The silk came tearing away, bearing her to the waist. Sansa covered her breast with her hands. She could hear sniggers, far off and cruel. Beat her, bloody, Joffrey said. We'll see how her brother fancies. What is the meaning of this? The imp's voice cracked like a whip, and suddenly Sansa was free. She stumbled to her knees, arms crossed over her chest, her breath ragged. Is this your notion of chivalry, Sir Boris? Tyrion Lannister demanded angrily. His pet sellsword stood with him, and one of his wildlings, the one with the burned eye. What sort of knight beats helpless maids? The sword who serves his king, imp. Sir Boris raised his sword, and Sir Merrin stepped up beside him, his blade scraping clean of its scabbard. Careful with those, warned the dwarf's sellsword. You don't want to get blood all over those pretty white cloaks. Someone give the girl something to cover herself with, the imp said. Sandor Clegane unfastened his cloak and tossed it at her. Sansa clutched it against her chest, fists bunched hard in the white wall. The coarse weave was scratchy against her skin, but no velvet ever felt so fine. This girl's to be your queen, the imp told Joffrey. Have you no regard for her honor? I'm punishing her. For what crime? She did not fight her brother's battle. She has the blood of a wolf, and you have the wits of a goose. You can't talk to me that way. The king can do as he likes. Eris Targaryen did as he liked. Has your mother ever told you what happened to him? Sir Boris Blunt harumped. No man threatens his grace in the presence of the king's guard. Tyrion Lannister raised an eyebrow. I'm not threatening the king, sir. I'm educating my nephew, Bran Timmit. The next time Sir Boris opens his mouth, kill him. The dwarf smiled. Now that was a threat, sir. See the difference? Sir Boris turned a dark shade of red. 
The Queen will hear of this. No doubt she will. And why wait? Joffrey, shall we send for your mother? The king flushed. Nothing to say, your grace, his uncle went on. Good. Learn to use your ears more and your mouth less, or your reign will be shorter than I am. Wanton brutality is no way to win your people's love, or your queen's. Fear is better than love, mother says. Joffrey pointed at Sansa. She fears me. The imp sighed. Yes, I see. A pity Stannis and Renly aren't twelve-year-old girls as well. Bran, Timmit, bring her. Sansa moved as if in a dream. She thought the imp's men would take her back to her bedchamber in Magor's Holefast, but instead they conducted her to the Tower of the Hand. She had not set foot inside that place since the day her father fell from grace, and it made her feel faint to climb those steps again. Some serving girls took charge of her, mouthing meaningless comforts to stop her shaking. One stripped off the ruins of her gown and small clothes, and another bathed her and washed the sticky juice from her face and her hair. As they scrubbed her down with soap and sluiced warm water over her head, all she could see were the faces from the bailey. Knights are sworn to defend the weak, protect women, and fight for the right but none of them did a thing. Only a Sedantus had tried to help, and he was no longer a knight, no more than the imp was, nor the hound. The hound hated knights. I hate them too, Sansa thought. They are no true knights, not one of them. After she was clean, plump, ginger-headed Maester Franken came to see her. He bid her lie face down on the mattress, while he spread a salve across the angry red welts that covered the backs of her legs. Afterwards, he mixed her a draught of dream wine, with some honey so it might go down easier. Sleep a bit, child. When you awake, all this will seem a bad dream. No, it won't, you stupid man, Sansa thought. But she drank the dream wine anyway, and slept. It was dark when she woke again, not quite knowing where she was, the room both strange and strangely familiar. As she rose, a stab of pain went through her legs and brought it all back. Tears filled her eyes. Someone had laid out a robe for her beside the bed. Sansa slipped it on and opened the door. Outside stood a hard-faced woman with leathery brown skin. Three necklaces looped about her scrawny neck. One was gold, and one was silver, and one was made of human ears. "'Where does she think she's going?' the woman asked, leaning on a tall spear. "'The gods would. She had to find Sardantus, beg him to take her home now, before it was too late.' "'The half-man says you're not to leave,' the woman says. "'Pray here. The gods will hear.' Meekly, Sansa dropped her eyes and retreated back inside. She realized suddenly why this place seemed so familiar. They've put me in Arya's old bedchamber, from when father was the hand of the king. All her things are gone, and the furnishings have been moved around, but it's the same. A short time later, a serving girl 
bought a platter of cheese and bread and olives with a flagon of cold water. Take it away, Sansa commanded, but the girl left the food on a table. She was thirsty, she realized. Every step sent knives through her thighs, but she made herself cross the room. She drank two cups of water and was nibbling on an olive when the knock came. Anxiously, she turned toward the door, smoothed down the folds of a robe. Yes? The door opened, and Tyrion Lannister stepped inside. My lady, I trust I am not disturbing you. Am I your prisoner? My guest? He was wearing his chain of office, a necklace of linked golden hands. I, I thought we might talk. As my lord commands, Sansa found it hard not to stare. His face was so ugly it held a queer fascination for her. The food and garments are to your satisfaction, he asked. If there is anything else you need, you have only to ask. You are most kind. And this morning, it was very good of you to help me. You have a right to know why Joffrey was so wroth. Six nights gone, your brother fell upon my uncle Stafford and camped with his host at a village called Oxcross, not three days' ride from Casterly Rock. Your northerners won a crushing victory. We received word only this morning. Rob will kill you all, she thought, exulting. It's terrible, my lord. My brother is a vile traitor. The dwarf smiled wanly. Well, he's no fawn. He's made that clear enough. Sir Lancel said Rob led an army of wags. The imp gave a disdainful bark of laughter. Sir <laughs> Lancel's a wineskin warrior who wouldn't know a wag from a wart. Your brother had his dire wolf with him, but I suspect that's as far as it went. The Northman crept into my uncle's camp and cut his horse lines, and Lord Stark sent his wolf among them. Even war-trained destriers went mad. Knights were trampled to death in their pavilions, and the rabble woke in terror and fled, casting aside their weapons to run the faster. Sir Stafford was slain as he chased after a horse. Lord Rickard Carstark drove a lance through his chest. Sir Rupert Brax is also dead, along with Sir Lyman Vickery, Lord Craycall, and Lord Just. Half a hundred more have been taken captive, including Just's sons and my nephew, Martin Lannister. Those who survived are spreading wild tales and swearing that the old gods of the North march with your brother. Then there was no sorcery? Lannister snorted. Ha! <laughs> Sorcery is the sauce fool's spoon over failure to hide the flavor of their own incompetence. My mutton-headed uncle had not even troubled to post centuries, it would seem. His host was raw, apprentice boys, miners, field hands, fisher folk, the sweepings of Lannisport. The only mystery is how your brother reached him. Our forces still hold the stronghold at the Golden Tooth, and they swear he did not pass. The dwarf gave an irritated shrug. Well, Rob Stark is my father's bane. Joffrey is mine. Tell me, what do you feel for my kingly nephew? I love him with all my heart, 
Sansa said at once. Truly, he did not sound convinced. Even now, my love for his grace is greater than it ever has been. The imp laughed aloud. Well, someone has taught you to lie well. You may be grateful for that one day, child. You are a child still, are you not? Or have you flowered? Sansa blushed. It was a rude question, but the shame of being stripped before half the castle made it seem like nothing. No, my lord. Oh, that's all to the good. If it gives you any solace, I do not intend that you ever wed Joffrey. No marriage will reconcile Stark and Lannister after all that has happened, I fear. More's the pity. The match was one of King Robert's better notions, if Joffrey hadn't mucked it up. She knew she ought to say something, but the words caught in her throat. You grow very quiet, Tyrion Lannister observed. Is this what you want? An end to your betrothal? I... Sansa did not know what to say. Is it a trick? Will he punish me if I tell the truth? She stared at the dwarf's brutal, bulging brow, the hard black eye, and the shrewd green one, the crooked teeth and wiry beard. I only want to be loyal. Loyal, the dwarf mused, and far from any Lannisters. I can scarce blame you for that. When I was your age, I wanted the same thing, he smiled. They tell me you visit the God's Wood every day. What do you pray for, Sansa? I pray for Rob's victory, and Joff's death, and for home, for Winterfell. I pray for an end to the fighting. We'll have that soon enough. There will be another battle between your brother Rob and my lord father, and that will settle the issue. Rob will beat him, Sansa thought. He beat your uncle and your brother Jamie. He'll beat your father, too. It was as if her face were an open book. So easily did the dwarf read her hopes. Do not take Oxcross too much to art, my lady, he told her, not unkindly. A battle is not a war, and my lord father is assuredly not my uncle Stafford. The next time you visit the godswood, pray that your brother has the wisdom to bend the knee. Once the north returns to the king's peace, I mean to send you home. He hopped down off the window seat and said, You may sleep here tonight. I'll give you some of my own men as a guard. Some stone crows, perhaps. No. Sansa blurted out aghast. If she was locked in the Tower of the Hand, guarded by the dwarf's men, how would Sir Dantas ever spirit her away to freedom? Would you prefer black ears? I'll give you chala, if a woman would make you more at ease. Please, no, my lord. The wildlings frighten me. He grinned. Me as well. But more to the point, they frighten Joffrey and that nest of sly vipers, and lick spittle dogs he calls a king's guard. With Chella or Timid by your side, no one would dare offer you arm. I would sooner return to my own bed. A lie came to her suddenly, but it seemed so right that she blurted it out at once. This tower was where my father's men were slain. Their ghosts would give me 
terrible dreams, and I would see their blood wherever I looked. Tyrion Lannister studied her face. I am no stranger to nightmares, Sansa. Perhaps you are wiser than I knew. Permit me at least to escort you safely back to your own chambers. Catelyn It was full dark before they found the village. Catelyn found herself wondering if the place had a name. If so, its people had taken that knowledge with them when they fled, along with all they owned, down to the candles in the sept. So Wendell lit a torch and led her through the low door. Within, the seven walls were cracked and crooked. God is one, Septon Osmond had taught her when she was a girl, with seven aspects, as the sept is a single building with seven walls. The wealthy septs of the cities had statues of the seven, and an altar to each. In Winterfell, Septon Shale hung carved masks from each wall. Here, Catelyn found only rough charcoal drawings. Sir Wendell set the torch in a sconce near the door and left to wait outside with Robar Royce. Catelyn studied the faces. The father was bearded as ever. The mother smiled, loving and protective. The warrior had his sword sketched in beneath his face. The smith, his hammer. The maid was beautiful, the crone wizened and wise, and the seventh face, the stranger, was neither male nor female, yet both, ever the outcast, the wanderer from fireplaces, less and more than human, unknown and unknowable. Here the face was a black oval, a shadow with stars for eyes. It made Catelyn uneasy. She would get scant comfort there. She knelt before the mother. My lady, look down on this battle with a mother's eyes. They are all sons, every one. Spare them if you can, and spare my own sons as well. Watch over Rob and Bran and Rickon. Would that I were with them. A crack ran down through the mother's left eye. It made her look as if she were crying. Catelyn could hear Sir Wendell's booming voice and now and again Sir Robar's quiet answers, as they talked of the coming battle. Otherwise, the night was still. Not even a cricket could be heard, and the guards kept their silence. Did your old guards ever answer you, Ned? She wondered. When you knelt before your heart tree, did they hear you? Flickering torchlight danced across the walls, making the faces seem half alive, twisting them, changing them. The statues in the great septs of the cities wore the faces the stonemasons had given them, but these charcoal scratchings were so crude they might be anyone. The father's face made her think of her own father dying in his bed at Riveron. The warrior was Renly and Stannis, Rob and Robert, Jamie Lannister and Jon Snow. She even glimpsed Arya in those lines, just for an instant. Then a gust of wind through the door made the torch sputter, and the semblance was gone, washed away in orange glare. The smoke was making her eyes burn. She rubbed at them with the heels of her scarred hands. When she looked up at the mother again, 
It was her own mother she saw. Lady Minister Tully had died in childbed, trying to give Lord Huster a second son. The baby had perished with her, and afterward some of the life had gone out of father. She was always so calm, Catelyn thought, remembering her mother's soft hands, her warm smile. If she had lived, how different our lives might have been. She wondered what Lady Minister would make of her eldest daughter, kneeling here before her. I have come so many thousands of leagues, and for what? Who have I served? I've lost my daughters. Rob does not want me. And Bran and Rickon must surely think me a cold and unnatural mother. I was not even with Ned when he died. Her head swam, and the sept seemed to move around her. The shadows swayed and shifted, furtive animals racing across the cracked white walls. Catelyn had not eaten today. Perhaps that had been unwise. She told herself that there had been no time, but the truth was that food had lost its savour in a world without Ned. When they took his head off, they killed me too. Behind her the torch spit, and suddenly it seemed to her that it was her sister's face on the wall though the eyes were harder than she recalled. Not Lysa's eyes, but Cersei's. Cersei is a mother, too. No matter who fathered those children, she felt them kick inside her, brought them forth with her pain and blood, nursed them at her breast. If they are truly Jamie's. Does Cersei pray to you, too, my lady? Catelyn asked the mother. She could see the proud, cold, lovely features of the Lannister Queen etched upon the wall. The crack was still there. Even Cersei could weep for her children. Each of the seven embodies all of the seven, Septon Osmond had told her once. There was as much beauty in the crone as in the maiden, and the mother could be fiercer than the warrior when her children were in danger. Yes. She had seen enough of Robert Baratheon at Winterfell to know that the king did not regard Joffrey with any great warmth. If the boy was truly Jamie's seed, Robert would have put him to death, along with his mother, and few would have condemned him. Bastards were common enough, but incest was a monstrous sin to both old gods and new, and the children of such wickedness were named abominations, incept and godswood alike. The Dragon Kings had wed brother to sister, but they were the blood of old Valyria, where such practices had been common. And like their dragons, the Targaryens answered to neither gods nor men. Ned must have known, and Lord Aaron before him. Small wonder that the Queen had killed them both. Would I do any less for my own? Catelyn clenched her hands, feeling the tightness in her scarred fingers where the assassin's steel had cut to the bone as she fought to save her son. Bran knows too, she whispered, lowering her head. Gods be good. He must have seen something, heard something. That was why they had tried to kill him in his bed. Lost and weary, Catelyn Stark gave herself over to her gods. She knelt before the smith, who fixed things that were broken, and asked that he give her sweet Bran his protection. She went to the maid, and beseeched her to lend her courage to Arya and Sansa, to guard them in their innocence. To the father she prayed for justice, the strength to seek it, and the wisdom to know it. 
and she asked the warrior to keep Rob strong and shield him in his battles. Lastly, she turned to the crone, whose statues often showed her with a lamp in one hand. Guide me, wise lady, she prayed. Show me the path I must walk, and do not let me stumble in the dark places that lie ahead. Finally, there were footsteps behind her, and a noise at the door. My lady, Sir Robar said gently, pardon, but our time is at an end. We must be back before the dawn breaks. Catelyn rose stiffly. Her knees ached, and she would have given much for a feather bed and a pillow just then. Thank you, sir. I am ready. They rode in silence through sparse woodland, where the trees leaned drunkenly away from the sea. The nervous whinny of horses and the clank of steel guided them back to Rendy's camp. The long ranks of man and horse were armoured in darkness, as black as if the smith had hammered night itself into steel. There were banners to her right, banners to her left, and rank on rank of banners before her. But in the pre-dawn gloom neither colours nor sigils could be discerned. A grey army, Catelyn thought, grey men on grey horses beneath grey banners. As they sat their horses waiting, Renly's shadow knights pointed their lances upward, so she rode through a forest of tall naked trees bereft of leaves and life. Where Storm's End stood was only a deeper darkness, a wall of black, through which no stars could shine, but she could see torches moving across the fields where Lord Stannis had made his camp. The candles within Renly's pavilion made the shimmering silken walls seem to glow, transforming the great tent into a magical castle alive with emerald light. Two of the rainbow guards stood sentry at the door to the royal pavilion. The green light shone strangely against the purple plums of Sir Parman's surcoat, and gave a sickly hue to the sunflowers that covered every inch of Sir Eamon's enameled yellow plate. Long silken plumes flew from their helms, and rainbow cloaks draped their shoulders. Within, Catelyn found Brian armoring the king for battle, while the lords Tarly and Rowan spoke of dispositions and tactics. It was pleasantly warm inside, the heat shimmering off the curls of a dozen small braziers. "'I must speak with you, your grace,' she said, granting him a king's style for once, anything to make him heed her. "'In a moment, Lady Catelyn,' Renly replied. Brian fit backplate to breastplate over his quilted tunic. The king's armour was a deep green, the green of leaves in a summer wood. So dark it drank the candlelight. Gold highlights gleamed from inlay and fastenings like distant fires in that wood, winking every time he moved. Pray continue, Lord Mathis. Your Grace, Mathis Rowan said, with a sideways glance at Catelyn, as I was saying, our, our battles are well drawn up. Why wait for daybreak? Sound the advance. And have it said that I won by treachery, with non-chivalrous attack? Dawn was the chosen hour. "'Chosen by Stannis,' Randall Tarly pointed out. "'He'd have us charge into the teeth of the rising sun. "'We'll be half blind.' "'Only until first shock,' Renly said confidently. "'Sir Loras will break them, and after that it will be chaos.' "'Brian tightened green leather straps and buckled golden buckles. 
When my brother falls, see that no insult is done to his corpse. He is my own blood. I will not have his head paraded about on the spear. And if he yields? Lord Tarley asked. Yields? <laughs> Lord Rowan laughed. When Mace Tyrell laid siege to Storm's End, Stannis ate rats rather than open his gates. Well, I remember. Renly lifted his chin to allow Brian to fasten his gorget in place. Near the end, Sir Gawain Wilde and three of his knights tried to steal out of a postern gate to surrender. Stannis caught them and ordered them flung from the walls with catapults. I can still see Gawain's face as they strapped him down. He'd been our master at arms. Lord Rowan appeared puzzled. No men were hurled from the walls. I, I surely remember that. Maester Cressin told Stannis that we might be forced to eat our dead, and there was no gain in flinging away good meat. Renly pushed back his hair. Brian bound it with a velvet tie and pulled a padded cap down over his ears to cushion the weight of his helm. Thanks to the Onion Knight, we were never reduced to dining on corpses, but it was a close thing, too close for Sir Gawain, who died in his cell. Your Grace, Catelyn had waited patiently, but time grew short. You promised me a word. Renly nodded. Siege your battles, my lord. Oh, and if Barristan Selmy is at my brother's side, I want him spared. There's been no word of Sir Barristan since Joffrey cast him out, Lord Rowan objected. I know that old man. He needs a king to guard, or who is he? Yet he never came to me, and Lady Catelyn says he is not with Rob Stark at Riveron. Where else but with Stannis? As you say, your, your grace, no harm will come to him. The lords bowed deeply and departed. Say you say, Lady Stark, Brindley said. Brian swept his cloak over his broad shoulders. It was cloth of gold, heavy, with a crown stag of Baratheon picked out in flakes of jet. The Lannisters tried to kill my son, Bran. A thousand times I have asked myself why. Your brother gave me my answer. There was a hunt the day he fell. Robert and Ned and most of the other men rode out after the boar, but Jamie Lannister remained at Winterfell, as did the Queen. Renlier was not slow to take the implication. So, you believe the boy caught them at their incest? I beg you, my lord, grant me leave to go to your brother Stannis and tell him what I suspect. To what end? Rob will set aside the crown if you and your brother will do the same, she said, hoping it was true. She would make it true if she must. Rob would listen to her, even if his lords would not. Let the three of you call for a great council, such as the realm has not seen for a hundred years. We will send to Winterfell, so Bran may tell his tale and all men may know the Lannisters for the true usurpers. Let the assembled lords of the seven kingdoms choose who shall rule them. Renly laughed. <laughs> Tell me, my lady, did direwolves vote on who should lead the pack? Brian brought the king's gauntlets and great helm, crowned with golden antlers that would add a foot and a half to his height. The time for talk is done. Now we will see who is stronger. Renly pulled a lobstered green and gold gauntlet over his left hand, while Brian knelt to buckle on his belt, heavy with the weight of a long sword and dagger. I beg you, in the name of the mother, 
Catelyn began when a sudden gust of wind flung open the door of the tent. She thought she'd glimpsed movement. But when she turned her head, it was only the king's shadow shifting against the silken walls. She heard Renly begin a jest, his shadow moving, lifting its sword, black on green, candles guttering, shivering. Something was queer, wrong. And then she saw Renly's sword still in its cabin, sheathed still, but the shadow sword. Cold, said Renly in a small, puzzled voice, a heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small, thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. Your great no cried Brian the Blue, when she saw that evil flow, sounding as scared as any little girl. The king stumbled into her arms, a sheet of blood creeping down the front of his armour, a dark red tide that drowned his green and gold. More candles guttered out. Renly tried to speak, but he was choking on his own blood. His legs collapsed and only Brian's strength held him up. She threw back her head and screamed, wordless in her anguish. The shadow. Something dark and evil had happened here, she knew. Something that she could not begin to understand. Renly never cast that shadow. Death came in that door and blew the life out of him, as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles. Only a few instants passed before Robar Royce and Eamon Kai came bursting in, though it felt like half the night. A pair of men-at-arms crowded in behind with torches. When they saw Renly in Brian's arms and her drenched with the king's blood, Sir Robar gave a cry of horror. "'Wicked woman!' screamed Sir Eamon, he of the sun-flowered steel. "'Away from him, you vile creature!' "'Gods be good, Brian, why?' asked Sir Robar. Brian looked up from her king's body. The rainbow cloak that hung from her shoulders had turned red where the king's blood had soaked into the cloth. I, I... You'll die for this! Sir Eamon snatched up a long-handled battle-axe from the weapons pile near the door. You'll pay for the king's life with your own! No! Catelyn Stark screamed, finding her voice at last. But it was too late. The blood madness was on them and they rushed forward with shouts that drowned her softer words. Brian moved faster than Catelyn would have believed. Her own sword was not to hand, so she snatched Renly's from his scabbard and raised it to catch Eamon's axe on the downswing. A spark flashed blue-white as steel met steel with a rending crash, and Brian sprang to her feet, the body of the dead king thrust rudely aside. Sir Eamon stumbled over it as he tried to close, and Brian's blade sheared through the wooden haft to send his axe head spinning. Another man thrust a flaming torch at her back, but the rainbow cloak was too sudden with blood to burn. Brian spun and cut, and torch and hand went flying. Flames crept across the carpet. The maimed man began to scream. Sir Eamon dropped the axe and fumbled for his sword. The second man at arms lunged. Brian parried, and their swords danced and clanged against each other. When Eamon Kai came wading back in, 
Bryeen was forced to retreat, yet somehow she held them both at bay. On the ground, Renly's head rolled sickeningly to one side, and a second mouth yawned wide, the blood coming from him now in slow pulses. Sir Robar had hung back, uncertain, but now he was reaching for his hilt. Robar, no, listen! Catelyn seized his arm. You do her wrong. It was not her. Help her! Hear me, it was Stannis! The name was on her lips before she could think how it got there. But as she said it, she knew that it was true. I swear it, you know me, it was Stannis killed him! The young Rainbow Knight stared at this mad woman with pale and frightened eyes. Stannis? How? I do not know. Sorcery, some dark magic. There was a shadow, a, a shadow. Her own voice sounded wild and crazed to her, but the words poured out in a rush as the blades continued to clash behind her. A shadow with a sword, I swear it, I, I, I saw. Are you blind? The girl loved him. Help her. She glanced back, saw the second guardsman fall, his blade dropping from limp fingers. Outside, there was shouting. More angry men would be bursting in on them any instant, she knew. She is innocent, Robar. You have my word on my husband's grave and my honor as a Stark. That resolved him. I will hold them, Sir Robar said. Get her away. He turned and went out. The fire had reached the wall and was creeping up the side of the tent. Sir Eamon was pressing Brian hard, him in his enameled yellow steel and her in wool. He had forgotten Catelyn until the iron brazier came crashing into the back of his head. Helmed as he was, the blow did no lasting harm, but it sent him to his knees. Brain, with me! Catelyn commanded. The girl was not slow to see the chance. A slash, and the green silk parted. They stepped out into darkness and the chill of dawn. Loud voices came from the other side of the pavilion. This way, Catelyn urged. And slowly, we must not run, or they will ask why. Walk easy, as if nothing were amiss. Brian thrust her sword blade through her belt and fell in beside Catelyn. The night air smelled of rain. Behind them the king's pavilion was well ablaze, flames rising high against the dark. No one made any move to stop them. Men rushed past them, shouting of fire and murder and sorcery. Others stood in small groups and spoke in low voices. A few were praying, and one young squire was on his knees, sobbing openly. Renly's battles were already coming apart as the rumors spread from mouth to mouth. The night fires had burned low, and as the east began to lighten, the immense mass of Storm's End emerged like a dream of stone, while wisps of pale mist raced across the field, flying from the sun on wings of wind. Morning ghosts, she'd heard old Nan call them once, spirits returning to their graves. And Renly, one of them now, gone like his brother Robert, like her own dear Ned. I never held him, but as he died, Brian said quietly as they walked through the spreading chaos. Her voice sounded as if she might break at any instant. He was laughing one moment, and suddenly the blood was... Everywhere, my lady, I, I do not understand. Did you see? Did you? I saw a shadow. I thought it was Renly's shadow at first. 
but it was his brother's. Lord Stannis? I felt him. It makes no sense, I know. It made sense enough for Brian. I will kill him, the tall homely girl declared. With my lord's own sword, I will kill him. I swear it. I swear it. I swear it. Hal Mullen and the rest of her escort were waiting with the horses. Sir Wendell Manderley was all of a leather to know what was happening. My lady, the camp has gone mad, he blurted when he saw them. Lord Rinley is here. He stopped suddenly, staring at Brian and the blood that drenched her. Dead, but not by our hands. The battle, Hal Marlon began. There will be no battle. Catelyn mounted, and her escort formed up about her, with Sir Wendell to her left and Sir Perrin Frey on her right. Brian, we brought Manson up for twice our number. Choose one, and come with us. I have my own horse, my lady, and my armor. Leave them. We must be well away before they think to look for us. We were both with the king when he was killed. That will not be forgotten. Wordless, Brian turned and did as she was bid. Ride, Catelyn commanded her escort when they were all a horse. If any man tries to stop us, cut him down. As the long fingers of dawn fanned across the fields, color was returning to the world. Where grey men had sat grey horses armed with shadow spears, the points of ten thousand lances now glinted silverly cold, and on the myriad flapping banners Catelyn saw the blush of red and pink and orange, the richness of blues and browns, the blaze of gold and yellow. All the power of Storm's End and High Garden, the power that had been Renly's an hour ago. They belong to Stannis now, she realized, even if they do not know it themselves yet. Where else are they to turn, if not to the last Baratheon? Stannis has won all with a single evil stroke. I am the rightful king, he had declared, his jaw clenched hard as iron, and your son, no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. A chill went through her. John. The hill jutted above the dense tangle of forest, rising solitary and sudden, its windswept heights visible for miles off. The wildlings called it the fist of the first men, rangers said. It did look like a fist, John Snow thought, punching up through the earth and wood, its bare brown slopes knuckled with stone. He rode to the top, with Lord Mormont and the officers, leaving ghosts below under the trees. The direwolf had run off three times as they climbed, twice returning reluctantly to John's whistle. The third time, the Lord Commander lost patience and snapped, Let him go, boy! I want to reach the crest before dusk! Find the wolf later! The way up was steep and stony, the summit crowned by a chest-high wall of tumbled rocks. They had to circle some distance west before they found a gap large enough to admit the horses. This is good ground, Thorin, the old bear proclaimed when at last they attained the top. We could scarce hope for better. We'll make our camp here to await half hand. The Lord Commander swung down off his saddle, dislodging the raven from his shoulder. 
Complaining loudly, the bird took to the air. The views atop the hill were bracing, yet it was the ring wall that drew John's eye, the weathered grey stones with their white patches of lichen, their beards of green moss. It was said that the fist had been a ring fort of the first men in the dawn age. An old place and st strong, Thorin Smallwood said. Old! Mormont's raven screamed as it flapped in noisy circles about their heads. Old! 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 Quiet! Mormont growled at the bird. The old bear was too proud to admit to weakness, but John was not deceived. The strain of keeping up with younger men was taking its toll. These heights will be easy to d defend if need be, Thorin pointed out as he walked his horse along the ring of stones, his sable-trimmed cloak stirring in the wind. Yes, this place will do. The old bear lifted a hand to the wind, and Raven landed on his vorham, claws scrabbling against the black ringmail. What about water, my lord? John wondered. We crossed a brook at the foot of the hill. Long climb for a drink, John pointed out, and outside the ring of stones. Thorin said, Are you too lazy to climb a hill, boy? When Lord Mormon said, We're not like to find another place as strong, we'll carry water and make certain we're well supplied. John knew better than to argue. So the command was given, and the brothers of the Night's Watch raised their camp behind the stone ring the first men had made. Black tents sprouted like mushrooms after a rain, and blankets and bedrolls covered the bare ground. Stuarts tethered the garrons in long lines and saw them fed and watered. Foresters took their axes to the trees in the waning afternoon light to harvest enough wood to see them through the night. A score of builders set to clearing brush, digging latrines, and untying their bundles of fire-hardened stakes. I will have every opening in the ring wall ditched and staked before dark, the old bear had commanded. Once he'd put up the Lord Commander's tent and seen to their horses, John Snow descended the hill in search of ghost. The direwolf came at once, all in silence. One moment John was striding beneath the trees, whistling and shouting, alone in the green, pine cones and fallen leaves under his feet. The next— the great white direwolf was walking beside him, pale as morning mist. But when they reached the ring fort, Ghost balked again. He padded forward wearily to sniff at the gap in the stones, and then retreated, as if he did not like what he smelled. John tried to grab him by the scruff of his neck and haul him bodily inside the ring. No easy task. The wolf weighed as much as he did, and was stronger by far. Ghost, what's wrong with you? It was not like him to be so unsettled. In the end, John had to give it up. As you will, he told the wolf. Go, hunt. The red eyes watched him as he made his way back through the mossy stones. They ought to be safe here. The hill offered commanding views, and the slopes were precipitous to the north and west, and only slightly more gentle to the east. Yet as the dawn deepened and darkness seeped into the hollows between the trees, John's sense of foreboding grew. This is the haunted forest, he told himself. Maybe there are ghosts here, the spirits of the first men. This was their place once. Stop acting the boy, 
he told himself. Clambering atop the piled rocks, John gazed off toward the setting sun. He could see the light shimmering like hammered gold off the surface of the milk water as it curved away to the south. Upriver, the land was more rugged, the dense forest giving way to a series of bare, stony hills that rose high and wild to the north and west. On the horizon stood the mountains, like a great shadow, range on range of them, receding into the blue-gray distance, their jagged peaks sheathed eternally in snow. Even from afar they looked vast and cold and inhospitable. Closer at hand it was the trees that ruled. To south and east the wood went on as far as John could see, a vast tangle of root and limb painted in a thousand shades of green, with here and there a patch of red where a weirwood shouldered through the pines and sentinels, or a blush of yellow where some broad leaves had begun to turn. When the wind blew, he could hear the creak and groan of branches older than he was. A thousand leaves fluttered, and for a moment the forest seemed a deep green sea, storm-tossed and heaving eternal and unknowable. Ghost was not like to be alone down there, he thought. Anything could be moving under that sea, creeping toward the ring-fort through the dark of the wood, concealed beneath those trees. Anything. How would they ever know? He stood there for a long time, until the sun vanished behind the sawtoothed mountains and darkness began to creep through the forest. John! Samuel Tarley called up. I thought it looked like you. Are you well? Well enough, John hopped down. How did you fare today? Well, I fared well, truly. John was not about to share his disquiet with his friend, not when Samuel Tarley was at last beginning to find his courage. The old bear means to wait here for Corin Halfhand and the men from the Shadow Tower. It seems a strong place, said Sam, a ring fort of the first men. Do you think there were battles fought here? No doubt. You'd best get a bird ready. Mormont will want to send back word. I wish I could send them all. They ate being caged. You would, too, if you could fly. If I could fly, I'd be back at Castle Black eating a port pie, said Sam. John clapped him on the shoulder with his burned hand. They walked back through the camp together. Cook fires were being lit all around them. Overhead the stars were coming out. The long red tail of Mormont's torch burned as bright as the moon. John heard the ravens before he saw them. Some were calling his name. The birds were not shy when it came to making noise. They feel it too. I'd best see to the old bear, he said. He gets noisy when he isn't fed as well. He found Mormont talking with Thorin Smallwood and a half a dozen other officers. There you are, the old man said gruffly. Bring us some hot wine, if you would. The night is chilly. Yes, my lord. John built a cook fire, claimed a small cask of Mormont's favorite robust bread from stores, and poured it into a kettle. He hung the kettle above the flames while he gathered the rest of his ingredients. The old bear was particular about his hot spiced wine. So much cinnamon, and so much nutmeg, and so much honey, not a drop more. Raisins and nuts and dried berries, but no lemon. That was the rankest sort of southern heresy. 
which was queer, since he always took lemon in his morning beer. The drink must be hot, to warm a man properly, the Lord Commander insisted, but the wine must never be allowed to come to a boil. John kept a careful eye on the kettle. As he worked, he could hear the voices from inside the tent. Jarman Buckle said, The easiest road, up into the frostfangs, is to follow the milk water back to its source. Yet if we go that path, Raider will know of our approach, certain as sunrise. The giant stair might serve, said Sir Malador Locke, or the skirling pass, if it's clear. The wine was steaming. John lifted the kettle off the fire, filled eight cups, and carried them into the tent. The old bear was peering at the crude map Sam had drawn him that night back at Craster's Keep. He took a cup from John's tray, tried a swallow of the wine, and gave a brusque nod of approval. His raven hopped down his arm. Corn, it said. Corn, corn. Sir Ottin Withers waved the wine away. I would not go into the mountains at all, he said in a thin, tired voice. The frost fangs have a cruel bite, even in summer, and now, if we should be caught by a storm— I do not mean to risk the frost fangs unless I must, said Mormont. Wildlings can no more live on snow and stone than we can. They will emerge from the heights soon, and for a host of any size, the only route is along the milk water. If so, we are strongly placed here. They cannot hope to slip by us. They may not wish to. They are thousands, and we will be three hundred when the half-hand reaches us. Sir Malador accepted a cup from John. If it comes to battle, we could not hope for better ground than here, declared Mormont. We'll strengthen the defences, pits and spikes, calthops scattered on the slopes, every breach mended. Jarman, I'll want your sharpest eyes as watchers, a ring of them, all around us, and along the river, to warn of any approach. Hide them up in trees, and we'd best start bringing up water, too, more than we need. We'll dig cisterns. It will keep the men occupied, and may prove needful later. My rangers, started Thorin Smallwood, your rangers will limit their ranging to this side of the river until the half-hand reaches us. After that, we'll see. I will not lose more of my men. Mant Raider might be massing his host a day's ride from here, and we'd never know, Smallwood complained. We know where the wildlings are massing. Mormon came back. We had it from Crestron. I misliked the man, but I do not think he'd lie to us on this. As you say, Smallwood took a sullen leave. The others finished their wine and followed more courteously. "'Shall I bring your supper, my lord?' John asked. "'Corn!' the raven cried. Mormont did not answer at once. When he did, he said only, "'Did your wolf find game today?' "'He's not back yet. "'We could do with fresh meat.' Mormont dug into a sack and offered his raven a handful of corn. "'You think I'm wrong to keep the rangers close?' "'It's not for me to say, my lord.' "'It is, if you're asked.' If the rangers must stay in sight of the fist, I don't see how they can hope to find my uncle, John admitted. They can't, the raven pecked at the colonels in the old bear's palm. Two hundred men, or ten thousand, 
The country is too vast. The corn gone, Mormont turned his hand over. You would not give up the search? Maester Amon thinks you clever. Mormont moved the raven to his shoulder. The bird tilted its head to one side, little eyes aglitter. The answer was there. Is it? It seemed to me that it might be easier for one man to find two hundred than two hundred to find one. The raven gave a cackling scream, but the old bear smiled through the grey of his beard. This many men and horses leave a trail even Amon could follow. On this hill our fires ought to be visible as far off as the foothills of the Frostfangs. If Ben Stark is alive and free, he will come to us, I have no doubt. Yes, said John, but what if— He's dead? Mormont asked, not unkindly. John nodded, reluctantly. Dead, the raven said. Dead, dead. He may come to us anyway, the old bear said, as Arthur did, and Jaffa flowers. I dread that as much as you, John, but we must admit the possibility. Dead, the raven called, ruffling its wings. Its voice grew louder and more shrill. Dead! Mormont stroked the bird's black feathers and stifled a sudden yawn with the back of his hand. I will forsake supper, I believe. <sighs> Rest will serve me better. Wake me at first light. Sleep well, my lord. John gathered up the empty cups and stepped outside. He heard distant laughter, the plaintive sound of pipes. A great blaze was crackling in the centre of the camp and he could smell stew cooking. The old bear might not be hungry, but John was. He drifted over toward the fire. Dywin was holding forth, spoon in hand. I know this wood as well as any man alive, and I tell you, I wouldn't care to ride through it alone tonight. Can't you smell it? Gren was staring at him with wide eyes, but Dolorous Ed said, "'All I smell is the shit of two hundred horses, eh? "'And this stew, which has a similar aroma, now I come to sniff it.' "'I've got your similar aroma right here.' "'Hake patted his dirk. "'Grumbling, he filled John's bowl from the kettle. "'The stew was thick with barley, carrot and onion, "'with here and there a ragged shred of salt beef, "'softened in the cooking. "'What is it you smell, Dywin?' asked Gren. The forester sucked on his spoon for a moment. He had taken out his teeth. His face was leathery and wrinkled, his hands gnarled as old roots. Seems to me like it smells, well, cold. Your head's as wooden as your teeth, Hake told him. There's no smell to cold. There is, thought John, remembering the night in the Lord Commander's chambers. It smells like death. Suddenly, he was not hungry any more. He gave his stew to Gren, who looked in need of an extra supper to warm him against the night. The wind was blowing briskly when he left. By morning, frost would cover the ground, and the tent ropes would be stiff and frozen. A few fingers of spiced wine slushed in the bottom of the kettle. John fed fresh wood to the fire and put the kettle over the flames to reheat. He flexed his fingers as he waited, squeezing and spreading, until the hand tingled. The first watch had taken up their stations around the perimeter of the camp. Torches flickered all along the ring wall. The night was moonless, 
but a thousand stars shone overhead. A sound rose out of the darkness, faint and distant, but unmistakable, the howling of wolves. Their voices rose and fell, a chilly song, and lonely. It made the hairs rise along the back of his neck. Across the fire, a pair of red eyes regarded him from the shadows. The light of the flames made them glow. Ghost! John breathed, surprised. So you came inside after all, eh? The white wolf often hunted all night. He had not expected to see him again till daybreak. Was the hunting so bad? he asked. Here, to me, ghost. The dire wolf circled the fire, sniffing John, sniffing the wind, never still. It did not seem as if he were after meat right now. When the dead came walking, ghost knew. He woke me, warned me. Alarmed, he got to his feet. Is something out there? Ghost, do you have a scent? Dywin said he smelled cold. The dire wolf loped off, stopped, looked back. He wants me to follow. Pulling up the hood of his cloak, John walked away from the tents, away from the warmth of his fire, past the lines of shaggy little garrons. One of the horses wickered nervously when Ghost padded by. John soothed him with a word and paused to stroke his muzzle. He could hear the wind whistling through cracks in the rocks as they neared the ring wall. A voice called out a challenge. John stepped into the torchlight. I need to fetch water for the Lord Commander. Go on, then, the guard said. Be quick about it. Huddled beneath his black cloak, with his hood drawn up against the wind, the man never even looked to see if he had a bucket. John slipped sideways between two sharpened stakes while ghosts slid beneath them. A torch had been thrust down into a crevice, its flames flying pale orange banners when the gusts came. He snatched it up as he squeezed through the gap between the stones. Ghost went racing down the hill. John followed more slowly, the torch thrust out before him as he made his descent. The camp sounds faded behind him. The night was black, the slope steep, stony, and uneven. A moment's inattention would be a sure way to break an ankle, or his neck. What am I doing? he asked himself as he picked his way down. The trees stood beneath him, warriors armoured in bark and leaf, deployed in their silent ranks, awaiting the command to storm the hill. Black, they seemed. It was only when his torchlight brushed against them that John glimpsed a flash of green. Faintly, he heard the sound of water flowing over rocks. Ghost vanished in the underbrush. John struggled after him, listening to the call of the brook, to the leaves sighing in the wind. Branches clutched at his cloak, while overhead thick limbs twined together and shut out the stars. He found Ghost lapping from the stream. Ghost, he called, to me, now. When the direwolf raised his head, his eyes glowed red and baleful, and water streamed down from his jaws like slava. There was something fierce and terrible about him in that instant. And then he was off, bounding past John, racing through the trees. Ghost, no, stay, he shouted, but the wolf paid no heed. The lean white shape was swallowed by the dark and John had only two choices, 
to climb the hill again, alone, or to follow. He followed angry, holding the torch out low so he could see the rocks that threatened to trip him with every step, the thick roots that seemed to grab at his feet, the holes where a man could twist an ankle. Every few feet he called again for ghost, but the night wind was swirling amongst the trees, and it drank the words. This is madness, he thought, as he plunged deeper into the trees. He was about to turn back, when he glimpsed a flash of white off ahead and to the right, back toward the hill. He jogged after it, cursing under his breath. A quarter way round the fist, he chased the wolf before he lost him again. Finally, he stopped to catch his breath amidst the scrub, thorns, and tumbled rocks at the base of the hill. Beyond the torchlight, the dark pressed close. A soft, scrabbling noise made him turn. John moved towards the sound, stepping carefully among boulders and thorn bushes. Behind a fallen tree, he came on ghost again. The dire wolf was digging furiously, kicking up dirt. What have you found? John lowered the torch, revealing a rounded mound of soft earth. A grave, he thought. But whose? He knelt, jammed the torch into the ground beside him. The soil was loose, sandy. John pulled it out by the fistful. There were no stones, no roots. Whatever was here had been put here recently. Two feet down, his fingers touched cloth. He had been expecting a corpse, fearing a corpse. But this was something else. He pushed against the fabric, and he felt small, hard shapes beneath, unyielding. There was no smell no sign of grave worms. Ghost backed off and sat on his haunches, watching. John brushed the loose soil away to reveal a rounded bundle, perhaps two feet across. He jammed his fingers down around the edges and worked it loose. When he pulled it free, whatever was inside shifted and clinked. Treasure, he thought, but the shapes were wrong to be coins, and the sound was wrong for metal. A length of frayed rope bound the bundle together. John unsheathed his dagger and cut it, groped for the edges of the cloth and pulled. The bundle turned, and its contents spilled out onto the ground, glittering dark and bright. He saw a dozen knives, leaf-shaped spearheads, numerous arrowheads. John picked up a dagger blade, featherlight and shiny black, hiltless. Torchlight ran along its edge, a thin orange line that spoke of razor sharpness. Dragon glass, what the maesters call obsidian. Had Ghost uncovered some ancient cache of the children of the forest, buried here for thousands of years? The fist of the first man was an old place, only. Beneath the dragon glass was an old war horn made from an oryx horn and banded in bronze. John shook the dirt from inside it, and a stream of arrowheads fell out. He let them fall and pulled up a corner of the cloth the weapons had been wrapped in, rubbing it between his fingers. Good wool, thick, a double weave, damp but not rotted. It could not have been long in the ground. And it was dark. He seized 
a handful, and pulled it close to the torch. Not dark. Black. Even before John stood and shook it out, he knew what he had. The black cloak of a sworn brother of the Night's Watch. Bran Alebelly found him in the forge, working the bellows for Micken. Maester wants you in the turret, me lord prince. There's been a bird from the king. From Rob, excited, Bran did not wait for Hodor, but let Alebelly carry him up the steps. He was a big man, though not so big as Hodor, and nowhere near as strong. By the time they reached the maester's turret, he was red-faced and puffing. Rickon was there before them and both Walder Frey's as well. Maester Lewin sent Alebelly away and closed his door. My lords, he said gravely, we have had a message from his grace, with both good news and ill. He has won a great victory in the west, shattering a Lannister army at the place named Oxcross, and has taken several castles as well. He writes us from Ashmark formerly the stronghold of House Marbrand. Rickon tugged at the maester's rope. Is Rob coming home? Not just yet, I fear. There are battles yet to fight. Was it Lord Tywin he defeated? asked Bran. No, said the maester. Sir Stafford Lannister commanded the enemy host. He was slain in the battle. Bran had never even heard of Sir Stafford Lannister. He found himself agreeing with Big Walder when he said, Lord Tywin is the only one who matters. Tell Rob I want him to come home, said Rickon. He can bring his wolf home too, and mother and father. Though he knew Lord Eddard was dead, sometimes Rickon forgot. Willfully, Bran suspected. His little brother was stubborn as only a boy of four can be. Bran was glad for Rob's victory, but disquieted as well. He remembered what Usher had said the day his brother had led his army out of Winterfell. He's marching the wrong way, the wildling woman had insisted. Sadly, no victory is without cost, Maester Lewin turned to the Walders. My lords, your uncle, Sir Stephen Frey, was among those who lost their lives at Oxcross. He took a wound in the battle, Rob writes, it was not thought to be serious, but three days later he died in his tent, asleep. Big Walder shrugged. He was very old, five and sixty, I think. Too old for battles. He was always saying he was tired. Little Walder hooted. Tired of waiting for our grandfather to die, you mean? Does this mean Sir Eamon's the heir now? Don't be stupid, his cousin said. The sons of the first son come before the second son. Sir Ryman is next in line, and then Edwin, and Black Walder, and Pattaya Pimple, and then Aegon, and all his sons. Ryman is old too, said Little Walder. Past forty, I bet, and he has a bad belly. Do you think he'll be lord? I'll be lord. I don't care if he is. Maester Lewin cut in sharply. You ought to be ashamed of such talk, my lords. Where is your grief? Your uncle is dead. Yes, said Little Walder. We're very sad. 
They weren't, though. Bran got a sick feeling in his belly. They like the taste of this dish better than I do. He asked Maester Lewin to be excused. Very well. The maester rang for help. Hodor must have been busy in the stables. It was Osher who came. She was stronger than Alebelly, though, and had no trouble lifting Bran in her arms and carrying him down the steps. Osher, Bran asked as they crossed the yard, do you know the way north, to the wall, and even past? The way is easy. Look for the ice dragon and chase the blue star in the rider's eye. She backed through a door and started up the winding steps. And there are still giants there, and the rest, the others, and the children of the forest, too? The giants I've seen, the children I've heard tell of, and the white walkers. Why do you want to know? Did you ever see a three-eyed crow? <laughs> no, she laughed, and I can't say I'd want to. Osher kicked open the door to his bedchamber and set him in his window seat where he could watch the yard below. It seemed only a few heartbeats after she took her leave that the door opened again, and Jojen Reed entered unbidden, with his sister Mira behind him. You heard about the bird? Bran asked. The other boy nodded. It wasn't a supper, like you said. It was a letter from Rob, and we didn't eat it, but— The green dreams take strange shapes sometimes, Jojen admitted. The truth of them is not always easy to understand. Tell me the bad thing you dreamed, Bran said, the bad thing that is coming to Winterfell. Does my Lord Prince believe me now? Will he trust my words, no matter how queer they sound in his ears? Bran nodded. It is the sea that comes. The sea? I dreamed that the sea was lapping all round Winterfell. I saw black waves crashing against the gates and towers, and then the salt water came flowing over the walls and filled the castle. Drowned men were floating in the yard. When I first dreamed the dream, back at Greywater, I didn't know their faces, but now I do. That ale belly is one, the guard who called our names at the feast. Your Septon's another. Your Smith as well. Micken. Bran was as confused as he was dismayed. But the sea is hundreds and hundreds of leagues away, and Winterfell's walls are so high the water couldn't get in, even if it did come. In the dark of night, the salt sea will flow over these walls, said Jojen. I saw the dead bloated and drowned. "'We have to tell them,' Bran said, "'Alebelly and Micken and Septon Shale. "'Tell them not to drown.' "'It will not save them,' replied the boy in green. Mira came to the window-seat and put a hand on his shoulder. "'They will not believe, Bran, no more than you did.' Jojen sat on Bran's bed. "'Tell me what you dream.' He was scared even then, but he had sworn to trust them, and a stark of Winterfell keeps his sworn word. There's different kinds, he said slowly. There's the wolf dreams, but those aren't so bad as the others. I, I run and hunt and kill squirrels. And there's dreams when the crow comes 
and tells me to fly. Sometimes the tree is in those dreams, too, calling my name. That frightens me. But the worst dreams are when I fall. He looked down into the yard, feeling miserable. I never used to fall before. When I climbed, I went every place, up on the roofs and along the walls. I used to feed the crows in the burnt tower. Mother was afraid that I would fall, but I knew I never would. Only I did. And now, when I sleep, I fall all the time. Mira gave his shoulder a squeeze. Is that all? I guess. Warg, said Joe John Reed. Brand looked at him, his eyes wide. What? Warg. Shape-changer. Beastlin. That is what they will call you if they should ever hear of your wolf dreams. The names made him afraid again. Who will call me? Your own folk, in fear. Some will hate you if they know what you are. Some will even try to kill you. Old Nan told scary stories of beastlings and shape-changers sometimes. In the stories, they were always evil. I'm not like that. Bran said, I'm not. It's only dreams. The wolf dreams are no true dreams. You have your eyes closed tight when you're awake, but as you drift off, it flutters open, and your soul seeks out its other half. The power is strong in you. I don't want it. I want to be a knight. A knight is what you want. A warg is what you are. You can't change that, Bran. You can't deny it or push it away. You are the winged wolf, but you will never fly. Jojen got up and walked to the window. Unless you open your eye. He put two fingers together and poked Bran in the forehead hard. When he raised his hand to the spot, Bran felt only the smooth, unbroken skin. There was no eye, not even a closed one. How can I open it if it's not there? You will never find the eye with your fingers, Bran. You must search with your heart. Jojen studied Bran's face with those strange green eyes. Or are you afraid? Maester Lewin said there's nothing in dreams that a man need fear. There is, said Jojen. What? The past, the future, the truth. They left him more muddled than before. When he was alone, Bran tried to open his third eye, but he didn't know how. No matter how he wrinkled his forehead and poked it, he couldn't see any different than he'd done before. In the days that followed, he tried to warn others about what Jojen had seen. But it didn't go as he wanted. Micken thought it was funny. The sea is it. Happens I always wanted to see the sea. Never got where I could go to it, though. So now it's coming to me, is it? <laughs> the gods are good to take such trouble for a poor smith. The gods will take me when they see fit, Septon Shale said quietly though I scarcely think it likely that I'll drown, Bran. I grew up on the banks of the White Knife, you know. I'm quite the strong swimmer. 
Alebelly was the only one who paid the warning any heed. He went to talk to Jojen himself, and afterwards stopped bathing and refused to go near the well. Finally, he stank so bad that six of the other guards threw him into a tub of scalding water and scrubbed him raw, while he screamed that they were going to drown him like the frog boy had said. Thereafter, he scowled whenever he saw Bran or Jojen about the castle and muttered under his breath. It was a few days after Alebelly's bath that Sir Roderick returned to Winterfell with his prisoner, a fleshy young man with fat, moist lips and long hair who smelled like a privy, even worse than Alebelly had. Reek is called, Hay had said when Bran asked who he was. I never heard his true name. He served the bastard of Bolton and helped him murder Lady Ornwood, they say. The bastard himself was dead, Bran learned that evening over supper. Sir Roderick's men had caught him on Hornwood land doing something horrible. Bran wasn't quite sure what, but it seemed to be something you did without your clothes, and shut him down with arrows as he tried to ride away. But they came too late for poor Lady Hornwood, though. After their wedding, the bastard had locked her in a tower and neglected to feed her. Bran had heard men saying that when Sir Roderick had smashed down the door, he found her with her mouth all bloody and her fingers chewed off. The monster has tied us a thorny knot, the old knight told Maester Lewin. Like it or not, Lady Hornwood was his wife. He made her say the vase before both Septon and Hartree, and bedded her that very night before witnesses. She signed a will, naming him as heir, and fixed her seal to it. Vows made at sword point are not valid, the maester argued. Roos Bolton may not agree. Not with land at issue, Sir Roderick looked unhappy. Would that I could take this serving man's head off as well. He's as bad as his master. But I fear I must keep him alive until Rob returns from his wars. He's the only witness to the worst of the bastard's crimes. Perhaps when Lord Bolton hears his tale, he will abandon his claim. But meantime, we have Mandalay knights and Dreadfort men uh, killing one another in Hornwood forests and I lack the strength to stop them. The old knight turned in his seat and gave Bran a stern look. And what have you been about while I've been away, my lord prince, commanding our guardsmen not to wash? Do you want them smelling like this reek? Is that it? The sea is coming here, Bran said. Jojen saw it in a green dream. Alebelly is going to drown. Maester Lewin tugged at his chain collar. Uh, the reed boy believes he sees the future in his dreams, Sir Roderick. I've spoken to Bran about the uncertainty of such prophecies, but if truth be told, there is trouble along the stony shore. Raiders in long ships, plundering fishing villages, raping and burning... Leobald, a tall heart, has sent his nephew, Benfred, to deal with them, but I expect they'll take to their ships and flee at the first sight of armed men. 
Ay, and strike somewhere else. The others take all such cowards. They would never dare, no more than the bastard of Bolton, if our main strength were not a thousand leagues south. Sir Roderick looked at Bran. What else did the laird tell you? He said the water would flow over our walls. He saw Alebelly drowned, and Micken, and Septon Shale, too. Sir Roderick frowned. Well, should it happen that I need to ride against these raiders myself, I shan't take Alebelly, then. He didn't see me drowned, did he? No? Oh, good. It heartened Bran to hear that. Maybe they won't drown, then, he thought if they stay away from the sea. Mira thought so too, later that night when she and Jojen met Bran in his room to play a three-sided game of tiles. But her brother shook his head. The things I see in green dreams can't be changed. That made his sister angry. Why would the God send a warning if we can't heed it and change what's to come? I don't know. Jojen said sadly. If you were Alebelly, you'd probably jump into the well and have done with it. He should fight, and Bran should too. Me? Bran suddenly felt afraid. What should I fight? Am I going to drown too? Mira looked at him guiltily. I shouldn't have said. He could tell she was hiding something. Did you see me? In a green dream? he asked Jojen nervously. Was I drowned? Not drowned, Jojen spoke as if every word pained him. I dreamed of the man who came today, the one they call Reek. You and your brother lay dead at his feet, and he was skinning off your faces with a long red blade. Mira rose to her feet. If I went to the dungeon, I could drive a spear right through his heart. How could he murder Bran if he was dead? The jailers will stop you, Jojen said. The guards. And if they tell them why you want him dead, they'll never believe. I have guards too, Bran reminded them. Alebelly and Poxy Tim and Hayhead and the rest. Jojen's mussy eyes were full of pity. They won't be able to stop him, Bran. I couldn't see why, but I saw the end of it. I saw you and Rickon in your crypts, down in the dark, with all the dead kings and their stone walls. No, Bran thought, no. If I went away to Greywater or to the Crow, someplace far where they couldn't find me, it will not matter. The dream was green, Bran, and the green dreams do not lie. Tyrion Varia stood over the brazier, warming his soft hands. It would appear Renly was murdered most fearfully in the very midst of his army. His throat was open from ear to ear by a blade that passed through steel and bone as if they were soft cheese. Murdered by whose hand? Cersei demanded. Have you ever considered 
There are too many answers are the same as no answers at all. My informers are not always as highly placed as we might like. When a king dies, fancies sprout like mushrooms in the dark. A groom says that Renly was slain by a knight of his own rainbow guard. A washerwoman claims Stannis stole through the heart of his brother's army with his magic sword. Several men-at-arms believe a woman did the fell deed, but cannot agree on which woman. A maid that Renly had spurned claims one. A camp follower brought in to serve his pleasure on the eve of battle, says the second. The third ventures that it might have been the Lady Catelyn Stark. The Queen was not pleased. Must you waste our time with every rumour the fools care to tell? You pay me well for these rumours, my gracious Queen. We pay you for the truth, Lord Varys. Remember that, or this small council may grow smaller still. Varys tittered nervously. <laughs> you and your noble brother will leave his grace with no counsel at all, if you continue. I dare say the realm could survive a few less counsellors, said Littlefinger with a smile. Dear, dear Patar, said Varys, are you not concerned that yours might be the very next name on the hand's little list? Before you, Varys, I should never dream of it. Mayhaps we will be brothers on the wall together, you and I. <laughs> Varys giggled again. Sooner than you'd like, if the next words out of your mouth are not something useful, eunuch. From the look in her eyes, Cersei was prepared to castrate Varys all over again. Might this be some ruse? asked Littlefinger. If so, it is a ruse of surpassing cleverness, said Varys. It has certainly hoodwinked me. Tyrion had heard enough. "'Joff will be so disappointed,' he said. "'He was saving such a nice spike for Renly's head. "'But whoever did the deed, we must assume that Stannis was behind it. "'The gain is clearly his.' "'He did not like the news. "'He had counted on the brothers Baratheon decimating each other in bloody battle. "'He could feel his elbow throbbing where the morning star had laid it open. "'He did that sometimes in the damp.' He squeezed it uselessly in his hand and asked, What of Renly's host? The greater part of his foot remains at Bitterbridge. Varys abandoned the brazier to take his seat at the table. Most of the lords who rode with Lord Renly to Storm's End have gone over banner and blade to Stannis with all their chivalry. Led by the Florence, I'll wager said Littlefinger. Varys gave him a simpering smile. <laughs> you would win, my lord. Lord Elster was indeed the first to bend the knee. Many others followed. Many, Tyrion said pointedly. But not all. Not all, agreed the eunuch. Not Loris Tyrell, nor Randall Tarly, nor Mathis Rowan. And Storm's End itself has not yielded. Sir Courtney Penrose holds the castle in Renly's name. 
and will not believe his liege is dead. He demands to see the mortal remains before he opens his gates. It seems that Renly's corpse has unaccountably vanished, carried away, most likely. A fifth of Renly's knights departed with Solorus rather than bend the knee to Sanus. It said the knight of flowers went mad when he saw his king's body and slew three of Renly's guards in his wrath, among them Eamon Kai and Rover Royce. A pity is stopped at three, thought Tyrion. Solorus is likely making for Bitterbridge, Varys went on. His sister is there, Renly's queen, as well as a great many soldiers who suddenly find themselves kingless. Which side will they take now? A ticklish question. Many serve the lords who remained at Storm's End, and those lords now belong to Stannis. Tyrion leaned forward. There is a chance here, it seems to me. Win Loras Tyrell to our cause, and Lord Mace Tyrell and his bannermen might join us as well. They may have sworn their swords to Stannis for the moment, yet they cannot love the man, or they would have been his from the start. Is their love for us any greater? asked Cersei. Scarcely, said Tyrion. They love Renly, clearly, but Renly is slain. Perhaps we can give them good and sufficient reasons to prefer Joffrey to Stannis, if we move quickly. What sort of reasons do you mean to give them? Gold reasons, Littlefinger suggested at once. Varys made a tisking sound. Sweet Petar, surely you do not mean to suggest that these puissant lords and noble knights could be bought like so many chickens in the market. Have you been to our markets of late, Lord Varys? asked Littlefinger. You would find it easier to buy a lord than a chicken, I dare say. Of course, lords cluck prouder than chickens, and take it ill if you offer them coin like a tradesman, but they are seldom adverse to taking gifts, honours, lands, castles. Bribes may sway some of the lesser lords, Tyrion said, but never I garden. True, Littlefinger admitted. The Knight of Flowers is the key there. Mace Tyrell has two older sons, but Loras has always been his favourite. Win him, and Highgarden will be yours. Yes, thought Tyrion. It seems to me that we should take a lesson from the late Lord Renly. We can win the Tyrell alliance, as he did, with a marriage. Varys understood the quickest. You think you had King Joffrey to march with Tyrell? I do. Renly's young queen was no more than fifteen, sixteen, he seemed to recall, older than Joffrey, but a few years were nothing. It was so neat and sweet he could taste it. Joffrey is betrothed to Sansa Stark, Cersei objected. Marriage contracts can be broken. What advantage is there in wedding the king to the daughter of a dead traitor? Littlefinger spoke up. You might point out to his grace 
that the Tyrells are much wealthier than the Starks, and that Marjorie is said to be lovely, and bettable besides. Yes, said Tyrion, Joff ought to like that well enough. My son is too young to care about such things. You think so? asked Tyrion. He's thirteen, Cersei, the same age at which I married. You shamed us all with that sorry episode. Joffrey is made of finer stuff. So fine that he had Sir Boris rip off Sansa's gown. He was angry with the girl. He was angry with that cook's boy who spilled the soup last night as well. But he didn't strip him naked. This was not a matter of some spilled soup. No, it was a matter of some pretty tits. After that business in the yard, Tyrion had spoken with Varys about how they might arrange for Joffrey to visit Shatayas. A taste of honey might sweeten the boy, he hoped. He might even be grateful, gods forbid, and Tyrion could do with a shade more gratitude from his sovereign. It would need to be done secretly, of course, the tricky bit would be parting him from the hound. The dog is never far from his master's heels, he observed to Varys, but all men sleep, and some gamble, and whore, and visit wine sinks as well. The hound does all these things, if that is your question. No, said Tyrion, my question is, when? Varys had laid a finger on his cheek, smiling enigmatically. My lord, a suspicious man might think you wish to find a time when Sandor Clegane was not protecting King Joffrey, the better to do the boy some harm. Surely you know me better than that, Lord Varys, Tyrion said. Why, all I want is for Joffrey to love me. The eunuch had promised to look into the matter. The war made its own demands, though. Joffrey's initiation into manhood would need to wait. Doubtless you know your son better than I do, he made himself tell Cersei. But regardless, there's still much to be said for a Tyrell marriage. It may be the only way that Joffrey lives long enough to reach his wedding night. Littlefinger agreed. The star girl brings Joffrey nothing but her body. Sweet as that may be, Marjorie Tyrell brings fifty thousand swords and all the strength of Highgarden. Indeed, Varys laid a soft hand on the Queen's sleeve. You have a mother's heart, and I know his grace loves his little sweetling. Yet kings must learn to put the needs of the realm before their own desires. I say this offer must be made. The queen pulled free of the eunuch's touch. You would not speak so if you were women. Say what you will, my lords, but Joffrey is too proud to settle upon Renly's leavings. He will never consent. Tyrion shrugged. When the king comes of age, in three years, he may give or withhold his consent as he pleases. Until then, you are his regent, and I am his hand and he will marry whomever we tell him to marry, leavings or no. Cersei's quiver was empty. Make your offer, then. But God save you all, if Joff does not like this girl. I'm so pleased we can agree, Tyrion said. Now which of us shall go to Bitterbridge? 
We must reach Solaris with our offer before his blood can cool. You mean to send one of the council? I can scarcely expect the Knight of Flowers to treat with Bron or Shaga, can I? The Tyrells are proud. His sister wasted no time trying to twist the situation to her advantage. Sir, Jaslyn Bywater is nobly born. Send him. Tyrion shook his head. We need someone who can do more than repeat our words and fetch back a reply. Our envoy must speak for king and council and settle the matter quickly. The hand speaks with the king's voice. Candlelight gleamed green as wildfire in Cersei's eyes. If we send you, Tyrion, it will be as if Joffrey went himself. And who better? You wield words as skillfully as Jaime wields a sword. Are you that eager to get me out of the city, Cersei? You are too kind, sister, but it seems to me that a boy's mother is better fitted to arrange his marriage than any uncle, and you have a gift for winning friends that I could never hope to match. Her eyes narrowed. Joff needs me at his side. Your grace, my lord hand, said Littlefinger, the king needs both of you here. Let me go in your stead. You! What gain does he see in this? Tyrion wondered. I am of the king's council, yet not the king's blood, so I would make a poor hostage. I knew Sir Loras passing well when he was here at court, and gave him no cause to mislike me. Miss Tyrell bears me no enmity that I know of, and I flatter myself that I am not unskilled in negotiations. He has us. Tyrion did not trust Pattaya Baelish, nor did he want the man out of his sight. Yet what other choice was left him? It must be Littlefinger or Tyrion himself, and he knew full well that if he left King's Landing for any length of time, all that he had managed to accomplish would be undone. There is fighting between Yer and Bitterbridge, he said cautiously, and you can be past certain that Lord Stannis will be dispatching his own shepherds to gather in his brother's wayward lambs. I've never been frightened of shepherds. It's the sheep who trouble me. Still, I suppose an escort might be in order. I can spare a hundred gold cloaks. Five hundred. Three hundred. And forty more, twenty knights with as many squires. If I arrive without a knightly tale, the Tyrells will think me of small account. That was true enough. Agreed. I'll include horror and slubber in my party, and send them on to their lord father afterward. A gesture of goodwill. We need Paxter Redwine, he's Mace Tyrell's oldest friend, and a great power in his own right. And a traitor the queen said, balking. The arbor would have declared for Renly with all the rest, except that Redwine knew full well his whelps would suffer for it. Renly is dead, your grace, Littlefinger pointed out, and neither Stannis nor Lord Paxter will have forgotten how Redwine galleys closed the sea during the siege of Storm's End. Restore the twins, and perchance we may win Redwine's love. Cersei remained unconvinced. 
The others can keep his love. I want his swords and sails. Holding tight to those twins is the best way to make certain that we'll have them. Tyrion had the answer. Then let us send Sir Hobber back to the arbor and keep Sir Aris here. Lord Paxter ought to be clever enough to riddle out the meaning of that, I should think. The suggestion was carried without protest, but Littlefinger was not done. We'll want horses, swift and strong. The fighting will make remounts hard to come by. A goodly supply of gold will also be needed for those gifts we spoke of earlier. Take as much as you require. If the city falls, Stannis will steal it all anyway. I'll want my commission in writing, a document that will leave Mace Tyrell in no doubt as to my authority, granting me full power to treat with him concerning this match and any other arrangements that might be required, and to make binding pledges in the king's name. It should be signed by Joffrey and every member of this council, and bear all our seals. Tyrion shifted uncomfortably. Done. Will that be all? I remind you there's a long road between here and Bitterbridge. I'll be riding it before dawn breaks, Littlefinger rose. I trust that on my return the king will see that I am suitably rewarded for my valiant efforts in his cause. Varys giggled. Joffrey is such a grateful sovereign. I am certain you will have no cause to complain, my good, brave lord. The queen was more direct. What do you want, Pataya? Littlefinger glanced at Tyrion with a sly smile. I shall have to give that some consideration. No doubt I'll think of something. He sketched an airy bow and took his leave, as casual as if he were off to one of his brothels. Tyrion glanced out of the window. The fog was so thick that he could not even see the curtain wall across the yard. A few dim lights shone indistinct through that grayness. A foul day for travel, he thought. He did not envy Pataya Baelish. We had best see to drawing up those documents. Lord Varys, send for parchment and quill, and someone will need to wake Joffrey. It was still grey and dark when the meeting finally ended. Varys scurried off alone, his soft slippers whisking along the floor. The Lannisters lingered a moment by the door. How comes your chain, brother? The queen asked, as Sir Preston fastened a veil-lined cloth of silver cloak about her shoulders. Link by link it grows longer. We should thank the gods that Sir Courtney Penrose is as stubborn as he is. Stannis will never march north, with Storm's End untaken in his rear. Tyrion, I know that we've not always agreed on policy, but it seems to me that I was wrong about you. You are not so big a fool as I imagined. In truth, I realize now that you have been a great help. For that I thank you. You must forgive me if I have spoken to you harshly in the past. Must I? He gave her a shrug and a smile. Sweet sister, you have said nothing that requires forgiveness. Today, you mean. They both laughed, and Cersei leaned over and planted a quick soft kiss on his brow. Too astonished for words, Tyrion could only watch her stride off down the hall, Sir Preston at her side. 
Have I lost my wits? Or did my sister just kiss me? He asked Brun when she was gone. Was it so sweet? It was anticipated. Circe had behaved queerly of late. Tyrion found it very unsettling. I am trying to recall the last time she kissed me. I could not have been more than six or seven. Jamie had dared her to do it. The woman's finally taken note of your charms. No, Tyrion said. No, the woman is hatching something. Best find out what, Bronn. You know, I hate surprises. Theon Theon wiped the spittle off his cheek with the back of his hand. Rumble got you, Greyjoy. Benfred Tallheart screamed. He'll feed your turncoat's heart to his wolf, you piece of sheep dung. Aaron Damphair's voice cut through the insults like a sword through cheese. Now you must kill him. I have questions for him first, said Theon. Fuck your questions, Benfred hung bleeding and helpless between Stig and Werleg. You'll choke on them before you get any answers from me, Craven. Turn cloak. Uncle Aaron was relentless. When he spits on you, he spits on all of us. He spits on the drowned god. He must die. My father gave me the command here, Uncle, and sent me to counsel you. And to watch me. Theon dared not push matters too far with his uncle. The command was his, yes, but his men had a faith in the drowned god that they did not have in him and they were terrified of Aaron Dampere. I can't fault them for that. You'll lose your head for this, Greyjoy. The crows will eat the jelly of your eyes. Benford tried to spit again, but only managed a little blood. The others buggy your wet god. Tallheart, you've spit away your life, Theon thought. Stig, silence him, he said. They forced Benfred to his knees. Werlog tore the rabbit skin off his belt and jammed it between his teeth to stop him shouting. Stig unlimbered his axe. No, Aaron Damphair declared. He must be given to the god, the old way. What does it matter? Dead is dead. Take him, then. You will come as well. You command here. The offering should come from you. That was more than Theon can stomach. You are the priest, uncle. I'll leave the god to you. Do me the same kindness and leave the battles to me. He waved his hand, and Whirleg and Stig began to drag their captive off toward the shore. Aaron Damher gave his nephew a reproachful look, then followed. Down to the pebbled beach they would go, to drown Benfred Tallheart in salt water, the old way. Perhaps it's a kindness, Theon told himself as he stalked off in the other direction. Stig was hardly the most expert of headsmen, and Benfred had a neck thick as a boar's, heavy with muscle and fat. I used to mock him for it, just to see how angry I could make him, he remembered. That had been, what, three years past, when Ned Stark had ridden to Torren Square to see Sir Helmon. Theon had accompanied him and spent a fortnight in Benfred's company. He could hear the rough noises of victory from the crook in the road where the battle had been fought.
if you could go so far as to call it a battle. More like slaughtering sheep, if truth be told. Sheep fleeced in steel, but sheep nonetheless. Climbing a jumble of stone, Theon looked down on the dead men and dying horses. The horses had deserved better. Tymor and his brothers had gathered up what mounts had come through the fight unhurt, while Urzen and Black Lauren silenced the animals too badly wounded to be saved. The rest of his men were looting the corpses. Gavin Harlaw knelt on a dead man's chest, sawing off his finger to get it a ring. Paying the iron price, my lord father would approve. Theon thought of seeking out the bodies of the two men he'd slain himself, to see if they had any jewellery worth the taking. But the notion left a bitter taste in his mouth. He could imagine what Eddard Stark would have said. Yet that thought made him angry too. Stark is dead and rotting, and naught to me, he reminded himself. Old Butley, who was called Fish Whiskers, sat scarling by his pile of plunder while his three sons added to it. One of them was in a shoving match with a fat man named Tudric, who was reeling among the slain with a horn of ale in one hand and an axe in the other, clad in a cloak of white fox fur only slightly stained by the blood of its previous owner. Drunk, Theon decided, watching him bellow. It was said that the Iron Man of old had oft been blood-drunk in battle, so berserk that they felt no pain and feared no foe, but this was a common ale-drunk. Wex, my bow and quiver. The boy ran and fetched them. Theon bent the bow and slipped the string into its notches, as Todrick knocked down the butlin boy and flung ale into his eyes. Fish whiskers leapt up cursing, but Theon was quicker. He drew on the hand that clutched the drinking horn, figuring to give them a shot to talk about, but Todrick spoiled it by lurching to one side as he loosed. The arrow took him through the belly. The looters stopped to gape. Theon lowered his bow. No drunkards, I said, and no squabbles over plunder. On his knees, Todrick was dying noisily. Botley, silence him. Fish Whiskers and his sons were quick to obey. They slit Todrick's throat as he kicked feebly and were stripping him of cloak and rings and weapons before he was even dead. Now they know I mean what I say. Lord Balan might have given him the command, but Theon knew that some of his men saw only a soft boy from the Greenlands when they looked at him. Anyone else ever thirst? No one replied. Good. He kicked at Ben Fred's fallen banner, clutched in the dead hand of the squire who'd borne it. A rabbitskin had been tied below the flag. Why rabbitskins? he had meant to ask but being spat on had made him forget his questions. He tossed his bow back to Wex and strode off, remembering how elated he'd felt after the whispering wood, and wondering why this did not taste as sweet. Tornhart, you bloody overproud fool, you never even sent out a scout. They'd been joking and even singing as they'd come on. The three trees of Tornhart, streaming above them, while rabbitskins flapped stupidly from the points of their lances. The archers concealed behind the gorse had spoiled the song with a rain of arrows, and Theon himself had led his men-at-arms out to finish the butcher's work with dagger, axe, and warhammer. He had ordered their leader spared for questioning. 
only he had not expected it to be Benfred Tallhart. His limp body was being dragged from the surf when Theon returned to his sea bitch. The masts of his longships stood outlined against the sky along the pebbled beach. Of the fishing village nothing remained but the cold ashes that stank when it rained. The men had been put to the sword, all but a handful that Theon had allowed to flee to bring the word to Torren Square. Their wives and daughters had been claimed for salt wives, those who were young enough and fair. The crones and the ugly ones had simply been raped and killed, or taken for thralls, if they had useful skills and did not seem likely to cause trouble. Theon had planned that attack as well, bringing his ships up to the shore in the chilled darkness before the dawn, and leaping from the prow with a long axe in his hand to lead his men into the sleeping village. He did not like the taste of any of this, but what choice did he have? His thrice-damned sister was sailing her black wind north even now, sure to win a castle of her own. Lord Balin had let no word of the hosting escape the Iron Islands, and Theon's bloody work along the stony shore would be put down to sea raiders out for plunder. The Northmen would not realize their true peril, not until the hammers fell on deep wood mott and moat Caelan. And after all is done and won, they will make songs for that bitch, Asher, and forget that I was even here. That is, if he allowed it. Dagmar Clefjaw stood by the high-carved prow of his longship, foam-drinker. Theon had assigned him the task of guarding the ships. Otherwise men would have called it Dagmar's victory, not his. A more prickly man might have taken that for a slight, but the Clefjaw had only laughed. "'The day is won,' Dagmar called down. "'And yet you do not smile, boy!' The living should smile, for the dead cannot. He smiled himself to show how it was done. It made for a hideous sight. Under a snowy white mane of hair, Dagmar Clefjaw had the most gut-churning scar Theon had ever seen, the legacy of the long axe that had near killed him as a boy. The blow had splintered his jaw, shattered his front teeth, and left him four lips where other men had but two. A shaggy beard covered his cheeks and neck, but the hair would not grow over the scar, so a shiny seam of puckered, twisted flesh divided his face like a crevasse through a snowfield. "'We could hear them singing,' the old warrior said. "'It was a good song, and they sang it bravely.' "'They sang better than they fought. Arps would have done them as much good as their lances did.' How many men are lost? Of ours? Theon shrugged. Todrick, I killed him for getting drunk and fighting over loot. Some men are born to be killed. A lesser man might have been afraid to show a smile as frightening as his. Yet Dagmar grinned more often and more broadly than Lord Balon ever had. Ugly as it was, that smile brought back a hundred memories. Theon had seen it often as a boy, when he'd jumped a horse over a mossy wall, or flung an axe and split a target square. He'd seen it when he'd blocked a blow from Dagmar's sword, when he put an arrow through a seagull on the wing, when he took the tiller in hand and guided a longship safely through a snarl of foaming rocks. 
He gave me more smiles than my father and Edark start together. Even Rob. He ought to have won a smile the day he'd saved Bran from that wild thing. But instead, he'd gotten a scolding. As if he were some cook who'd burned the stew. You and I must talk, uncle, Theon said. Dagmo was no true uncle, only a sworn man with perhaps a pinch of Greyjoy blood four or five lives back, and that from the wrong side of the blanket. Yet Theon had always called him uncle nonetheless. Come into my deck, then. There were no milords from Dagma, not when he stood on his own deck. On the Iron Islands, every captain was a king aboard his own ship. He climbed the plank to the deck of the foam drinker in four long strides, and Dagmer led him back to the cramped aft cabin where the old man poured a horn of sour ale and offered Theon the same. He declined. We did not capture enough horses. A few, but, well, I'll make do with what I have, I suppose. Fewer men means more glory. What need do we have of horses? Like most iron men, Dagmer preferred to fight on foot or from the deck of a ship. Horses will only shit on our decks and get in our way. If we sailed, yes, Theon admitted. I have another plan. He watched the other carefully to see how he would take that. Without the cleft jaw, he could not hope to succeed. Command or no, the men would never follow him if both Aaron and Dagmar opposed him, and he had no hope of winning over the sour-faced priest. Your lord father commanded us to arry the coast. No more. Eyes pale as sea foam watched Theon from under those shaggy white eyebrows. Was it disapproval he saw there, or a spark of interest? The latter, he thought, hoped. You are my father's man. He's best man, and always have been. Pride, Theon thought. He is proud. I must use that. His pride will be the key. There is no man in the Iron Islands half so skilled with spear or sword. You have been too long away, boy. When you left, it was, as you say, but I'm grown old in Lord Greyjoy's service. The singers call Andric best know. Andric the Unsmiling, they name him. A giant of a man. He serves Lord Drum of Ulwick. And Black Lauren and Carl the Maid are near as dread. This Andric may be a great fighter, but men do not fear him as they fear you. Aye, that's so, Dagmar said. The fingers curled around the drinking horn were heavy with rings, gold and silver and bronze, set with chunks of sapphire and garnet and dragon glass. He had paid the iron price for every one, Theon knew. If I had a man like you in my service, I should not waste him on this child's business of harrying and burning. This is no work for Lord Balon's best man. Dagmar's grin twisted his lips apart and showed the brown splinters of his teeth. Nor for his true-born son? He hooted. I know you too well, Theon. I saw you take your first step, helped you bend your first bow. Tis not me who feels wasted. By rights, I should have my sister's command, he admitted, uncomfortably aware of how peevish that sounded. You take this business to our boy. It is only that your lord father does not know you, 
With your brothers dead and you taken by the wolves, your sister was his solace. He learned to rely on her, and she has never failed him. Nor have I. The Starch knew my worth. I was one of Brynden Blackfish's picked scouts, and I charged with a first wave in the Whispering Wood. I was that close to crossing swords with the Kingslayer himself. Theon held his hands two feet apart. Darren Ornwood came between us and died for it. Why'd you tell me this? Dagmar asked. It was me who put your first sword in your hand. I know you're no craven. Does my father? The hoary old warrior looked as if he'd bitten into something he did not like the taste of. It is only Theon, the boy wolf, is your friend, and these Tarks had you for ten years. I am no Stark, Lord Iddard sort of that. I'm a Greyjoy, and I mean to be my father's heir. How can I do that unless I prove myself with some great deed? You are young. Other wars will come, and you shall do your great deeds. For now, we are commanded to array the stony shore. Let my uncle Aaron see to it. I'll give him six ships, all but foam drinker and sea bitch, and he can burn and drown to his guard's surfeit. The command was given you, not Aaron Damphair. So long as the Arian is done, what does it matter? No priest could do what I mean to, nor what I ask of you. I have a task that only Dagmar Cleftjaw can accomplish. Dagmar took a long draught from his horn. Tell me. He is tempted, Theon thought. He likes this reaver's work no better than I do. If my sister can take a castle, so can I. Asher has four or five times the men we do. Theon allowed himself a sly smile. But we have four times the wits and five times the courage. Your father will thank me when I hand him his kingdom. I mean to do a deed that the Arpers will sing of for a thousand years. He knew that would give Dagmar pause. A singer had made a song about the axe that cracked his jaw in half, and the old man loved to hear it. Whenever he was in his cups, he would call for a reaving song, something loud and stormy that told of dead heroes and deeds of wild valour. His hair is white, and his teeth are rotten, but he still has a taste for glory. What would my part be in this scheme of yours, boy? Dagmar Cleftjaw asked after a long silence and Theon knew he had won. To strike terror into the heart of the foe, as only one of your name could do. You take the great part of our force and march on Torrin Square. Elman Torlart took his best men south, and Benfred died here with their sons. His uncle Leobold will remain with some small garrison. If I'd been able to question Benfred, I would know just how small. Make no secret of your approach. Sing all the brave songs you like. I want them to close their gates. Is this Torrin Square a strong keep? Strong enough. The walls are stone, thirty feet high, with square tires at each corner and a square keep within. Stone walls cannot be fired. How are we to take them? We do not have the numbers to storm even a small castle. You will make camp outside their walls and set to building catapults and siege engines. 
That is not the old way. Have you forgotten? Iron men fight with swords and axes, not by flinging rocks. There is no glory in starving out a foeman. Leobald will not know that. When he sees you raising siege towers, his old woman's blood will run cold, and he will bleat for help. Stay your archers, uncle, and let the raven fly. The Castellan at Winterfell is a brave man, but age has stiffened his wits as well as his limbs. When he learns that one of his king's bannermen is under attack by the fearsome Dagmar Clefjaw, he will summon his strength and ride to Tallart's aid. It is his duty. Sir Roderick is nothing if not dutiful. Any force he summons will be larger than mine, Dagmar said, and these old knights are more cunning than you think, or they would never have lived to see their first grey heir. You set us a battle we cannot hope to win, Theon. This Turren Square will never fall. Theon smiled. It's not Torren Square I mean to take. Aria Confusion and clangor ruled the castle. Men stood on the beds of wagons, loading casks of wine, sacks of flour, and bundles of new-fletched arrows. Smiths straightened swords, knocked dents from breastplates, and shooed destriers and pack mules alike. Male shirts were tossed in barrels of sand and rolled across the lumpy surface of the flowstone yard to scar them clean. Weezer's women had twenty cloaks to mend, a hundred more to wash. The high and humble crowded into the sep together to pray. Outside the walls, tents and pavilions were coming down. Squires tossed pails of water over cook-fires, while soldiers took out their oilstones to give their blades one last good lick. The noise was a swelling tide, horses blowing and wickering, lords shouting commands, men-at-arms trading curses, camp followers squabbling. Lord Tywin Lannister was marching at last. Sir Adam Marbrand was the first of the captains to depart, a day before the rest. He made a gallant show of it, riding a spirited red courser whose mane was the same copper colour as the long hair that streamed past Sir Adam's shoulders. The horse was barded in bronze-coloured trappings dyed to match the rider's cloak and emblazoned with a burning tree. Some of the castle women sobbed to see him go. We said he was a great horseman and sword-fighter, Lord Tywin's most daring commander. I hope he dies. Arya thought, as she watched him ride out of the gate, his men streaming after him in a double column. I hope they all die. They were going to fight Rob, she knew. Listening to the talk as she went about her work, Arya had learned that Rob had won some great victory in the West. He'd burned Lannisport, some said, or else he meant to burn it. He'd captured Castly Rock and put everyone to the sword or he was besieging the Golden Tooth. But something had happened, that much was certain. Weiss had her running messages from dawn to dusk. Some of them even took her beyond the castle walls, out into the mud and madness of the camp. I could flee, she thought, as a wagon rumbled past her. I could hop on the back of a wagon and hide, or fall in with the camp followers. 
No one would stop me. She might have done it, if not for Wheeze. He'd told them more than once what he'd do to anyone who tried to run off on him. It won't be no beating, oh no. I won't lay a finger on you. I'll just save you for the cohort, yes I will. I'll save you for the crippler. Vargo Holt, his name is, and when he gets back, he cut off your feet. Maybe if Wheeze were dead, Arya thought, but not when she was with him. He could look at you and smell what you were thinking. He always said so. Wheeze never imagined she could read, though, so he never bothered to seal the messages he gave her. Arya peeked at them all, but they were never anything good, just stupid stuff, sending this cart to the granary and that one to the armory. One was a demand for payment on a gambling debt, but the knight she gave it to couldn't read. When she told him what it said, he tried to hit her, but Arya ducked under the blow, snatched a silver-banded drinking horn off his saddle, and darted away. The knight roared and came after her, but she slid between two wains, wove through a crowd of archers, and jumped a latrine trench. In his mail, he couldn't keep up. When she gave the horn to Wheeze, he told her that a smart little weasel like her deserved a reward. I've got my eye on a plump, crisp capon to sup on tonight. We'll share it, you and me. You'd like that. Everywhere she went, Arya searched for Jake and Hagar, wanting to whisper another name to him before those she hated were all gone out of her reach. But amidst the chaos and confusion, the Larathi sellsword was not to be found. He still owed her two deaths, and she was worried she would never get them if he rode off to battle with the rest. Finally, she worked up the courage to ask one of the gate guards if he'd gone. "'One of Locke's men, is he?' the man said. "'He won't be going, then. His lordship's name's Sir Amory Castellan of Aranal. That lot's staying right here to hold the castle. The bloody mummers will be left as well to do the foraging. That goat, Vargo Holt, is like to spit. Him and Lorch have always hated each other.' The mountain would be leaving with Lord Tywin, though. He would command the van in battle, which meant that Dunson, Polliver, and Raff would all slip between her fingers unless she could find Jakin and have him kill one of them before they left. Weasel, Weasel said that afternoon, get to the armory and tell Lucan that Sir Lionel notched his sword in practice and needs a new one. Here's his mark. He handed her a square of paper. Be quick about it now. He's to ride with Sir Kevin Lannister. Arya took the paper and ran. The armory adjoined the castle smithy, a long, high-roofed tunnel of a building with twenty forges built into its walls and long stone water troughs for tempering the steel. Half of the forges were at work when she entered. The walls rang with the sound of hammers, and burly men in leather aprons stood sweating in the sullen heat as they bent over bellows and anvils. When she spied Gendry, his bare chest was slick with sweat, but the blue eyes under the heavy black hair had the stubborn look she remembered. Ari didn't know that she even wanted to talk to him. It was his fault they'd all been caught. Which one is Lucan? She thrust out the paper. I'm to get a new sword for Sir Lionel. 
Never mind about Sir Lionel. He drew her aside by the arm. Last night, Hot Pie asked me if I'd heard you yell Winterfell back at the Holfast when we were all fighting on the wall. I never did. Yes, you did. I heard you too. Everyone was yelling stuff, Arya said defensively. Hot Pie yelled Hot Pie. He must have yelled it a hundred times. It's what you yell that matters. I told Hot Pie he should clean the wax out of his ears, that all you yelled was, Go to hell! If he asks you, you better say the same. I will, she said, even though she thought go to hell was a stupid thing to yell. She didn't dare tell Hot Pie who she really was. Maybe I should say Hot Pie's name to Jakin. I'll get Lucan, Gendry said. Lucan grunted at the writing, though Arya did not think he could read it, and pulled down a heavy longsword. Oh, this is too good for that oath. And you tell him I said so, he said as he gave her the blade. I will, she lied. If she did any such thing, Weeze would beat her bloody. Lucan could deliver his own insults. The longsword was a lot heavier than Needle had been, but Arya liked the feel of it. The weight of steel in her hands made her feel stronger. Maybe I'm not a water dancer yet, but I'm not a mouse either. A mouse couldn't use a sword, but I can. The gates were open. Soldiers were coming and going, drays rolling in empty and going out, creaking and swaying under their loads. She thought about going to the stables and telling them that Sir Lionel wanted a new horse. She had the paper. The stable boys wouldn't be able to read it any better than Lucan had. I could take the horse and the sword and just ride out. If the guards tried to stop me, I'd show them the paper and say I was bringing everything to Sir Lionel. She had no notion what Sir Lionel looked like or where to find him, though. If they questioned her, they'd know. And then wheeze. Wheeze. As she chewed her lip, trying not to think about how it would feel to have her feet cut off, a group of archers in leather jerkins and iron helms went past, their bows slung across their shoulders. Ari heard snatches of their talk. Giants, I tell you. He's got giants. Twenty foot tall, come down from beyond the wall. Follow him like dogs. Not natural, coming on them so fast, in the night and all. He's more wolf than man. All them Starks are. Shit on your wolves and giants. The boy had piss his pants if he knew we was coming. He wasn't man enough to march on Haranel, was he? Ran to the way, didn't he? He'd run now if he knew what was best for him. So you say, but might be the boy knows something we don't. Maybe it's us ought to be running. Yes, Arya thought. Yes, it's you who ought to run. You and Lord Tywin and the Mountain and Sir Adam and Sir Amory and stupid Sir Lionel, whoever he is. All of you better run or my brother will kill you. He's a Stark. He's more wolf than man. And so am I. Weasel! Weasel's voice cracked like a whip. She never saw where he came from, but suddenly he was right in front of her. Give me that! Took you long enough! He snatched the sword from her fingers and dealt her a stinging slap with the back of his hand. Next time, 
Be quicker about it. For a moment, she had been a wolf again, but Weiss's slap took it all away and left her with nothing but the taste of her own blood in her mouth. She'd bitten her tongue when he hit her. She hated him for that. You want another? Weiss demanded. You'll get it too. I'll have none of your insolent looks. Get down to the brew house and tell Tufflebury that I have two dozen barrels for him. But he'd better send his lads to fetch them, or I'll find someone wants some worse. Arya started off, but not quick enough for Wheeze. You run if you want to eat tonight, he shouted, his promises of a plump Chris Capon already forgotten. And don't be getting lost again, or I'll swear I'll beat you bloody. You won't, Arya thought. You won't ever again. But she ran. The old guards of the north must have been guiding her steps. Halfway to the brew house, as she was passing under the stone bridge that arched between Widow's Tower and King's Pyre, she heard harsh, growling laughter. Rorg came round a corner with three other men, the manticore badge of Sir Amory sewn over their hearts. When he saw her, he stopped and grinned, showing a mouthful of crooked brown teeth under the leather flap he wore sometimes to cover the hole in his face. Yoren's little cunt, he called her. Guess we know why that black bastard wanted you on the wall, don't we? <laughs> he laughed again, and the others laughed with him. Where's your stink now? Rorg demanded suddenly, the smile gone as quick as it had come. Seems to me I promised to fuck you with it. He took a step towards her. Arian edged backward. Not so brave now that I'm not in chains, aren't you? I saved you. She kept her good yard between them, ready to run quick as a snake if he made a grab for her. Owe you another fucking for that, seems like. Did Yowen pump your cunny, or did he like that tight little arse better? I'm looking for Jakin, she said. There's a message. Rorg halted. Something in his eyes. Could it be that he was scared of Jakin Hagar? The bathhouse. Get out of my way. Arya whirled and ran, swift as a deer, her feet flying over the cobbles all the way to the bathhouse. She found Jakin soaking in a tub, steam rising around him as a serving girl sluiced hot water over his head. His long hair, red on one side and white on the other, fell down across his shoulders, wet and heavy. She crept up, quiet as a shadow, but he opened his eyes all the same. She steals in on little mice feet, but a man hears, he said. How could he hear me? she wondered, and it seemed as if he'd heard that as well. The scoff of leather on stone sings loud as war horns to a man with open ears. Clever girls go barefoot. I have a message, Arya eyed the serving girl uncertainly. When she did not seem likely to go away, she leaned in until her mouth was almost touching his ear. Wheeze, she whispered. Jake and Hagar closed his eyes again, floating languid, half asleep. Tell his lordship 
a man shall attend him at his leisure. His hand moved suddenly, splashing hot water at her, and Arya had to leap back to keep from getting drenched. When she told Tuffleberry what Wheeze had said, the brewer cursed loudly. You tell Wheeze my lad's got duties to attend to, and you tell him he's a pucks-ridden bastard too, and the seven hells will freeze over before he gets another horn of my ale. I'll have them barrels within the hour, or Lord Tywin will hear of it. See if he don't. Wheezed cursed too when Arya brought back that message, even though she left out the pucks-ridden bastard part. He fumed and threatened, but in the end he rounded up six men and sent them off grumbling to fetch the barrels down to the brew house. Supper that evening was a thin stew of barley, onion, and carrots with a wedge of stale brown bread. One of the women had taken to sleeping in Weese's bed, and she got a piece of bright blue cheese as well and a wing off the capon that Weese had spoken of that morning. He ate the rest himself, the grease running down in a shiny line through the boils that festered at the corner of his mouth. The bird was almost gone when he glanced up from his trencher and saw Arya staring. We shall come here. A few mouthfuls of dark meat still clung to one thigh. He forgot, but now he's remembered, Arya thought. It made her feel bad for telling Jaken to kill him. She got off the bench and went to the head of the table. I saw you looking at me. Wheeze wiped his fingers on the front of her shift. Then he grabbed her throat with one hand and slapped her with the other. What did I tell you? He slapped her again, backhand. Keep those eyes to yourself, or next time I'll spoon one out and feed it to my bitch. A shove sent her stumbling to the floor. Her hem caught on a loose nail in the splintered wooden bench and ripped as she fell. You'll mend that before you sleep, Weiss announced as he pulled the last bit of meat off the capon. When he was finished, he sucked his fingers noisily and threw the bones to his ugly, spotted dog. Weiss, Arya whispered that night as she bent over the tear in her shift. Dunson, Polliver, Raff the Sweetling, she said, calling a name every time she pushed the bone needle through the undyed wall. The Tickler and the Hound Sir Gregor, Sir Amory, Sir Ilian, Sir Merrin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. She wondered how much longer she would have to include Wees in her prayer, and drifted off to sleep, dreaming that on the morrow when she woke, he'd be dead. But it was the sharp toe of Wees's boot that woke her, as ever. The main strength of Lord Tywin's host would ride this day, he told them, as they broke their fast on oat cakes. Don't none of you be thinking how easy you'll be once my lord of Lannister's gone, he warned. The castle won't grow no smaller, I promise you that. Only now there'll be fewer hands to tend to it. You lot of slugger beds are going to learn what work is now. Yes, you are. Not from you. Arya picked at her oaten cake. Wheeze frowned at her as if he smelled her secret. Quickly she dropped her gaze to her food and did not dare raise her eyes again. 
pale light filled the yard when Lord Tywin Lannister took his leave of Harrenhal. Arya watched from an arch window halfway up the Wailing Tower. His charger wore a blanket of enameled crimson scales and gilded crinet and chamfron, while Lord Tywin himself sported a thick ermine cloak. His brother, Sir Kevin, looked nearer splendid. No less than four standard-bearers went before them, carrying huge crimson banners emblazoned with the golden lion. Behind the Lannisters came their great lords and captains. Their banners flared and flapped, a pageant of colour, red ox and golden mountain, purple unicorn and bantam rooster, brindled boar and badger, a silver ferret and a juggler in motley, stars and sunbursts, peacocks and panther, chevron and dagger, black hood and blue beetle and green arrow. Last of all came Sir Gregor Clegane, in his grey plate steel, astride a stallion as bad-tempered as his rider. Polliver rode beside him, with a black dog standard in his hand, and Gendry's horned helm on his head. He was a tall man, but he looked no more than a half-grown boy when he rode in his master's shadow. A shiver crept up Arya's spine, as she watched them pass under the great iron portcullis of Harrenhal. Suddenly, she knew that she had made a terrible mistake. I'm so stupid, she thought. Wheeze did not matter, no more than Chiswick had. These were the men who mattered, the ones she ought to have killed. Last night, she could have whispered any of them dead. If only she hadn't been so mad at Wheeze for hitting her and lying about the capon. Lord Tywin! Why didn't I say Lord Tywin? Perhaps it was not too late to change her mind. Wheeze was not killed yet. If she could find Jakin, tell him. Hurriedly, Arya ran down the twisting steps, her chores forgotten. She heard the rattle of chains as the portcullis was slowly lowered, its spike sinking deep into the ground, and then another sound, a shriek of pain and fear. A dozen people got there before her, though none was coming any too close. Arya squirmed between them. Wheeze was sprawled across the cobbles, his throat a red ruin, eyes gaping sightlessly up at a bank of grey cloud. His ugly, spotted dog stood on his chest, lapping at the blood, pulsing from his neck, and every so often ripping a mouthful of flesh out of the dead man's face. Finally, someone brought a crossbow, and shot the spotted dog dead while she was worrying at one of Weiss's ears. Damnedest thing, she heard a man say. He had that bitch dog since she was a pup. This place is cursed, the man with the crossbow said. It's Aaron's ghost, that's what it is, said goodwife Amabel. I'll not sleep here another night, I swear it. Aria lifted her gaze from the dead man and his dead dog. Jake and Hagar was leaning up against the side of the wailing tower. When he saw her looking, he lifted a hand to his face and laid two fingers casually against his cheek. Catelyn Two days' ride from River Run, a scout spied them watering their horses beside a muddy stream. Catelyn had never been so glad to see the twin-tower badge of House Frey. 
When she asked him to lead them to her uncle, he said, The Blackfish is gone west with the king, my lady. Martin Rivers commands the outriders in his stead. I see. She had met Rivers at the Twins, a baseborn son of Lord Walder Frey, half-brother to Sir Perrin. It did not surprise her to learn that Rob had struck at the heart of Lannister power. Clearly he had been contemplating just that when he sent her away to treat with Renly. Where is Rivers now? His camp is two hours' ride, milady. Take us to him, she commanded. Brian helped her back into her saddle, and they set out at once. Have you come from Bitterbridge, milady? the scout asked. No, she had not dared. With Renly dead, Catelyn had been uncertain of the reception she might receive from his young widow and her protectors. Instead, she had ridden through the heart of the war, through fertile riverlands turned to blackened desert by the fury of the Lannisters, and each night her scouts brought back tales that made her ill. Lord Renly is slain, she added. We hope that tale was some uh, Lannister lie, or... Uh... Would that it were. My brother commands in Riveron? Yes, milady. His grace left Sir Edmure to hold Riveron and guard his rear. Guards grant him the strength to do so, Catelyn thought. And the wisdom as well. Is there word from Rob in the West? You have not heard? The man seemed surprised. His grace won a great victory at Oxcross. Sir Stafford Lannister is dead, his hosts scattered. Sir Wendell Manderley gave a whoop of pleasure, but Catelyn only nodded. Tomorrow's trials concerned her more than yesterday's triumphs. Martin Rivers had made his camp in the shell of a shattered holdfast, beside a roofless table and a hundred fresh graves. He went to one knee when Catelyn dismounted. Well met, my lady. Your brother charges to keep an eye out for your party, and escort you back to Riverrun in all haste should we come upon you. Catelyn scarce liked the sound of that. Is it my father? No, my lady. Lord Huster is unchanged. Rivers was a ruddy man with scant resemblance to his half-brothers. It's only that we feared you might chance upon Lannister scouts. Lord Tywin has left Harrenhal and marches west with all his power. Rise, she told Rivers, frowning. Stannis Baratheon would soon be on the march as well. Guards help them all. How long until Lord Tywin is upon us? Three days, perhaps four. It's hard to know. We have eyes out along all the roads, but it would be best not to linger. Nor did they. Rivers broke his camp quickly and saddled up beside her, and they set off again, near fifty strong now, flying beneath the direwolf, the leaping trout, the twin towers. Her men wanted to hear more of Rob's victory at Oxcross, and Rivers obliged. There's a singer come to River Run, calls himself Ryman the Rhymer. He's made a song of the fight. Doubtless you will hear it sung tonight, my lady. Wolf in the night, this Ryman calls it. He went on to tell how the remnants of Sir Stafford's host had fallen back on Lannisport. Without siege engines, there was no way to storm Castle Rock. So the young wolf was paying the Lannisters back in kind for the devastation they'd inflicted on the Riverlands. Lords Carstark and Glover were raiding along the coast. Lady Mormont had captured thousands of cattle and was driving them back towards Riveron, 
while the great John had seized the gold mines at Castamere, Nunsdeep, and Pendrick Hills. Sir Wendell laughed. Nothing's more like to bring a Lannister running than a threat to his gold. How did the king ever take the tooth? Sir Perwin Frey asked his bastard brother. That's a hard, strong keep, and it commands the hill road. He never took it. <laughs> he slipped around it in the night. It said the direwolf showed him the way, that grey wind of his. The beast sniffed out a goat track that wound down a defile and up along beneath a ridge, a crooked and stony way yet wide enough for men riding single file. The Lannisters in their watchtowers got not so much as a glimpse of them. Rivers lowered his voice. There's some say, and after the battle, the king cut out Stafford Lannister's heart and fed it to the wolf. I would not believe such tales, Catelyn said sharply. My son is no savage. As you say, my lady, still it's no more than the beast deserved. That is no common wolf, that one. The great John's been heard to say that the old gods of the north sent those dire wolves to your children. Catelyn remembered the day when her boys had found the pups in the late summer snows. There had been five, three male and two female, for the five true-born children of House Stark, and a sixth, white of fur and red of eye, for Ned's bastard son, Jon Snow. No common wolves, she thought. No, indeed. That night, as they made their camp, Brian sought out her tent. My lady, you are safely back among your own now, a day's ride from your brother's castle. Give me leave to go. Catelyn should not have been surprised. The homely young woman had kept to herself all through their journey, spending most of her time with the horses, brushing out their coats and pulling stones from their shoes. She had helped shed, cook, and clean game as well, and soon proved that she could hunt as well as any. Any task Catelyn asked her to turn her hand to, Brian had performed deftly and without complaint, and when she was spoken to, she answered politely, but never chattered nor wept nor laughed. She had ridden with them every day and slept among them every night without ever truly becoming one of them. It was the same when she was with Renly, Catelyn thought, at the feast, in the melee, even in Renly's pavilion with her brothers of the Rainbow Guard. There are walls around this one higher than Winterfell's. If you left us, where would you go? Catelyn asked her. Back, Brian said, to Storm's End. Alone. It was not a question. The broad face was a pool of still water, giving no hint of what might live in the depths below. Yes. You mean to kill Stannis? Brain closed her thick calloused fingers around the hilt of her sword. The sword that had been his. I swore a vow. Three times I swore. You heard me. I did, Catelyn admitted. The girl had kept the rainbow cloak when she discarded the rest of her blood-stained clothing, she knew. Brian's own things had been left behind during their flight, and she had been forced to clothe herself in odd bits of Sir Wendell's spare garb, since no one else in their party had garments large enough to fit her. Vows should be kept, I agree, but Stannis has a great host around him, and his own guards sworn to keep him safe. 
I'm not afraid of his guards. I'm as good as any of them. I should never have fled. Is that what troubles you, that some fool might call you craven? She sighed. Renly's death was no fault of yours. You served him valiantly, but when you seek to follow him into the earth, you serve no one. She stretched out a hand to give what comfort a touch could give. I know how hard it is. Brian shook off her hand. No one knows. You're wrong, Catelyn said sharply. Every morning when I wake, I remember that Ned is gone. I have no skill with swords, but that does not mean that I do not dream of riding to King's Landing and wrapping my hands around Cersei Lannister's white throat and squeezing until her face turns black. The beauty raised her eyes, the only part of her that was truly beautiful. If you dream that, why would you seek to hold me back? Is it because of what Stannis said at the parley? Was it? Catelyn glanced across the camp. Two men were walking sentry, spears in hand. I was taught that good men must fight evil in this world, and Renly's death was evil beyond all doubt. Yet I was also taught that the guards make kings, not the swords of men. If Stannis is our rightful king, he's not. Robert was never the rightful king either. Even Renly said as much. Jamie Lannister murdered the rightful king after Robert killed his lawful heir on the Trident. Where were the gods then? The gods don't care about men, no more than kings care about peasants. A good king does care. Lord Renly, his grace, he, he would have been the best king, my lady. He was so good, he... He is gone, Brian, she said as gently as she could. Stannis and Joffrey remain, and so does my son. He wouldn't... You'd never make a peace with Stannis, would you? Bend the knee? You wouldn't. I will tell you true, Brian. I do not know. My son may be a king, but I am no queen. Only a mother who would keep her children safe however she could. I'm not meant to be a mother. I need to fight. Then fight. But for the living, not the dead. Renly's enemies are Rob's enemies as well. Brian stared at the ground and shuffled her feet. I do not know your son, my lady. She looked up. I could serve you if you would have me. Catelyn was startled. Why me? The question seemed to trouble Brian. You helped me in the pavilion when they thought that I had, that I had, you were innocent. Even so, you did not have to do that. You could have let them kill me. I was nothing to you. Perhaps I did not want to be the only one who knew the dark truth of what had happened there, Catelyn thought. Brian, I have taken many well-born ladies into my service over the years, but never one like you. I am no battle commander. No, but you have courage. Not battle courage, perhaps, but, I don't know, a kind of woman's courage. And I think when the time comes, you will not try and hold me back. Promise me that, that you will not hold me back from Stannis. Catelyn could still hear Stannis saying, that Rob's turn, too, would come in time. It was like a cold breath on the back of her neck. 
When the time comes, I will not hold you back. The tall girl knelt awkwardly, unsheathed Renly's longsword, and laid it at her feet. Then I'm yours, my lady. Your liege man, or whatever you would have me be. I will shield your back, and keep your counsel, and give my life for yours, if need be. I swear it by the old gods and the new. And I vow that you shall always have a place by my hearth, and meet and mead at my table, and pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you into dishonour. I swear it by the old gods and the new. Arise. As she clasped the other woman's hands between her own, Catelyn could not help but smile. How many times did I watch Ned accept a man's oath of service? She wondered what he would think if he could see her now. They forded the Red Fork late the next day, upstream of River Run, where the river made a wide loop and the waters grew muddy and shallow. The crossing was guarded by a mixed force of archers and pikemen wearing the eagle badge of the Malisters. When they saw Catelyn's banners, they emerged from behind their sharpened stakes and sent a man over from the far bank to lead her party across. "'Slow and careful, like me, lady,' he warned, as he took the bridle of her horse. "'We've planted iron spikes under the water, you see, and there's caltrops scattered under them rocks there. It's the same on all the fords, by your brother's command.' Edmure thinks to fight here?' The realization gave her a queasy feeling in the bowels, but she held her tongue. Between the Red Fork and the Tumblestone, they joined a stream of small folk making for the safety of River Run. Some were driving animals before them, others pulling wains, but they made way as Catelyn rode past and cheered her with cries of Tully or Stark. Half a mile from the castle, she passed through a large encampment where the scarlet banner of the Blackwoods waved above the Lord's tent. Lucas took his leave of her there to seek out his father, Lord Titus. The rest rode on. Catelyn spied a second camp strung out along the bank north of the Tumblestone, familiar standards flapping in the wind. Mark Piper's dancing maiden, Darry's plowman, the twining red and white snakes of the pages. They were all her father's bannermen, lords of the Trident. Most had left River Run before she had to defend their own lands. If they were here again, it could only mean that Edmure had called them back. God save us, it's true. He means to offer battle to Lord Tywin. Something dark was dangling against the walls of River Run, Catelyn saw from a distance. When she rode close, she saw dead men hanging from the battlements, slumped at the ends of long ropes with hempen nooses tight around their necks their faces swollen and black. The crows had been at them, but their crimson cloaks still showed bright against the sandstone walls. "'They've hanged some Lannisters,' Hal Mullen observed. "'A pretty sight,' Sir Wendell Manderley said cheerfully. "'Our friends have begun without us,' Perwin Frey jested. The others laughed, all but Brian, who gazed up at the row of bodies unblinking and neither spoke nor smiled. If they have slain the Kingslayer, then my daughters are dead as well. Catelyn spurred her horse to a canter. 
Hal Mullen and Robin Flint raced past at a gallop, hallooing to the gatehouse. The guards on the walls had doubtless spied her banner some time ago, for the portcullis was up as they approached. Ed Muir rode out from the castle to meet her, surrounded by three of her father's sworn men. Great Bellet Sir Desmond Grell, the master-at-arms, authorized Wayne, the steward, and Sir Robin Ryger, Riverrun's big, bald captain of guards. They were all three of an age with Lord Huster, men who had spent their lives in her father's service. Old men, Catelyn realized. Ed Muir wore a blue and red cloak over a tunic embroidered with silver fish. From the look of him, he had not shaved since she rode south. His beard was a fiery bush. Cut! It's good to have you safely back. When we heard of Renly's death, we feared for your life, and Lord Tywin is on the march as well. So I am told. How fares our father? One day he seems stronger than next. Uh, he shook his head. He's asked for you. I did not know what to tell him. I will go to him soon, she vowed. Has there been any word from Storm's End since Renly died, or from Bitterbridge? No ravens came to men on the road, and Catelyn was anxious to know what had happened behind her. Nothing from Bitterbridge. From Storm's End, three birds from the Castellan, Sir Courtney Penrose, all carrying the same plea. Stannis has him surrounded by land and sea. He offers his allegiance to whatsoever king will break the siege. He fears for the boy, he says. What boy would that be, do you know? Edric Storm, Brian told them. Robert's bastard son. Edmure looked at her curiously. Stannis has sworn that the garrison might go free, unharmed, providing they yield the castle within the fortnight and deliver the boy into his hands. But Sir Courtney will not consent. He risks all for a base-born boy whose blood is not even his own. Catelyn thought. Did you send him an answer? Edmure shook his head. Why, when we have neither help nor hope to offer, and Stannis is no enemy of ours? Sir Robin Ryger spoke. My lady, can you tell us the manner of Lord Renly's death? The tales we've heard have been queer. Cat, her brother said. Some say you killed Renly. Others claim it was some southern woman. His glance lingered on Brian. My king was murdered, the girl said quietly, and not by Lady Catelyn. I swear it on my sword, by the gods old and new. This is Brian of Tarth, the daughter of Lord Selwyn the Evenstar, who served in Renly's Ramo Guard, Catelyn told them. Brian, I am honoured to acquaint you with my brother, Sir Edmure Tully, heir to Riveron. His steward authorised Wayne, Sir Robin Rygar, and Sir Desmond Grill. Honoured, said Sir Desmond. The others echoed him. The girl flushed, embarrassed even at this commonplace courtesy. If Edmure thought her a curious sort of lady, at least he had the grace not to say so. Brian was with Renly when he was killed, as was I, said Catelyn, but we had no part in his death. She did not care to speak of the shadow, here in the open, with men all around, so she waved a hand at the bodies. Who are these men you've hanged? Edmure glanced up uncomfortably. They came with Sir Cleus when he brought the Queen's answer to our peace offer, 
Catelyn was shocked. You killed envoys? False envoys, Edmure declared. They pledged me their peace and surrendered their weapons, so I allowed them freedom of the castle, and for three nights they ate my meat and drank my mead while I talked with Sir Cleos. On the fourth night they tried to free the Kingslayer. He pointed up. That big brute killed two guards with naught but those ham hands of his, caught them by the throats, and smashed their skulls together, while that skinny lad beside him was opening Lannister's cell with a bit of wire guards curse him. The one on the end was some sort of damned mummer. He used my own voice to command that the river gate be open. The guardsmen swear to it. Enger and Delp and Longlu, all three, if you ask me, the man sounded nothing like me, and yet the oafs were raising the portcullis all the same. This was the imp's work, Catelyn suspected. It stank of the same sort of cunning he had displayed at the Eyrie. Once she would have named Tyrion the least dangerous of the Lannisters. Now she was not so certain. How is it you caught them? Uh, as it happened, I was not in the castle. I'd uh, cross the tumblestone to, um... You were whoring or wenching. Get on with the tale. Edmure's cheeks flamed as red as his beard. It was the hour before dawn, and I was only then returning, when Longlu saw my boat and recognized me. He finally thought to wonder who was standing below, backing commands, and raised a cry. Tell me the Kingslayer was retaken. Yes, though not easily. Jamie got hold of a sword, slew Paul Pemford, and Sir Desmond Squire Miles and wounded Delp so badly that Maester Vyman fears he'll soon die as well. It was a bloody mess. At the sound of steel, some of the other red cloaks rushed to join him, bare hand or no. I hang those beside the four who freed him, and threw the rest in the dungeons. Jamie, too. We'll have no more escapes from that one. He's down in the dark this time, chained hand and foot, and bolted to the wall. And Cleos Frey? He swears he knew naught of the plot. Who can say? The man is half Lannister, half Frey, an old liar. I put him in Jamie's old tower cell. You say he brought terms? If you can call them that. You'll like them no more than I did, I promise. Can we hope for no help from the South, Lady Stark? Asked authorized Wayne, her father Stuart. This charge of incest... Lord Tywin does not suffer such slights lightly. He will seek to wash the stain from his daughter's name with the blood of her accuser. Lord Stannis must see that. He has no choice but to make common cause with us. Stannis has made common cause with a power greater and darker. Let us speak of these matters later. Catelyn trotted over the drawbridge, putting the grisly row of dead Lannisters behind her. Her brother kept pace. As they rode out into the bustle of River Run's upper bailey, a naked toddler ran in front of the horses. Catelyn jerked her reins hard to avoid him, glancing about in dismay. Hundreds of small folk had been admitted to the castle and allowed to erect crude shelters against the walls. Their children were everywhere underfoot, and the yard teemed with their cows, sheep, and chickens. Who are all these folk? My people, 
Edmure answered. They were afraid. Only my sweet brother would crowd all these useless mouths into a castle that might soon be under siege. Catelyn knew that Edmure had a soft heart. Sometimes she thought his head was even softer. She loved him for it, yet still— Can Rob be reached by Raven? He's in the field, my lady, Sir Desmond replied. The bird would have no way to find him. Authorized Wayne coughed. Before he left us, the young king instructed us to send you on to the twins upon your return, Lady Stark. He asked that you learn more of Lord Walder's daughters to help him select his bride when the time comes. We'll provide you with fresh mounts and provisions, her brother promised. You'll want to refresh yourself before. I'll want to stay, Catelyn said, dismounting. She had no intention of leaving Riveron and her dying father to pick Rob's wife for him. Rob wants me safe. I cannot fault him for that. But his pretext is growing threadbare. Boy, she called, and an urchin from the stables ran out to take the reins of her horse. Edmure swung down from the saddle. He was a head taller than she was, but he would always be her little brother. Cat, he said unhappily, Lord Daywin is coming. He's making for the west to defend his own lands. If we close our gates and shelter behind the walls, we can watch him pass with safety. This is Tully land, Edmure declared. If Tywin Lannister thinks to cross it unblooded, I mean to teach him a hard lesson. The same lesson you taught his son? Her brother could be as stubborn as River Rock when his pride was touched. But neither of them was likely to forget how Sir Jamie had cut Edmure's host to bloody pieces the last time he had offered battle. We have nothing to gain, and everything to lose by meeting Lord Tywin in the field, Catelyn said tactfully. The yard is not the place to discuss my battle plans. As you will, where shall we go? Her brother's face darkened. For a moment, she thought he was about to lose his temper with her, but finally he snapped. The gods would, if you will insist. She followed him along a gallery to the godswood gate. Edmure's anger had always been a sulky, sullen thing. Catelyn was sorry she had wounded him, but the matter was too important for her to concern herself with his pride. When they were alone beneath the trees, Edmure turned to face her. You do not have the strength to meet the Lannisters in the field, she said bluntly. When all my strength is marshaled, I should have eight thousand foot and three thousand horse, Edmure said which means Lord Tywin, will have near twice your numbers. Rob's won his battles against worse odds, Edmure replied, and I have a plan. You've forgotten Roose Bolton. Lord Tywin defeated him on the Green Fork, but failed to pursue. When Lord Tywin went to Harrenhal, Bolton took the Ruby Ford and the crossroads. He has ten thousand men. I've sent word to Helmand Tallhart to join him with the garrison Rob left at the Twins. Edmure, Rob left those men to hold the Twins and make certain Lord Walder keeps faith with us. He has, Edmure said stubbornly. The Freys fought bravely in the Whispering Wood, and also Stevron died at Oxcross, we hear. Sir Raymond, 
and Blackwalder and the rest are with Rob in the West. Martin has been of great service scouting, and Sir Perwin helped see you safe to Renly. Gods be good, how much more can we ask of them? Rob's betrothed to one of Lord Walder's daughters, and Roose Bolton wed another, I hear. And haven't you taken two of his grandsons to be fostered at Winterfell? A ward can easily become a hostage if need be. She had not known that Lord Steveron was dead, nor of Bolton's marriage. If we're two hostages to the good, all the more reason Lord Walder dare not play us false. Bolton needs Frey's men, and Sir Hellman's as well. I've commanded him to retake Harrenhal. That's like to be a bloody business. Yes, but once the castle falls, Lord Tywin will have no safe retreat. My own levies will defend the fords of Red Fork against his crossing. If he attacks across the river, he'll end as Rhaegar did when he tried to cross the Trident. If he holds back, he'll be caught between River Run and Harrenhal, and when Rob returns from the west, we can finish him for good and all. Her brother's voice was full of brusque confidence, but Catelyn found herself wishing that Rob had not taken her uncle Brynden west with him. The Blackfish was a veteran of half a hundred battles. Edmure was a veteran of one, and that one lost. The plan's a good one, he concluded. Lord Titus says so, and Lord Jonas as well. When did Blackwood and Bracken agree about anything that was not certain, I ask you? Be that as it may. She was suddenly weary. Perhaps she was wrong to oppose him. Perhaps it was a splendid plan, and her misgivings only a woman's fears. She wished Ned were here, her uncle Brynden, or— Have you asked father about this? Father is in no state to weigh strategies. Two days ago he was making plans for your marriage to Brandon Stark. Go see him yourself, if you do not believe me. This plan will work, Cat. You'll see. I hope so, Edmure. I truly do. She kissed him on the cheek to let him know she meant it, and went to find her father. Lord Hustertully was much as she had left him, a bed, haggard, flesh-pale and clammy. The room smelled of sickness, a cloying odour made up in equal parts of stale sweat and medicine. When she pulled back the drapes, her father gave a low moan, and his eyes fluttered open. He stared at her as if he could not comprehend who she was or what she wanted. Father, she kissed him. I am returned. He seemed to know her then. You've come, he whispered faintly, lips barely moving. Yes, she said. Rob sent me south, but I hurried back. South? Where is... The air is south, sweetly. I don't recall. Oh, dear heart, I was afraid. Have you forgiven me, child? Tears ran down his cheeks. You've done nothing that needs forgiveness, father. She stroked his limp white hair and felt his brow. The fever still burned him from within, despite all the maester's potions. It was best. Her father whispered. John's 
a good man, good, strong, kind, take care of you, he will, and well born. Listen to me, you must. I'm your father, your father. Your word when cat does. Yes, you will. He thinks I'm Lysa, Catelyn realized. Gods be good, he talks as if we were not married yet. Her father's hands clutched at hers, fluttering like two frightened white birds. That stripling, wretched boy, not speak that name to me. Your duty, your mother, she would... Lord Huster cried as a spasm of pain washed over him. Oh, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, my medicine. And then Maester Vyman was there, holding a cup to his lips. Lord Huster sucked at the thick white potion as eagerly as a babe at the breast, and Catelyn could see peace settle over him once more. He'll sleep now, my lady, the maester said when the cup was empty. The milk of the poppy had left a thick white film around her father's mouth. Maester Vyman wiped it away with a sleeve. Catelyn could watch no more. Huster Tolly had been a strong man and proud. It hurt her to see him reduced to this. She went out to the terrace. The yard below was crowded with refugees and chaotic with their noises, but beyond the walls the rivers flowed clean and pure and endless. Those are his rivers, and soon he will return to them for his last voyage. Maester Vyman had followed her out. My lady, he said softly, I cannot keep the end bay much longer. We ought to send a rider after his brother. Sir Brynden would wish to be here. Yes, Catelyn said, her voice thick with grief. And uh, the lady Lysa as well, perhaps? Lysa will not come. If you wrote her yourself, perhaps. I will put some words to paper, if that please you. She wondered who Lysa's wretched stripling had been. Some young squire or hedge knight, like as not, though by the vehemence with which Lord Huster had opposed him, he might have been a tradesman's son or base-born apprentice, even a singer. Lysa had always been too fond of singers. I must not blame her. John Aaron was twenty years older than our father, however noble. The tower her brother had set aside for her use was the very same that she and Lysa had shared as maids. It would feel good to sleep on a feather bed again, with a warm fire in the hearth. When she was rested, the world would seem less bleak. But outside her chambers she found Utheride's Wayne waiting with two women clad in grey, their faces cowled, save for their eyes. Catelyn knew at once why they were here. Ned? The sisters lowered their gaze. Utheride said, Sir Cleos brought him from King's Landing, my lady. Take me to him, she commanded. They had laid him out on a trestle table, 
and covered him with a banner, the white banner of House Stark, with its grey direwolf sigil. I would look on him, Catelyn said. Only the bones remain, milady. I would look on him, she repeated. One of the silent sisters turned down the banner. Bones, Catelyn thought. This is not Ned. This is not the man I loved, the father of my children. His hands were clasped together over his chest. Skeletal fingers curled about the hilt of some longsword. But they were not Ned's hands so strong and full of life. They had dressed the bones in Ned's surcoat, the fine white velvet with the direwolf badge over the heart. But nothing remained of the warm flesh that had pillowed her head so many nights, the arms that had held her. The head had been rejoined to the body with fine silver wire, but one skull looks much like another, and in those empty hollows she found no trace of her lord's dark grey eyes, eyes that could be as soft as a fog or hard as stone. They gave his eyes to crows, she remembered. Catelyn turned away. That is not his sword. Ice was not returned to us, my lady, authorized said. Only Lord Eddard's bones. I suppose I must thank the Queen for even that much. Thank the imp, my lady. It was his doing. One day I will thank them all. I am grateful for your service, sisters, Catelyn said but I must lay another task upon you. Lord Eddard was a Stark, and his bones must be laid to rest beneath Winterfell. They will make a statue of him, a stone likeness, that will sit in the dark with a direwolf at his feet and a sword across his knees. Make certain his sisters have fresh horses and aught else they need for the journey, she told authorized Wayne. Hal Mullen will escort them back to Winterfell. It is his place as captain of guards. She gazed down at the bones that were all that remained of her lord and love. Now leave me, all of you. I would be alone with Ned tonight. The women in grey bowed their heads. The silent sisters do not speak to the living, Catelyn remembered dully but some say they can talk to the dead. And how she envied that. Daenerys The drapes kept out the dust and heat of the streets, but they could not keep out disappointment. Danny climbed inside wearily, glad for the refuge from the sea of Carthian eyes. Me way! Jogo shouted at the crowd from horseback, snapping his whip. Make way! Make way for the mother of dragons! Reclining on cool satin cushions, Zarozo and Daxus poured ruby-red wine into matched goblets of jade and gold, his hands sure and steady despite the sway of the palanquin. I see a deep sadness written upon your face, my light of love. He offered her a goblet. Could it be the sadness of a lost dream? A dream delayed, no more. 
Danny's tight silver collar was chafing against her throat. She unfastened it and flung it aside. The collar was set with an enchanted amethyst that Zaro swore would ward her against all poisons. The pure-born were notorious for offering poison wine to those they thought dangerous, but they had not given Danny so much as a cup of water. They never saw me for a queen, she thought bitterly. I was only an afternoon's amusement, a horse girl with a curious pet. Rhaegar hissed and dug sharp black claws into her bare shoulder as Danny stretched out a hand for the wine. Wincing, she shifted him to her other shoulder, where he could claw her gown instead of her skin. She was garbed after the Carthine fashion. Zara had warned her that the enthroned would never listen to a Dothraki, so she had taken care to go before them in a flowing green Samite with one breast bared, silver sandals on her feet, with a belt of black and white pearls about her waist. For all the help they offered, I could have gone naked. Perhaps I should have. She drank deep. Descendants of the ancient kings and queens of Carth, the pure-born, commanded the civil guard and their fleet of ornate galleys that ruled the straits between the seas. Daenerys Targaryen had wanted that fleet, or part of it, and some of their soldiers as well. She made the traditional sacrifice in the Temple of Memory, offered the traditional bribe to the keeper of the long list, sent the traditional persimmon to the opener of the door, and finally received the traditional blue silk slippers summoning her to the Hall of a Thousand Thrones. The pure-born heard her pleas from the great wooden seats of their ancestors, rising in curved tiers from a marble floor to a high dome ceiling painted with scenes of Karth's vanished glory. The chairs were immense, fantastically carved, bright with gold work and studded with amber, onyx, lapis, and jade, each one different from the others, and each striving to be the most fabulous. Yet the men who sat in them seemed so listless and world-weary that they might have been asleep. They listened, but they did not hear or care, she thought. They are milkmen indeed. They never meant to help me. They came because they were curious. They came because they were bored, and the dragon on my shoulder interested them more than I did. Tell me the words of the pure-born, prompted Zarozo and Daxus. Tell me what they said to sadden the queen of my heart. They said no. The wine tasted of pomegranates and hot summer days. They said it with great courtesy, to be sure, but under all the lovely words it was still no. Did you flatter them? Shamelessly. Did you weep? The blood of the dragon does not weep, she said testily. Zaro sighed. You ought to have wept. The Carthian wept often and easily. It was considered a mark of the civilized man. The men we bought. What did they say? Mathis said nothing. When Dello praised the way I spoke, the exquisite refused me with the rest, but he wept afterward. Alas, that Carthin should be so faithless. Zara was not himself of the pure-born, but he had told her whom to bribe and how much to offer. Weep, weep for the treachery of men. Danny would sooner have wept for her gold. The bribe she tendered to Mathis Malarowan, Wendello Cardith, and Egon Emerus, the exquisite, 
might have bought her a ship or hired a score of sellswords. Suppose I sent Sir Jorrit to demand the return of my gifts, she asked. Suppose a sorrowful man came to my palace one night and killed you as you slept, said Zorro. The sorrowful men were an ancient sacred guild of assassins, so named because they always whispered, I am so sorry, to their victims before they killed them. The Carthian were nothing if not polite. It is wisely said that it is easier to milk the stone cow of Ferus than to wring gold from the pureborn. Danny did not know where Ferus was, but it seemed to her that Carth was full of stone cows. The merchant princes, grown vastly rich off the trade between the seas, were divided into three jealous factions. The ancient guild of spices, the Tourmaline Brotherhood, and the Thirteen, to which Zaru belonged. Each vied with the others for dominance, and all three contended endlessly with the pureborn. And brooding over all were the warlocks, with their blue lips and dread powers, seldom seen but much feared. She would have been lost without Zaro. The gold that she had squandered to open the doors of the Hall of a Thousand Thrones was largely a product of the merchant's generosity and quick wits. As the rumor of living dragons had spread through the East, ever more seekers had come to learn if the tale was true, and Zarozo and Daxus saw to it that the great and the humble alike offered some token to the mother of dragons. The trickle he'd started soon swelled to a flood. Trader captains bought lace from myrrh, chests of saffron from Yiti, amber and dragonglass out of a shayi. Merchants offered bags of coin, silversmiths' rings and chains. Pipers piped for her, tumblers tumbled, and jugglers juggled, while dyers draped her in colors she had never known existed. A pair of jogus nigh presented her with one of their striped sources, black and white and fierce. A widow brought the dried corpse of her husband, covered with a crust of silvered leaves. Such remnants were believed to have great power, especially if the deceased had been a sorcerer, as this one had. And the Tourmaline Brotherhood pressed on her a crown wrought in the shape of a three-headed dragon. The coils were yellow gold, the wings silver, the heads carved from jade, ivory, and onyx. The crown was the only offering she'd kept. The rest she sold to gather the wealth she had wasted on the pureborn. Zaro would have sold the crown too. The thirteen would see that she had a much finer one, he swore. But Danny forbade it. Viserys sold my mother's crown, and men called him a beggar. I shall keep this one, so men will call me a queen. And so she did, though the weight of it made her neck ache. Yet, even crowned, I'm a beggar still, Danny thought. I have become the most splendid beggar in the world, but a beggar all the same. She hated it, as her brother must have. All those years running from city to city, one step ahead of the usurper's knives, pleading for help from archons and princes and magisters, buying our food with flattery. He must have known how they mocked him. Small wonder he turned so angry and bitter. In the end it had driven him mad. It would do the same for me if I let it. Part of her would have liked nothing more than to lead her people back to Vase Toloro and make the dead city bloom. No, that is defeat. I have something Viserys never had. I have the dragons. The dragons 
are all the difference. She stroked Rhaegal. The green dragon closed his teeth around the meat of her hand and nipped hard. Outside, the great city murmured and thrummed and seethed, all its myriad voices blending into one low sound like the surge of the sea. "'Make way, you milkmen, make way for the mother of dragons,' Jogo cried, and the Carthine moved aside, though perhaps the oxen had more to do with that than his voice. Through the swaying draperies, Danny caught glimpses of him astride his grey stallion. From time to time he gave one of the oxen a flick with the silver-handled whip she had given him. Ego guarded on her other side, while Ricardo rode behind the procession, watching the faces in the crowd for any sign of danger. Sajora she had left behind today to guard her other dragons. The exile knight had been opposed to this folly from the start. He distrusts everyone, she reflected, and perhaps for good reason. As Danny lifted her gobbler to drink, Rhaegal sniffed at the wine and drew his head back, hissing. Your dragon has a good nose. Zaro wiped his lips. The wine is ordinary. It is said that across the Jade Sea they make a golden vintage so fine that one sip makes all other wines taste like vinegar. Let us take my pleasure barge and go in search of it, you and I. The arbor makes the best wine in the world, Danny declared. Lord Redwine had fought for her father against the usurper, she remembered, one of the few to remain true to the last. Will he fight for me as well? There was no way to be certain after so many years. Come with me to the arbor, Zaro, and you will have the finest vintages you ever tasted. But we'll need to go in a warship, not a pleasure barge. I have no warships. War is bad for trade. Many times I have told you, Zaro Zoandaxis is a man of peace. Zaro Zoandaxis is a man of gold, she thought, and gold will buy me all the ships and swords I need. I have not asked you to take up a sword, only to lend me your ships. He smiled modestly. Of trading ships I have a few, that is so. Who can say how many? One may be sinking even now in some stormy corner of the summer sea. On the morrow, another will fall afoul of corsairs. The next day, one of my captains may look at the wealth in this hold and think, Oh, all this should belong to me. Such are the perils of trade. Why, the longer we talk, the fewer ships I am likely to have. I grow poorer by the instant. Give me ships, and I will make you rich again. Marry me, bright light, and sail the ship of my heart. I cannot sleep at night for thinking of your beauty. Danny smiled. Zara's flowery protestations of passion amused her, but his manner was at odds with his words. While Sir Jorah had scarcely been able to keep his eyes from her bare breast when he'd helped her into the palanquin, Zaro hardly deigned to notice it, even in these close confines. And she had seen the beautiful boys who surrounded the merchant prince, flitting through his palace halls in wisps of silk. You speak sweetly, Zaro, but under your words I hear another no. The iron throne you speak of sounds monstrous cold and hard. I cannot bear the thought of jagged barbs cutting your sweet skin. 
The jewels in Zara's nose gave him the aspect of some strange, glittery bird. His long, elegant fingers waved dismissal. Let this be your kingdom, most exquisite of queens, and let me be your king. I will give you a throne of gold, if you like. When Karth begins to pour, we can journey round Yiti and search for the dreaming city of the poets to sip the wine of wisdom from a dead man's skull. I mean to sail to Westeros and drink the wine of vengeance from the skull of the usurper. She scratched Rhaegal under one eye, and his jade-green wings unfolded for a moment, stirring the still air in the palanquin. A single perfect tear ran down the cheek of Zara Zoandaxis. Will nothing turn you from this madness? Nothing, she said, wishing she was as certain as she sounded. If each of the thirteen would lend me ten ships, you would have one hundred thirty ships, and no crew to sail them. The justice of your cause means naught to the common men of Karth. Why should my sailors care who sits upon the throne of some kingdom on the edge of the world? I will pay them to care. With what coin, sweet star of my heaven? With the gold the seekers bring. That you may do, Zara acknowledged, but so much caring will cost dear. <laughs> you will need to pay them far more than I do, and all of Karth laughs at my ruinous generosity. If the Thirteen will not aid me, perhaps I should ask the Guild of Spices, or the Tourmaline Brotherhood. Zaro gave a languid shrug. They will give you nothing but flattery and lies. The Spices are dissemblers and braggarts, and the Brotherhood is full of pirates. Then I must heed Pyat Pri and go to the Warlocks. The Merchant Prince sat up sharply. Pyat Pri has blue lips! and it is truly said that blue lips speak only lies. Heed the wisdom of one who loves you. Warlocks are bitter creatures who eat dust and drink of shadows. They will give you naught. They have naught to give. I would not need to seek sorcerer's help if my friend Zarozoandaxus would give me what I ask. I have given you my home and heart. Do they mean nothing to you? I've given you perfume and pomegranates, tumbling monkeys and spitting snakes, scrolls from lost Valyria, an idol's head and a serpent's foot. I have given you this palanquin of ebony and gold and a mad set of bullocks to bear it, one white as ivy and one black as jet with horns inlaid with jewels. Yes, Danny said, but it was ships and soldiers I wanted. Did I not give you an army, sweetest of women? Huh? A thousand knights, each in shining armor? The armor had been made of silver and gold, the knights of jade and beryl and onyx and tourmaline, of amber and opal and amethyst, each as tall as her little finger. A thousand lovely knights, she said, but not the sort my enemies need fear, and my bullocks cannot carry me across the water. I... Why, why are we stopping? The oxen had slowed notably. Khaleesi, Ego called through the drapes as the palanquin jerked to a sudden halt. Danny rolled onto an elbow to lean out. They were on the fringes of the bazaar, the way ahead blocked by a solid wall of people. What are they looking at? Jogo rode back to her. A fire mage, Khaleesi, 
I want to see. Then you must. The Dothraki offered a hand down. When she took it, he pulled her up onto his horse and sat her in front of him where she could see over the heads of the crowd. The fire mage had conjured a ladder in the air, a crackling orange ladder of swirling flame that rose unsupported from the floor of the bazaar reaching toward the high latticed roof. Most of the spectators, she noticed, were not of the city. She saw sailors off trading ships, merchants come by caravan, dusty men out of the red waste, wandering soldiers, craftsmen, slavers. Jogo slid one hand about her waist and leaned closer. The milkman shun him, Khaleesi. Do you see the girl in the felt hat? There, behind the fat priest, she is a... Cut purse, finished Danny. She was no pampered lady blind to such things. She had seen cut purses aplenty in the streets of the free cities during the years she'd spent with her brother running from the usurper's hired knives. The mage was gesturing, urging the flames higher and higher with broad sweeps of his arms. As the watchers craned their necks upward, the cut purses squirmed through the press, small blades hidden in their palms. They relieved the prosperous of their coin with one hand, while pointing upward with the other. When the fiery ladder stood forty feet high, the mage leapt forward and began to climb it, scrambling up hand over hand as quick as a monkey. Each rung he touched dissolved behind him, leaving no more than a wisp of silver smoke. When he reached the top, the ladder was gone, and so was he. A fine trick, announced Jogo with admiration. No trick, a woman said in the common tongue. Danny had not noticed Quaith in the crowd, yet there she stood, eyes wet and shiny behind the implacable red lacquer mask. What mean you, my lady? Half a year gone, that man could scarcely wake fire from dragonglass. He had some small skill with powders and wildfire, sufficient to entrance a crowd while his cut purses did their work. He could walk across hot coals and make burning roses bloom in the air. But he could no more aspire to climb the fiery ladder than a common fisherman could hope to catch a kraken in his nets. Danny looked uneasily at where the ladder had stood. Even the smoke was gone now, and the crowd was breaking up each man going about his business. In a moment more than a few would find their purses flat and empty. And now? And now his powers grow, Khaleesi, and you are the cause of it. Me? she laughed. How could that be? The woman stepped closer and laid two fingers on Danny's wrist. You are the mother of dragons, are you not? She is, and no spawn of shadows may touch her. Jogo brushed Quaith's fingers away with the handle of his whip. The woman took a step backward. You must leave this city soon, Daenerys Targaryen, or you will never be permitted to leave it at all. Danny's wrist still tingled where Quaith had touched her. Where would you have me go? she asked. To the north you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. A shy, Danny thought. She would have me go to a shy. Will the Ashai give me an army, she demanded. Will there be gold for me in a shy? Will there be ships? What is there in a shy that I will not find in Karth? Truth, 
said the woman in the mask, and bowing, she faded back into the crowd. Ricaro snorted contempt through his drooping black mustachios. Khaleesi, better man should swallow scorpions than trust in the spawn of shadows who dare not show their face beneath the sun. It is known. It is known, Ego agreed. Zarozo and Daxus had watched the whole exchange from his cushions. When Danny climbed back into the palanquin beside him, he said, Your savages are wiser than they know. Such truths as the Ashai horde are not like to make you smile. Then he pressed another cup of wine on her and spoke of love and lust and other trifles all the way back to his manse. In the quiet of her chambers, Danny stripped off her finery and donned a loose robe of purple silk. Her dragons were hungry, so she chopped up a snake and charred the pieces over a brazier. They are growing, she realized, as she watched them snap and squabble over the blackened flesh. They must weigh twice what they had in Vez Taloro. Even so, it would be years before they were large enough to take to war. And they must be trained as well, or they will lay my kingdom waste. For all her Targaryen blood, Danny had not the least idea of how to train a dragon. Sir Jorah Mormont came to her as the sun was going down. The pureborn refused you? As you said they would. Come sit, give me your counsel. Danny drew him down to the cushions beside her, and Jiqui brought them a bowl of purple olives and onions drowned in wine. You will get no help in this city, Khaleesi. Sir Jorah took an onion between thumb and forefinger. Each day I'm more convinced of that than the day before. The pure-born see no farther than the walls of Karth. And Zaro, he asked me to marry him again. Yes, and I know why. When the knight frowned, his heavy black brows joined together above his deep-set eyes. He dreams of me day and night, she laughed. Forgive me, my queen, but it is your dragons he dreams of. Zara assures me that in Karth, man and woman each retain their own property after they are wed. The dragons are mine. She smiled as Drogon came hopping and flapping across the marble floor to crawl up on the cushions beside her. He tells it true, as far as it goes, but there's one thing he failed to mention. The Carthian have a curious wedding custom, my queen. On the day of their union, a wife may ask a token of love from her husband. Whatsoever she desires of his worldly goods, he must grant, and he may ask the same of her. One thing only may be asked, but whatever is named may not be denied. One thing, she repeated, and it may not be denied. With one dragon, Zaro Zerndaxus would rule the city, but one ship will further our cause but little. Danny nibbled at an onion and reflected ruefully on the faithlessness of men. We passed through the bazaar on our way back from the Hall of a Thousand Thrones, she told Sir Jorah. Quaith was there. She told him of the fire mage and the fiery ladder and what the woman in the red mask had told her. I would be glad to leave the city, if truth be told, the knight said when she was done, but not for a shy. Where then? East, he said. I'm half a world away from my kingdom even here. If I go any farther east, I may never find my way home to Westeros. If you go west, you risk your life. Hastagarian has friends in the free cities, she reminded him. Truer friends 
than Zaro or the pureborn. If you mean Illyrio Mopatus, I wonder. For sufficient gold, Illyrio would sell you as quickly as he would a slave. My brother and I were guests in Illyrio's manse for half a year. If he meant to sell us, he could have done it then. He did sell you, Sir Jorah said, to Carl Drogo. Danny flushed. He had the truth of it. But she did not like the sharpness with which he put it. Illyrio protected us from the usurper's knives, and he believed in my brother's cause. Illyrio believes in no cause but Illyrio. Gluttons are greedy men, as a rule, and magisters are devious. Illyrio Mopatis is both. What do you truly know of him? I know that he gave me my dragon eggs. <laughs> he snorted. If he'd known they were like to hatch, he would have sat on them himself. That made her smile despite herself. Oh, I have no doubt of that, sir. I know Illyrio better than you think. I was a child when I left his manse in Pentos to wed my son and stars, but I was neither deaf nor blind, and I am no child now. Even if Illyrio is the friend you think him, the knight said stubbornly, he is not powerful enough to enthrone you by himself, no more than he could your brother. He is rich, she said. Not so rich as Zara, perhaps, but rich enough to hire ships for me, and men as well. Sell swords have their uses, Sir Jorah admitted, but you will not win your father's throne with sweepings from the free cities. Nothing knits a broken realm together so quick as an invading army on its soil. I am the rightful queen, Danny protested. You are a stranger who means to land on their shores with an army of outlanders who cannot even speak the common tongue. The lords of Westeros do not know you and have every reason to fear and mistrust you. You must win them over before you sail, a few at least. And how am I to do that if I go east as you counsel? He ate an olive and spit out the pip into his palm. I do not know, your grace, he admitted, but I do know that the longer you remain in one place, the easier it will be for your enemies to find you. The name Trigarian still frightens him, so much so that they sent a man to murder you when they heard you were with child. What will they do when they learn of your dragons? Drogon was curled up beneath her arm, as hot as a stone that has soaked all day in the blazing sun. Rhaegal and Viserion were fighting over a scrap of meat, buffeting each other with their wings as smoke hissed from their nostrils. My furious children, she thought, they must not come to harm. The comet led me to Karth for a reason. I had hoped to find my army here, but it seems that will not be. What else remains, I asked myself. I am afraid, she realized, but I must be brave. Come the morrow, you must go to Pyat Pri. Tyrion The girl never wept. Young as she was, Missella Baratheon was a princess born. And a Lannister, despite her name, Tyrion reminded himself, as much Jamie's blood as Cersei's. To be sure, her smile was a shade tremulous when her brothers took their leave of her on the deck of the Sea Swift. But the girl knew the proper words to say, and she said them with courage and dignity. When the time came to part, it was Prince Tommen who cried, and Marcella who gave him comfort.
Tyrion looked down upon the farewells from the high deck of King Robert's Hammer, a great war galley of four hundred oars. Rob's Hammer, as her oarsmen called her, would form the main strength of Marcella's escort. Lionstar, Boldwin, and Lady Lyanna would sail with her as well. It made Tyrion more than a little uneasy to detach so great a part of their already inadequate fleet, depleted as it was by the loss of all those ships that had sailed with Lord Stannis to Dragonstone and never returned. But Cersei would hear of nothing less. Perhaps she was wise. If the girl was captured before she reached Sunspear, the Dornish alliance would fall to pieces. So far, Doran Martell had done no more than call his banners. Once Marcella was safe in Brabos, he had pledged to move his strength to the high passes, where the threat might make some of the marcher lords rethink their loyalties and give Stannis pause about marching north. It was purely a feint, however. The Martells would not commit to actual battle unless Dawn itself was attacked, and Stannis was not so great a fool. Though some of his bannermen may be, Tyrion reflected. I should think on that. He cleared his throat. You know your orders, Captain? I do, my lord. We are to follow the coast, staying always in sight of land, until we reach Crackclaw Point. From there we are to strike out across the narrow sea for Bravos. On no account are we to sail within sight of Dragonstone. And if our foe should chance upon you nonetheless, if a single ship we are to run them off or destroy them, if there are more, the Bullwind will cleave to the Sea Swift to protect her while the rest of the fleet does battle. Tyrion nodded. If the worst happened, the little Sea Swift ought to be able to outrun pursuit. A small ship with big sails, she was faster than any warship afloat, or so her captain had claimed. Once Marcella reached Bravos, she ought to be safe. He was sending Sir Aerys Oakheart as her sworn shield, and had engaged the Bravosi to bring her the rest of the way to Sunspear. Even Lord Stannis would hesitate to wake the anger of the greatest and most powerful of the free cities. Travelling from King's Landing to Dawn by way of Bravos was scarcely the most direct of routes, but it was the safest. Or so he hoped. If Lord Stannis knew of this hailing, he could not choose a better time to send his fleet against us. Tyrion glanced back to where the rush emptied into Blackwater Bay, and was relieved to see no sign of sails on the wide green horizon. At last report the Baratheon fleet still lay off Storm's End, where Sir Courtney Penrose continued to defy the besiegers in dead Renly's name. Meanwhile, Tyrion's winch towers stood three-quarters complete. Even now men were hoisting heavy blocks of stone into place, no doubt cursing him for making them work through the festivities. Let them curse. Another fortnight, Stannis, that's all I require. Another fortnight, and it will be done. Tyrion watched his niece kneel before the High Septon, to receive his blessing on her voyage. Sunlight caught in the crystal crown and spilled rainbows across Marcella's upturned face. The noise from the riverside made it impossible to hear the prayers. He hoped the guards had sharper ears. The high septon was as fat as a house, and more pompous and long of wind than even Pycelle. Enough, old man, make an end to it, Tyrion thought irritably. 
The guards have better things to do than listen to you, and so do I. When at last the droning and mumbling was done, Tyrion took his farewell of the captain of Rob's hammer. Deliver my niece safely to Bravos, and there will be a knighthood waiting for you on your return, he promised. As he made his way down the steep plank to the quay, Tyrion could feel unkind eyes upon him. The galley rocked gently, and the movement underfoot made his waddle worse than ever. I'll wager they'd love to snicker. No one dared, not openly, though he heard mutterings mingled with the creak of wood and rope and the rush of the river round the pilings. They do not love me, he thought. Well, small wonder. I am well fed and ugly, and they are starving. Bronn escorted him through the crowd to join his sister and her sons. Cersei ignored him, preferring to lavish her smiles on their cousin. He watched her charming Lancel with eyes as green as a rope of emeralds around her slim white throat, and smiled a small sly smile to himself. I know your secret, Cersei, he thought. His sister had oft called upon the High Septon of late to seek the blessings of the gods in their coming struggle with Lord Stannis, or so she would have him believe. In truth, after a brief call at the great sept of Baelor, Cersei would don a plain brown traveller's cloak and steal off to meet a certain hedge knight with the unlikely name of Sir Osmond Kettleblack and his equally unsavoury brothers, Osney and Osfrid. Lancel had told him all about them. Cersei meant to use the Kettleblacks to buy her own force of sellswords. Well, let her enjoy her plots— she was much sweeter when she thought she was outwitting him. The Kettleblacks would charm her, take her coin, and promise her anything she asked, and why not, when Bronn was matching every copper penny coin for coin. Amiable rogues, all three. The brothers were in truth more skilled at deceit than they'd ever been at bloodletting. Cersei had managed to buy herself three hollow drums. They would make all the fierce booming sounds she required— but there was nothing inside. It amused Tyrion no end. Horns blew fanfares as Lionstar and Lady Lyanna pushed out from the shore, moving down river to clear the way for Sea Swift. A few cheers went up from the crush along the banks, as thin and ragged as the clouds scuttling overhead. Marcella smiled and waved from the deck. Behind us stood Ares Oakheart, his white cloak streaming. The captain ordered lines cast off, and oars pushed the sea-swift out into the lusty current of the Blackwater Rush, where her sails blossomed in the wind, common white sails, as Tyrion had insisted, not sheets of Lannister crimson. Prince Tommen sobbed. You mew like a suckling babe, his brother hissed at him. Princes aren't supposed to cry. Prince Aemon, the Dragonite, cried the day Princess Nerys wed his brother Aegon, Sansa Stark said, and the twins, Sir Eric and Sir Eric, died with tears on their cheeks after each had given the other a mortal wound. Be quiet or I'll have some merrin give you a mortal wound, Joffrey told his betrothed. Tyrion glanced at his sister, but Cersei was engrossed in something Sir Balon Swan was telling her. Can she truly be so blind as to what he is? he wondered. Out on the river, Boldwyn unshipped her oars and glided downstream in the wake of Sea Swift. Last came King Robert's hammer, the might of the royal fleet.
or at least that portion that had not fled to Dragonstone last year with Stannis. Tyrion had chosen the ships with care, avoiding any whose captains might be of doubtful loyalty, according to Varys. But as Varys himself was of doubtful loyalty, a certain amount of apprehension remained. I rely too much on Varys, he reflected. I need my own informers. Not that I trust them either. Trust would get you killed. He wondered again about Littlefinger. There had been no word from Pattaya Baelish since he had ridden off for Bitterbridge. That might mean nothing or everything. Even Varys could not say. The eunuch had suggested that perhaps Littlefinger had met some misfortune on the roads. He might even be slain. Tyrion had snorted in derision. If Littlefinger is dead, then I am a giant. More likely, the Tyrells were balking at the proposed marriage. Tyrion could scarcely blame them. If I were Mace Tyrell, I would sooner have Joffrey's head on a pike than his cock in my daughter. The little fleet was well out into the bay when Cersei indicated that it was time to go. Bronn brought Tyrion's horse and helped him mount. That was Podrick Payne's task, but they had left Pod back at the Red Keep. The gaunt sellsword made for a much more reassuring presence than the boy would have. The narrow streets were lined by men of the city watch, holding back the crowd with the shafts of their spears. Sir Jaslyn Bywater went in front, heading a wedge of mounted lancers in black ringmail and golden cloaks. Behind him came Sir Aaron Santigar and Sir Balan Swan, bearing the king's banners, the Lion of Lannister and the Crown Stag of Baratheon. King Joffrey followed on a tall grey palfrey, a golden crown set upon his golden curls. Sansa Stark rode a chestnut mare at his side, looking neither right nor left, her thick auburn hair flowing to her shoulders beneath a net of moonstones. Two of the king's guard flanked the couple, the hound on the king's right hand, and Sir Mandon Moore to the left of the Stark girl. Next came Tommen, snuffling, with Sir Preston Greenfield in his wide armour and cloak, and then Cersei, accompanied by Sir Lancel and protected by Meryn Trant and Boris Blunt. Tyrion fell in with his sister. After them followed the High Septon in his litter, and a long tale of other courtiers, Sir Horace Redwine, Lady Tander and her daughter, Jalabar Zoe, Lord Giles Rosby, and the rest. A double column of guardsmen brought up the rear. The unshaven and unwashed stared at the riders with dull resentment from behind the line of spears. I like this not one speck, Tyrion thought. Bronn had a score of sellswords scattered through the crowd with orders to stop any trouble before it started. Perhaps Cersei had similarly disposed her kettleblacks. Somehow Tyrion did not think it would help much. If the fire was too hot, you could hardly keep the pudding from scorching by tossing a handful of raisins in the pot. They crossed Fishmonger Square and rode along Muddy Way before turning onto the narrow, curving hook to begin the climb up Aegon's high hill. A few voices raised a cry of, Joffrey! All hail! All hail! as the young king rode by, but for every man who picked up the shout, a hundred kept their silence. The Lannisters moved through a sea of ragged men and hungry women, breasting a tide of sullen eyes. 
Just ahead of him, Cersei was laughing at something Lancel had said, though he suspected her merriment was feigned. She could not be oblivious to the unrest around them, but his sister always believed in putting on the brave show. Halfway along the route, a wailing woman forced her way between two watchmen and ran out into the street in front of the king and his companions, holding the corpse of her dead baby above her head. It was blue and swollen, grotesque, but the real horror was the mother's eyes. Joffrey looked for a moment as if he meant to ride her down, but Sansa Stark leaned over and said something to him. The king fumbled in his purse and flung the woman a silver stag. The coin bounced off the child and rolled away under the legs of the gold cloaks and into the crowd, where a dozen men began to fight for it. The mother never once blinked. Her skinny arms were trembling from the dead weight of her son. Leave her, your grace, Cersei called out to the king. She is beyond our help, poor thing. The mother heard her. Somehow the queen's voice cut through the woman's ravaged wits. Her slack face twisted in loathing. Whore! she shrieked. Kingslayer's whore! Brother fucker! Her dead child dropped from her arms like a sack of flour as she pointed at Cersei. Brother fucker! Brother fucker! Brother fucker! Tyrion never saw who threw the dung. He only heard Sansa's gasp and Joffrey's bellowed curse, and when he turned his head, the king was wiping brown filth from his cheek. There was more caked in his golden hair, and spattered over Sansa's legs. Who threw that? Joffrey screamed. He pushed his fingers into his hair, made a furious face, and flung away another handful of dung. I want the man who threw that, he shouted. A hundred golden dragons to the man who gives him up. He was up there, someone shouted from the crowd. The king wheeled his horse in a circle to survey the rooftops and open balconies above them. In the crowd, people were pointing, shoving, cursing one another and the king. Please, your grace, let him go, Sansa pleaded. The king paid her no heed. Bring me the man who flung that filth, Joffrey commanded. He'll lick it off me, or I'll have his head. Dog, you bring him here. Obedient, Sandor Clegane swung down from his saddle but there was no way through that wall of flesh, let alone to the roof. Those closest to him began to squirm and shove to get away, while others pushed forward to see. Tyrion smelled disaster. Clegane, leave off, the man is long fled. I want him, Joffrey pointed at the roof. He was up there, dog, cut through them, and bring. A tumult of sound drowned his last words a rolling thunder of rage and fear and hatred that engulfed them from all sides. Bastard! Someone screamed at Joffrey. Bastard monster! Other voices flung calls of whore and brother fucker at the queen, while Tyrion was pelted with shouts of freak and half-man. Mixed in with the abuse, he heard a few cries of justice and Rob, King Rob, the young wolf, of Stannis and even Renly. From both sides of the street, the crowd surged against the spear shafts while the gold cloak struggled to hold the line. Stones and dung and fouler things whistled overhead. Feed us! A woman shouted. Bread! Boomed a man behind her. We want bread, bastard! 
In a heartbeat, a thousand voices took up the chart. King Joffrey and King Rob and King Stannis were forgotten, and King Bread ruled alone. Bread! They clamoured. Bread! Bread! Tyrion spurred to his sister's side, yelling. Back to the castle, now! Cersei gave a curt nod, and Sir Lancel unsheathed his sword. Ahead of the column, Jaslyn Bywater was roaring commands. His riders lowered their lances and drove forward in a wedge. The king was wheeling his palfrey around in anxious circles, while hands reached past the line of gold cloaks grasping for him. One managed to get hold of his leg, but only for an instant. Sir Mandon's sword slashed down, parting hand from wrist. Ride! Tyrion shouted at his nephew, giving the horse a sharp smack on the rump. The animal reared, trumpeting, and plunged ahead, the press shattering before him. Tyrion rode into the gap hard on the king's hooves. Bronn kept pace, sword in hand. A jagged rock flew past his head as he rode, and a rotten cabbage exploded against a mandan shield. To the left, three gold cloaks went down under the surge, and then the crowd was rushing forward, trampling the fallen men. The hound had vanished behind though his riderless horse galloped beside them. Tyrion saw Aaron Santigar pull from the saddle, the golden-black Baratheon stag torn from his grasp. Sir Balon Swan dropped the Lannister lion to draw his longsword. He slashed right and left as the fallen banner was ripped apart, the thousand ragged pieces swirling away like crimson leaves in a storm wind. In an instant they were gone. Someone staggered in front of Joffrey's horse, and shrieked as the king rode him down. Whether it had been man, woman, or child, Tyrion could not have said. Joffrey was galloping at his side, way-faced, and Sir Mandon Moore a white shadow on his left. And suddenly the madness was behind, and they were clattering across the cobble square that fronted on the castle Barbican. A line of spearmen held the gates. Sir Jaslyn was wheeling his lances around for another charge. The spears parted to let the king's party pass under the portcullis. Pale red walls loomed up about them, reassuringly high and a swarm with crossbowmen. Tyrion did not recall dismounting. Sir Mandon was helping the shaken king off his horse when Cersei, Tommen, and Lancel rode through the gates with Sir Merrin and Sir Boris close behind. Boris had blood smeared along his blade, while Merrin's white cloak had been torn from his back. Sir Balon Swan rode in helmetless, his mount lathered and bleeding at the mouth. Horace Redwine brought in Lady Tander, half crazed with fear for her daughter Lollies, who had been knocked from the saddle and left behind. Lord Giles, more grey of face than ever, stammered out a tale of seeing the high septum spilled from his litter, screeching prayers as the crowd swept over him. Jalabazo said he thought he'd seen Sir Preston Greenfield of the King's Guard riding back toward the High Septon's overturned litter, but he was not certain. Tyrion was dimly aware of a maester asking if he was injured. He pushed his way across the yard to where his nephew stood, his dung-encrusted crown askew. Traitors! Geoffrey was babbling excitedly. I'll, I'll have all the heads, I'll— The dwarf slapped his flushed face so hard— the crown flew from Joffrey's head. Then he shoved him with both hands and knocked him sprawling. 
you blind bloody fool. They were traitors, Joffrey squealed from the ground. They called me names and attacked me. You set your dog on them. What did you imagine they would do? Bend their knee meekly while the hound lopped off some limbs? You spoiled, witless little boy. You've killed Clegane and guards know how many more, and yet you come through unscathed. Damn you! And he kicked him. It felt so good he might have done more. But Sir Mandon Moore pulled him off as Joffrey howled, and then Bronn was there to take him in hand. Cersei knelt over her son, while Sir Balon Swan restrained Sir Lancel. Tyrion wrenched free of Bronn's grip. How many are still out there? He shouted to no one and everyone. My daughter, cried Lady Tender, please someone must go back for lollies. Sir Preston is not returned, Sir Boris Blunt reported, nor Aaron Sedgar. Nor wet nurse, said Sir Horace Redwine. That was the mocking name the other squires had hung on young Tyrek Lannister. Tyrion glanced around the yard. Where's the Stark girl? For a moment no one answered. Finally Joffrey said, She was riding by me. I don't know where she went. Tyrion pressed blunt fingers into his throbbing temples. If Sansa Stark had come to harm, Jaime was as good as dead. Samandon, you were her shield? Samandon Moore remained untroubled. When they mobbed the hound, I, I thought first of the king. And rightly so, Cersei put in. Boris, Merrin, go back and find the girl. And my daughter? Lady Tander sobbed. Please, sirs. Sir Boris did not look pleased at the prospect of leaving the safety of the castle. Your grace, he told the queen, the sight of our white cloaks might enrage the mob. Tyrion had stomached all he cared to. The others take your fucking cloaks. Take them off if you're afraid to wear them, you bloody oaf. But find me Sansa Stark, or I swear I'll have Shaga split that ugly head of yours in two to see if there's anything inside but black pudding. Sir Boris went purple with rage. You would call me ugly? You? He started to raise the bloody sword still clutched in his mailed fist. Bronn shoved Tyrion unceremoniously behind him. Stop it, Cersei snapped. Boris, you'll do as you bid, or we'll find someone else to wear that cloak. Your oath. There she is, Joffrey shouted, pointing. Sandor Clegane cantered briskly through the gates astride Sansa's chestnut courser. The girl was seated behind, both arms tight around the hound's chest. Tyrion called to her. Are you hurt, Lady Sansa? Blood was trickling down Sansa's brow from a deep gash on her scalp. They, they were throwing things, rocks and filth, eggs. I tried to tell them I had no bread to give them. A man tried to pull me from the saddle. The hound killed him, I think, his arm... Her eyes widened, and she put a hand over her mouth. He cut off his arm. Clegane lifted her to the ground. His white cloak was torn and stained, and blood seeped through a jagged tear in his left sleeve. The little bird's bleeding. Someone take her back to her cage and see to that cut. Maester Franken scurried forward to obey. They did for Setegar, the hound continued. Four men held him down and took turns bashing at his head with a cobblestone. 
I gutted one. Not that it did Sir Aaron much good. Lady Tander approached him. My daughter. Never saw her. The hound glanced around the yard, scowling. Where's my horse? If anything's happened to that horse, someone's going to pay. He was running with us for a time, Tyrion said, but I don't know what became of him after that. Fire! A voice screamed down from atop the barbican. My lords, there's smoke in the city! Flea bottoms of fire! Tyrion was inutterably weary, but there was no time for despair. Bronn, take as many men as you need, and see that the water wagons are not molested. Gods be good, the wildfire! If any blaze should reach that. We can lose all of flea bottom if we must, but on no account must the fire reach the guild hall of the alchemists. Is that understood? Clegane, you'll go with him. For half a heartbeat, Tyrion thought he glimpsed fear in the hound's dark eyes. Fire, he realized. The others take me, of course. He hates fire. He's tasted it too well. The look was gone in an instant, replaced by Clegane's familiar scowl. I'll go, he said, though not by your command. I need to find that horse. Tyrion turned to the three remaining knights of the King's Guard. Each of you will ride escort to a herald. Command the people to return to their homes. Any man found on the streets after the last peal of the Evenfall Bell will be killed. Our place is beside the king, Sir Merrin said, complacent. Cersei reared up like a viper. Your place is where my brother says it is, she spit. The hand speaks with the king's own voice, and disobedience is treason. Boris and Merrin exchanged a look. Should we wear our cloaks, your grace? Sir Boris asked. Go naked for all I care. It might remind the mob that you're men. They're like to have forgotten after seeing the way you behaved out there in the street. Tyrion let his sister rage. His head was throbbing. He thought he could smell smoke, though perhaps it was just the scent of his nerves fraying. Two of the stone crows guarded the door of the Tower of the Hand. Find me Timot, son of Timot. Stone crows do not run squeaking after burned men, one of the wildlings informed him haughtily. For a moment Tyrion had forgotten who he was dealing with. Then find me Shagger. Shagger sleeps. It was an effort not to scream. Wake him! It is no easy thing to wake Shagger, son of Dorf, the man complained. His wrath is fearsome. He went off grumbling. The clansmen wandered in, yawning and scratching. Half the city is rioting, the other half is burning, and Shagger lies snoring, Tyrion said. Shagger mislikes your muddy water here, so he must drink your weak ale and sour wine, and after his head hurts. I have she in a manse near the Iron Gate. I want you to go to her and keep her safe, whatever may come. The huge man smiled, his teeth a yellow crevasse in the hairy wilderness of his beard. Shagger will fetch her here. Just see that no harm comes to her. Tell her I will come to her as soon as I may. This very night, perhaps, or on the morrow for a certainty. Yet, by evenfall, the city was still in turmoil, though Bronn reported that the fires were quenched 
and most of the roving mobs dispersed. Much as Tyrion yearned for the comfort of Shay's arms, he realized he would go nowhere that night. Sir Jaslyn Bywater delivered the butcher's bill as he was supping on a cold capon and brown bread in the gloom of his solar. Dusk had faded to darkness by then, but when his servants came to light his candles and start a fire in the hearth, Tyrion had roared at them and sent them running. His mood was as black as a chamber, and Bywater said nothing to lighten it. The list of the slain was topped by the High Septon, ripped apart as he squealed to his guards for mercy. Starving men take a hard view of priests too fat to walk, Tyrion reflected. Sir Preston's corpse had been overlooked at first. The gold cloaks had been searching for a knight in white armor, and he had been stabbed and hacked so cruelly that he was red-brown from head to heel. Sir Aaron Santigar had been found in a gutter, his head a red pulp inside a crushed helm. Lady Tander's daughter had surrendered her maidenhood to half a hundred shouting men behind a tanner's shop. The gold cloaks found her wandering naked on Sour Belly Row. Tyrek was still missing, as was the High Septon's crystal crown. Nine gold cloaks had been slain, two score wounded. No one had trouble to count how many of the mob had died. I want Tyrek found, alive or dead, Tyrion said curtly when Bywater was done. He's no more than a boy, a son to my late uncle, Tyget. His father was always kind to me. We'll find him, the Septon's crown as well. The others can bugger each other with the Septon's crown for all I care. When you named me to command the watch, you told me you wanted plain truth, always. Somehow I have a feeling I'm not going to like whatever you're about to say, Tyrion said gloomily. We held the city today, my lord, but I make no promises for the morrow. The kettle is close to boiling. So many thieves and murderers are abroad that no man's house is safe. The bloody flocks is spreading in the stews along Pisswater Bend. There's no food to be had for copper nor silver. Where before you heard only mutterings from the gutter, now there's open talk of treason in guild halls and markets. Do you need more men? I do not trust half the men I have now. Slint, triple the size of the watch, but it takes more than a gold cloak to make a watchman. There are good men and loyal among the new recruits, but also more brutes, sots, cravens, and traitors than you'd care to know. They're half-trained and undisciplined, and what loyalty they have is their own skins. If it comes to battle, they're not old, I fear. I never expected them to, said Tyrion. Once our walls are breached, we are lost. I've known that from the start. My men are largely drawn from the small folk. They walk the same streets, drink in the same wine sinks, spoon down their bowls of brown in the same pot shops. Your eunuch must have told you there is small love for the Lannisters in King's Landing. Many still remember how your lord father sacked the city when Ares opened the gates to him. They whisper the guards are punishing us for the sins of your house, for your brother's murder of King Ares, for the butchery of Rhaegar's children, for the execution of Eddard Stark, and the savagery of Joffrey's justice. Some people talk openly of how much better things were when Robert was king, and hint that times would be better again with Stannis on the throne. In pot shops and wine sinks and brothels you hear these things, and in the barracks 
and guard all's as well, I fear. The eight's my family. Is that what you're telling me? Aye, and we'll turn on them, if the chance comes. Me as well. Ask your eunuch. I'm asking you. Bywater's deep-set eyes met the dwarf's mismatched ones and did not blink. You, most of all, my lord. Most of all. The injustice was like to choke him. It was Joffrey who told them to eat their dead. Joffrey who set his dog on them. How could they blame me? His grace is but a boy. In the streets it is said that he has evil counsellors. The Queen has never been known as a friend to the commons, nor is Lord Varys called the spider out of love. But it is you they blame most. Your sister and the eunuch were here when times were better under King Robert, but you were not. They say that you fill the city with swaggering sellswords and unwashed savages' brutes who take what they want and follow no laws but their own. They say you exile Jane Slint because you've found him too bluff and honest for your liking. They say you threw wise and gentle Pycelle into the dungeons when he dared raise his voice against you. Some even claim that you mean to seize the Iron Throne for your own. Yes, and I am a monster besides, hideous and misshapen. Never forget that. His hand coiled into a fist. I've heard enough. We both have work to attend to. Leave me. Perhaps my lord father was right to despise me all these years, if this is the best I can achieve, Tyrion thought when he was alone. He stared down at the remains of his supper, his belly roiling at the sight of the cold, greasy capon. Disgusted, he pushed it away, shot it for pod, and sent the boy running to summon Varys and Bronn. My most trusted advisers are a eunuch and a sellsword, and my lady's a whore. What does that say of me? Bronn complained of the gloom when he arrived, and insisted on a fire in the hearth. It was blazing by the time Varys made his appearance. Where have you been? Tyrion demanded. About the king's business, my sweet lord. Ah, yes, the king, Tyrion muttered. My nephew is not fit to sit a privy, let alone the Iron Throne. Varys shrugged. An apprentice must be taught his trade. Half the apprentices on Reeking Lane could rule better than this king of yours. Bronn seated himself across the table and pulled a wing off the capon. Tyrion had made a practice of ignoring the sellsword's frequent insolences, but tonight he found it galling. I don't recall giving you leave to finish my supper. You didn't look to be eating it, Bronn said through a mouthful of meat. City is starving. It's a crime to waste food. You have any wine? Next he'll want me to pour it for him, Tyrion thought darkly. You go too far, he warned. And you never go far enough, Bronn tossed the wingbone to the rushes. Ever think how easy life would be if the other one had been born first, he thrust his fingers inside the capon and tore off a handful of breast. The weepy one, Tommen, seems like he'd do whatever he was told, as a good king should. A chill crept down Tyrion's spine as he realized what the sellsword was hinting at. If Tommen was king? There was only one way Tommen would become king.
No, he could not even think of it. Joffrey was his own blood, and Jamie's son as much as Cersei's. I could have your head off for saying that, he told Bronn, but the sellsword only laughed. Friends, said Varys, quarrelling will not serve us. I beg you both, take heart. Whose? asked Tyrion sourly. He could think of several tempting choices. Davos Sir Courtney Penrose wore no armour. He sat a sorrow stallion, his standard-bearer a dapple grey. Above them flapped Baratheon's crown stag and the cross quills of Penrose, white on a russet field. Sir Courtney's spade-shaped beard was russet as well, though he'd gone wholly bald on top. If the size and splendour of the king's party impressed him, it did not show on that weathered face. They trotted up with much clinking of chain and rattle of plate. Even Davis wore mail, though he could not have said why. His shoulders and lower back ached from the unaccustomed weight. It made him feel cumbered and foolish, and he wondered once more why he was here. It is not for me to question the king's commands, and yet... Every man of the party was of better birth and higher station than Davis Seaworth, and the great lords glittered in the morning sun. Silvered steel and gold inlays brightened their armour, and their war helms were crested in a riot of silken plumes, feathers, and cunningly wrought heraldic beasts with gemstone eyes. Stannis himself looked out of place in this rich and royal company. Like Davis, the king was plainly garbed in wool and boiled leather, though the circlet of red gold about his temples lent him a certain grandeur. Sunlight flashed off its flame-shaped points whenever he moved his head. This was the closest Davis had come to his grace in the eight days since Black Betha had joined the rest of the fleet of Storm's End. He'd sought an audience within an hour of his arrival, only to be told that the king was occupied. The king was often occupied, Davis learned from his son, Devon, one of the royal squires. Now that Stannis Baratheon had come into power, his lordlings buzzed around him like flies around a corpse. He looks half a corpse, too, years older than when I left Dragonstone. Devon said the king scarcely slept of late. Since Lord Renly died, he has been troubled by terrible nightmares, the boy had confided to his father. Maester's potions do not touch them. Only the Lady Melisande can soothe him to sleep. Oh, is that why she shares his pavilion now? Davis wondered. To pray with him. Or does she have another way to soothe him to sleep? It was an unworthy question, and one he dared not ask, even of his own son. Devon was a good boy, but he wore the flaming heart proudly on his doublet, and his father had seen him at the night fires at Duskfell, beseeching the Lord of Light to bring the dawn. He is a king's squire, he told himself. It is only to be expected that he would take the king's guard. Davis had almost forgotten how high and thick the walls of Storm's End loomed up close. King Stannis halted beneath them, a few feet from Sir Courtney and his standard-bearer. Sir, he said with stiff courtesy, he made no move to dismount. My lord, 
That was less courteous, but not unexpected. It is customary to grant a king the style Your Grace, announced Lord Florent. A red gold fox poked its shiny snout out from his breastplate through a circlet of lapis lazuli flowers. Very tall, very courtly, and very rich. The Lord of Brightwater Keep had been the first of Renly's bannermen to declare for Stannis, and the first to renounce his old gods and take up the Lord of Light. Stannis had left his queen on Dragonstone, along with her uncle, Axel. But the queen's men were more numerous and powerful than ever, and Alistair Florent was the foremost. Sir Courtney Penrose ignored him, preferring to address Stannis. This is a notable company, the great lords Estamont, Errol, and Varna, Sir John of the Green Apple Fossilways, and Sir Brian of the Red. Lord Caron and Sir Guyard of King Renly's Rainbow Guard, and the puissant Lord Alistair Florent of Brightwater, to be sure. Is that your onion knight I spy to the rear? Well met, Sir Davis. I fear I do not know the lady. I am named Melisande, sir. She alone came unarmored, but for her flowing red robes. At her throat, the great ruby drank the daylight. I serve your king and the lord of light. I wish you well of them, my lady, Sir Courtney answered, but I bow to other gods and a different king. There is but one true king and one true god, announced Lord Florent. Are we here to dispute theology, my lord? Had I known, I would have brought a scepter. You know full well why we're here, said Stannis. You have had a fortnight to consider my offer. You sent your ravens. No help has come, nor will it. Storm's End stands alone, and I am out of patience. One last time, sir, I command you to open your gates and deliver me that which is mine by rights. And the terms, said Sir Courtney, remain as before, said Stannis. I will pardon you for your treason, as I have pardoned these lords you see behind me. The men of your garrison will be free to enter my service or to return unmolested to their homes. You may keep your weapons and as much property as a man can carry. I will require your horses and pack animals, however. And what of Edric Storm? My brother's bastard must be surrendered to me. Then my answer is still no, my lord. The king clenched his jaw. He said nothing. Melisande spoke instead. May the Lord of Light protect you in your darkness, Sir Courtney. May the others bugger your Lord of Light, Penrose spat back, and wipe his arse with that rag you bear. Lord Alastair Florent cleared his throat. <clears throat> Sir Courtney, mind your tongue. His grace means the boy no harm. The child is his own blood, and mine as well. My niece Delena was the mother, as all men know. If you will not trust to the king, trust to me. You know me for a man of honour. I know you for a man of ambition, Sir Courtney broke in, a man who changes kings and gods the way I change my boots, as do these other turn cloaks I see before me. An angry clamour went up from the king's men. Oh, he's not far wrong, Davis thought. Only a short time before, the Fossilways, Guyard Morrigan, 
and the Lords Caron, Varna, Errol, and Estamont had all belonged to Rendley. They had sat in his pavilion, helped him make his battle plans, plotted how Stannis might be brought low, and Lord Florent had been with them. He might be Queen Salisa's own uncle, but that had not kept the Lord of Brightwater from bending his knee to Renly when Renly's star was rising. Bryce Caron walked his horse forward a few paces, his long rainbow-striped cloak twisting in the wind off the bay. No man here is a turncloak, sir. My fealty belongs to Storm's End, and King Stannis is its rightful lord, and a true king. He is the last of House Baratheon, Robert's heir, and Rendis. If that is so, why is the Knight of Flowers not among you? And where is Mathis Rowan, Randall Tarley, Lady Oakheart? Why are they not here in your company? They who loved Renly best. Where is Brian of Tarth, I ask you? That one, <laughs> Sir Guyard Morrigan laughed harshly. She ran, as well she might. Hers was the hand that slew the king. A lie, Sir Courtney said. I knew Brian when she was no more than a girl playing at her father's knee in Evenfall Hall, and I knew her still better when the Evenstar sent her here to Storm's End. She loved Renly Baratheon. From the first moment she laid eyes on him, a blind man could see it. To be sure, declared Lord Florent airily, and she would scarcely be the first maid maddened to murder by a man who spurned her, though for my own part I believe it was Lady Stark who slew the king. She had journeyed all the way from Riveron to plead for an alliance, and Renly had refused her. No doubt she saw him as a danger to her son, and so removed him. It was Brian, insisted Lord Caron. Sir Eamon Kai swore as much before he died. You have my oath on that, Sir Courtney. Contempt thickened Sir Courtney's voice. And what is that worse? You wear your cloak of many colours, I see. The one Renly gave you when you swore your oath to protect him. If he is dead, how is it you are not? He turned his scorn on Guyard Morrigan. I might ask the same of you, sir. Guyard the Green, yes? Of the Rainbow Guard? Sworn to give his own life for his kings? If I had such a cloak, I would be ashamed to wear it. Morrigan bristled. Be glad this is a parley, Penrose, or I would have your tongue for those words. And cast it in the same fire where you left your manhood. Enough, Stannis said. The Lord of Light willed that my brother die for his treason. Who did the deed matters not. Not to you, perhaps, said Sir Courtney. I have heard your proposal, Lord Stannis. Now here is mine. He pulled off his glove and flung it full in the king's face. Single combat, sword, lance, or any weapon you care to name, or if you fear to hazard your magic sword and royal skin against an old man, name you a champion, and I shall do the same. He gave Guyard Morrigan and Bryce Caron a scathing look. Either of these pups would do nicely, I should think. Sir Guyard Morrigan grew dark with fury. I will take up the gauge if it please the king. As would I. Bryce Caron looked to Stannis. The king ground his teeth. No. Sir Courtney did not seem surprised. Is it the justice of your cause, you doubt, my lord, or the strength of your arm? 
Are you afraid I'll piss on your burning sword and put it out? Did take me for an utter fool, sir? Asked Stannis. I've twenty thousand men. You are besieged by land and sea. Why would I choose single combat when my eventual victory is certain? The king pointed a finger at him. I give you fair warning. If you force me to take my castle by storm, you may expect no mercy. I will hang you for traitors, every one of you. As the gods will it, bring on your storm, my lord, and recall, if you do, the name of this castle. Sir Courtney gave a pull on his reins and rode back toward the gate. Stannis said no word, but turned his horse around and started back towards his camp. The others followed. If we storm these walls, thousands will die, fretted ancient Lord Estamont, who was the king's grandfather on his mother's side. Better to hazard but a single life, surely. Our cause is righteous, so the guards must surely bless our champions' arms with victory. God, old man, thought Davis, you forget, we have only one now, Melisande's Lord of Loit. Sir John Fossaway said, I would gladly take this challenge myself, though I'm not half the swordsman Lord Caron is, or Sir Gaillard. Renly left no notable knights at Storm's End. Garrison duty is for old men and green boys. Lord Caron agreed. An easy victory, to be sure. And what glory to win Storm's End with a single stroke. Stannis raked them all with a look. Yet chatter like magpies, and with less sense. I will have quiet. The king's eyes fell on Davis. Sir, ride with me. He spurred his horse away from his followers. Only Melisande kept pace, bearing the great standard of the fiery heart with the crown stag within. As if it had been swallowed whole. Davis saw the looks that passed between the lordlings as he rode past them to join the king. These were no onion knights, but proud men from houses whose names were old in honour. Somehow he knew that Renly had never chided them in such a fashion. The youngest of the Baratheons had been born with a gift for easy courtesy that his brother sadly lacked. He eased back to a slow trot when his horse came up beside the king's. Your Grace! Seen at close hand, Stannis looked worse than Davis had realised from afar. His face had grown haggard, and he had dark circles under his eyes. A smuggler? Must be a fair judge of men, the king said. What do you make of Sir Courtney Penrose? A stubborn man, said Davis carefully. Hungry for death, I call it. He throws my pardon in my face. Aye, and throws his life away in the bargain, and the lives of every man inside those walls. Single combat. The king snorted in derision. No doubt he mistook me for Robert. More like he was desperate. What other hope does he have? None. The castle will fall. But how to do it quickly? Stannis brooded on that for a moment. Under the steady clop-clop of hooves, Davis could hear the faint sound of the king grinding his teeth. Lord Alistair urges me to bring old Lord Penrose here, Sir Courtney's father. You know the man, I believe. When I came as your envoy, Lord Penrose received me more courteously than most, Davis said. He's an old done man, sire, sickly and failing. 
Florent would have him fail more visibly, in his son's sight, with a noose about his neck. It was dangerous to oppose the Queen's men, but Davis had vowed always to tell his king the truth. I think that will be ill done, my liege. Sir Courtney will watch his father die before he would ever betray his trust. It would gain us nothing, and bring dishonour to our cause. What dishonour? Stannis bristled. Would you have me spare the lives of traitors? You have spared the lives of those behind us. Do you scold me for that, smuggler? It is not my place. Davis feared he had said too much. The king was relentless. You esteem this Penrose more than you do my lord's bannermen. Why? He keeps faith. A misplaced faith in a dead usurper. Yes, Davis admitted, but still he keeps faith. As those behind us do not. Davis had come too far with Stannis to play coy now. Last year they were Robert's men. A moon ago they were Renly's. This morning they are yours. Whose will they be on the morrow? And Stannis laughed, a sudden gust, rough and full of scorn. I told you, Melisande, he said to the red woman, my onion knight tells me the truth. I see you know him well, your grace, the red woman said. Davis, I've missed you sorely, the king said. I have a tale of traitors. Your nose does not deceive you. My lord's bannermen are inconstant, even in their treasons. I need them. But you should know how it sickens me to pardon such as these when I have punished better men for lesser crimes. You have every right to reproach me, Sir Davis. You reproach yourself more than I ever could, your grace. You must have these great lords to win your throne. Fingers and all, it seems, Stannis smiled grimly. Unthinking, Davis raised his maimed hand to the pouch at his throat and felt the finger-bones within. Luck. The king saw the motion. Are they still there, Onion Knight? You have not lost them? No. Why do you keep them? I've often wondered. They remind me of what I was, where I came from. They remind me of your justice, my liege. It was justice. Stannis said, A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. Each should have its own reward. You are a hero and a smuggler. He glanced behind at Lord Florent and the others, rainbow knights and turncloaks, who were following at a distance. These pardon lords would do well to reflect on that. Good men and true will fight for Joffrey, wrongly believing him the true king. A Northman might even say the same of Rob Stark, but these lords, who flocked to my brother's banners, knew him for a usurper. They turned their backs on their rightful king for no better reason than dreams of power and glory, and I have marked them for what they are. Pardon them, yes, forgiven, but not forgotten. He fell silent for a moment, brooding on his plans for justice, and then abruptly he said, what do the small folk say of Renly's death? They grieve. Your brother was well loved. Fools love a fool, grumbled Stannis. But I grieve for him as well. For the boy he was, not the man he grew to be. He was silent for a time, and then he said, 
How did the commons take the news of Circe's incest? While we were among them, they shouted for King Stannis. I cannot speak for what they said once we had sailed. So you do not think they believed? When I was smuggling, I learned that some men believe everything and some nothing. We met both sorts, and there is another tale being spread as well. Yes, Stannis bit off the word. Selyse has given me horns, and tied a fool's bell to the end of each. My daughter, fathered by a half-wit jester. A tale as vile as it is absurd. Renly threw it in my teeth when we met to parley. You would need to be as mad as Patchface to believe such a thing. Or let me be so, my liege. But whether they believe the story or no, they delight to tell it. In many places it had come before them, poisoning the will for their own true tale. Robert could piss in a cup and men would call it wine, but I offer them pure cold water, and they squint in suspicion and mutter to each other about how queer it tastes. Stannis ground his teeth. If someone said I had magicked myself into a boar to kill Robert, likely they would believe that as well. You cannot stop them talking, my liege, Davis said. But when you take your vengeance on your brother's true killers, the realm will know such tales for lies. Stannis only seemed to half hear him. I have no doubts that Cersei had a hand in Robert's death. I will have justice for him, aye, and for Ned Stark, and John Aaron as well. And for Renly? The words were out before Davis could stop to consider them. For a long time, the king did not speak. Then very softly he said, I dream of it sometimes, of Renly's dying, a green tent, candles, a woman screaming, and blood. Stannis looked down at his hands. I was still abed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. He tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh, and my lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armoured. I knew Renly would attack at break of day. Devon says I thrashed and cried out, but what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died, and when I woke, my hands were clean. Sir Davis Seaworth could feel his phantom fingertips start to itch. Something is wrong here, the one-time smuggler thought, yet he nodded and said, I see. Renly offered me a peach at our parley, mocked me, defied me, threatened me, and offered me a peach. I thought he was drawing a blade, and went for mine own. What was his purpose? To make me show fear? Or was it one of his pointless jests? When he spoke of how sweet the peach was, did his words have some hidden meaning? The king gave a shake of his head, like a dog shaking a rabbit to snap its neck. Only Renly could vex me so with a piece of fruit. He brought his doom on himself with his treason. But I did love him, Davis. I know that now. I swear I will go to my grave, thinking of my brother's peach. By then, they were in amongst the camp, riding past the ordered rows of tents, the blowing banners, and the stacks of shields and spears. The stink of horse dung was heavy in the air, mingled with the wood smoke and the smell of cooking meat. 
Stannis reined up long enough to bark a brusque dismissal to Lord Florent and the others, commanding them to attend him in his pavilion one hour hence for a council of war. They bowed their heads and dispersed, while Davis and Melisandre rode to the king's pavilion. The tent had to be large, since it was there his lord's bannerman came to council. Yet there was nothing grand about it. It was a soldier's tent of heavy canvas, dyed the dark yellow that sometimes passed for gold. Only the royal banner that streamed atop the center pole marked it as a king's. That and the guards without. Queen's men leaning on tall spears, with the badge of the fiery hearts sewn over their own. Grooms came up to help them dismount. One of the guards relieved Melisande of her cumbersome standard, driving the staff deep into the soft ground. Devon stood to one side of the door, waiting to lift the flap for the king. An older squire waited beside him. Stannis took off his crown and handed it to Devon. Coldwater, cops for two. Davis, attend me. My lady, I shall send for you when I require you. As the king commands, Melisande bowed. After the brightness of the morning, the interior of the pavilion seemed cool and dim. Stannis seated himself on a plain wooden camp stool and waved Davis to another. One day I may make you a lord, smuggler, if only to irk Celtigar and Florent. You will not thank me, though. It will mean you must suffer through these councils and feign interest in the braying of mules. Why do you have them, if they serve no purpose? The mules love the sound of their own braying. Why else? And I need them to haul my cart. Oh, to be sure, once in a great while some useful notion is put forward— but not today, I think. Ah, here's your son, with our water. Devon set the tray on the table and filled two clay cups. The king sprinkled a pinch of salt in his cup before he drank. Davis took his water straight, wishing it were wine. You were speaking of your counsel. Let me tell you how it will go. Lord Valerian will urge me to storm the castle walls at first light, Grapnels and scaling ladders against arrows and boiling oil. The young mules will think this a splendid notion. Estimont will favour settling down to starve them out, as Tyrell and red wine once tried with me. That might take a year, but old mules are patient, and Lord Caron and the others, who like to kick, will want to take up Sir Courtney's gauntlet and has it all upon a single combat. Each one imagining he will be my champion, and win on dying fame. The king finished his water. What would you have me do, smuggler? Davis considered for a moment before he answered. Strike for King's Landing at once. The king snorted. And leave Storm's End untaken. Sir Courtney does not have the power to harm you. The Lannisters do. A siege would take too long. Single combat is too chancy, and an assault would cost thousands of lives with no certainty of success. And there is no need. Once you dethrone Joffrey, this castle must come to you with all the rest. It is said about the camp that Lord Tywin Lannister rushes west to rescue Lannisport from the vengeance of the Northmen. You have a passing clever father, Devon. The king told the boy, 
standing by his elbow. He makes me wish I had more smugglers in my service, and fewer lords. Though you are wrong in one respect, Davis, there is a need. If I leave Storm's End untaken in my rear, it will be said I was defeated here, and that I cannot permit. Men do not love me as they love my brothers. They follow me because they fear me, and defeat is death to fear. The castle must fall. His jaw ground side to side. Aye, and quickly. Doran Martell has called his banners and fortified the mountain passes. His Dornishmen are poised to sweep down onto the marches, and High Garden is far from spent. My brother left the greater part of his power at Bitterbridge, near sixty thousand foot. I sent my wife's brother, Sir Errol, with Sir Parman Crane, to take them under my command, but they have not returned. I fear that uh, Sir Loras Tyrell reached Bitterbridge before my envoys, and took that host for his own. All the more reason to take King's Landing as soon as we may. Salador San told me. Salador San thinks only of gold. Stannis exploded. His head is full of dreams, of the treasure he fancies lies under the Red Keep. So let us hear no more of Salador San. The day I need military counsel from a Lycine brigand is the day I put off my crown and take the black. The king made a fist. Are you here to serve me, smuggler, or to vex me with arguments? I am yours, Davis said. Then hear me. Sir Courtney's lieutenant is cousin to the Fossaways. Lord Meadows, a green boy of twenty. Should some ill chance strike down Penrose, command of Storm's End would pass to this stripling, and his cousins believe he would accept my terms and yield up the castle. I remember another stripling who was given command of Storm's End. He could not have been much more than twenty. Lord Meadows is not as stonehead stubborn as I was. Stubborn or craven, what does it matter? Sir Courtney Penrose seemed hale and hearty to me. So did my brother. The day before his death. The night is dark and full of terrors, Davis. Davis Seaworth felt the small hairs rising on the back of his neck. My lord, I do not understand you. I do not require your understanding, only your service. Sir Courtney will be dead within the day. Millicent has seen it in the flames of the future. His death and the manner of it. He will not die in nightly combat, needless to say. Stannis held out his cup, and Devon filled it again from the flagon. Her flames do not lie. She saw Renly's doom as well. On Dragonstone she saw it, and told Solis. Lord Valerian and your friend Salador San would have had me sail against Joffrey, but Melisande told me that if I went to Storm's End, I would win the best part of my brother's power, and she was right. But, but uh, Davis stammered, Lord Rendy only came here because you had laid siege to the castle. He was marching towards King's Landing before, against the Lannisters. He would have... Stannis shifted in his seat, frowning. Was, would have, what is that? He did what he did. He came here with his banners and his peaches to his doom. And it was well for me he did. 
Melisande saw another day in her flames as well, a morrow where Renly rode out of the south in his green armour to smash my host beneath the walls of King's Landing. And I met my brother there. It might have been me who died in place of him. Or you might have joined your strength to his to bring down the Lannisters, Davos protested. Why not that? If she saw two futures, well, both cannot be true. King Stannis pointed a finger. There you err on your night. Some lights cast more than one shadow. Stand before the night far, and you see for yourself. The flames shift and dance, never still. The shadows grow tall and short, and every man casts a dozen. Some are fainter than others, that's all. Well, men cast their shadows across the future as well. One shadow or many. Melisande sees them all. You do not love the woman. I know that, Davis. I'm not blind. My lords mislike her, too. Estamont thinks the flaming heart ill-chosen, and begs to fight beneath the crown's stag as of old. Sir Gaiad says a woman should not be my standard-bearer. Others whisper that she has no place in my war councils, that I ought to send her back to Shai, that it is sinful to keep her in my tent of a night. Aye, they whisper while she serves. Serves? How? Davis asked, dreading the answer. As needed. The king looked at him. And you? I? Davis licked his lips. I am yours to command. What would you have me do? Nothing you have not done before. Only land a boat beneath the castle unseen in the black of night. Can you do that? Yes. To know it? The king gave a curt nod. You will need a small boat, not black better. No one must know what you do. Davis wanted to protest. He was a knight now, no longer a smuggler and he had never been an assassin. Yet when he opened his mouth, the words would not come. This was Stannis, his just lord, to whom he owed all he was, and he had his sons to consider as well. God be good. What has she done to him? You are quiet, Stannis observed. And should remain so, Davis told himself, but instead he said, My liege, you must have the castle, I see that now, but surely there are other ways, cleaner ways. Let Sir Courtney keep the bastard boy, and he may well yield. I must have the boy, Davis, must. Melisande has seen that in the flames as well. Davis groped for some other answer. Storm's End owes no knight who can match Sir Gaillard or Lord Caron, or any of a hundred others sworn to your service. This single combat, could it be that Sir Courtney seeks for a way to yield with honour, even if it means his own life? A troubled look crossed the king's face, like a passing cloud. More like he planned some treachery. There will be no combat of champions. Sir Courtney was dead before he ever threw that glove. The flames do not lie, Davis. Yet they require me to make them true, he thought. It had been a long time since Devers Seaworth felt so sad. And so it was that he found himself once more crossing Shipbreaker Bay in the dark of night, steering a tiny boat with a black sail. The sky was the same, and the sea. 
The same salt smell was in the air, and the water chuckling against the hull was just as he remembered it. A thousand flickering campfires burned around the castle, as the fires of the Tyrells and Red Wines had 